Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another edition of 605, the super podcast, the only podcast on Turner Time, the mothership, the best wrestling podcast on the planet, the only wrestling podcast that matters, call somebody. I am your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! And I did that in a different order this week, and I'm very happy to welcome to the show, for the very first time sitting in the co-host chair, a friend of mine and a friend of professional wrestling's, and that is Jim Valley. Jim, welcome to the Super Podcast. It is great to be here, Brian. I'm a big fan of the show. I'm a 605-er. I listen to the show. You know, my... My podcast partner, Fumi Saito, has been on the show many times. Last episode, you had Mike Sempervivi, who's also on The Observer. And what happened? Did did Pat McNeil say no? (laughs) Is this the time of day when Sean Radican is at the gym? Why? It took you long enough to get me on the show. Sheesh. Well, we are happy to have you here. So it's I am, a while, no, I'm but... thrilled to be here. I mean, I'm even friends with Travis Heckle, and he draws Fumi cartoons. Doesn't put me in anything. No. <laughs> well, we'll see what we can do about that. But Jim, you've mentioned a little bit here at the very, very top of the show. Obviously, you are currently with WrestlingObserver.com, yeah. but talk a little bit about your background. You've done so many interesting things. You've been involved with so many different audio projects throughout the years. You've hosted different events, specifically yeah. with Cauliflower Alley. Talk a little bit about your background and your background with professional wrestling. Well, you know, you could say I've done a lot of interesting things, or you could say that people don't like me enough to keep me around. So I'm just a guy that has to bounce around from (laughs) thing to thing to thing. Uh, No, Um, you know, I've been watching wrestling since since I was a a little kid in the in the 70s. Um, You know, my dad died when when I was very young and my mom remarried a, a gentleman from Mexico and he watched wrestling. So that's kind of what got me into into watching professional wrestling and every every saturday night i mean just so many kids in the northwest watched portland wrestling and i lived in a town halfway between seattle and portland oregon so we got television broadcast television back when it was over the air and back when uh you know there's only a handful of channels so we got portland tv and seattle tv so at 8 30 on Channel 12 in Portland, we got to see Portland Wrestling for 90 minutes. And then starting at 11 o'clock after Fantasy Island, uh, then we would watch. <laughs> then we would watch. It was an awesome Saturday night as a kid. Then we would watch Big Time Wrestling, which was the Seattle version of the Portland show in like the last hour of that card in Portland. So we saw the vast majority of everything that was happening in Portland. Maybe we missed a half an hour or two. But just by living there, seeing both stations, we got to see the vast majority of it. So it was awesome. Your stepfather being from Mexico, the person that got you into watching wrestling, what was it like for him? Because obviously the wrestling in the Pacific Northwest is vastly different than Lucha Libre. Did he immediately enjoy American style wrestling or was he complaining about not having Lucha? Tell me about his thoughts on it. You know, maybe I was too young or maybe I'm just an insensitive jerk, but I don't think I knew that there was like a different style of wrestling. So I don't think we ever talked about Lucha, come to think of it. Maybe we talk about like someone I'd see eventually in the magazines, like a Mil Mascaras or something like that. But I mean, I didn't know about any of that. So as far as I knew, uh, you know, the, the Mexican style or any other style was just like I was watching in Portland. As a matter of fact, 
uh, sort of like Jim Cornette's experience um, before I got to see like WWF or WF. Uh, you know, I just see it in the magazines or whatever. I was like, that must be the best wrestling in the world because it's in New York City and all the best stuff is in New York City. It's got to be awesome. And then sort of like Cornette, when I saw it, I was like, oh, OK, they just kind of punch and kick and there was no blood and the guys were kind of fat on the undercard and <laughs> they didn't cut great promos like Piper did or Jonathan Boyd or Dutch Savage. And I was like, oh, well, why why is this so great? But, um, you know, probably a couple of years after I was watching Portland wrestling and really into it. Uh, you know, like I said, I saw probably the guy that got me into it, unfortunately, now is Jimmy Snuka. You know, it's always nice when when a murderer is is the guy that got you into something. Uh, but well, who there are still into? people like Chris Benoit. Oh no, Snooker for sure. I mean, he looks so awesome. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to compare because the styles were so different than now. But he would have been like you know Rey Mysterio mixed with Brock Lesnar, this big jacked up guy for the era that could do leapfrogs and dive off the top rope. Uh, in Portland, as a matter of fact, his finishing maneuver, that big splash, uh, Frank Bonima, the announcer, called it the Fiji Island Gut Buster, which is a million times better name. Well, let me ask you, to the people who only saw Jimmy Snuka in either the World Wrestling Federation or maybe even on indie shows after the fact, or maybe in Mid-Atlantic or in Georgia, what was different with Jimmy Snuka in the Pacific Northwest than the other versions of Jimmy Snuka that people in the United States would have seen? I think he was probably protected more. Uh, you know, he was Dutch Savage's kind of Dutch Savage's protege. And Dutch was in this era kind of the grand old man of Portland. And he would do a lot of Jimmy's interviews for him. They were Pacific Northwest tag team champions. And Dutch was the promoter in, in uh, Washington for Don as well. So Dutch would kind of shield Jimmy. And Dutch, even before he died, uh, was very protective of Jimmy Snuka. As a matter of fact, um, there's a, a friend of mine, Rich Patterson, who record, who has Buddy Roses. You should get him on sometime. Rich is great. Uh, yeah. He was good friends with Buddy, and he got all of Buddy Rose's old videotapes. Buddy was an early adopter and had VCRs like in the 70s. As a matter of fact, some of Buddy's tapes were on a format that predates VHS and Beta. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, so Rich paid all the money and got them transferred to digital, and then some kid took them and and uh, and put them all up on YouTube to yeah. screw Rich over. But what and, that, gonna... and that kid's name? David Bixenspan. <laughs> no. no, 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 no. I'm just no. kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but anyway, here's my point about uh, on the Facebook page, fans of Portland wrestling. Uh, when I got Jimmy Snooker's book for Christmas, and I mentioned that it was okay, I said it's probably the book at the time that talks the most about Portland. And I said, yeah, you know, it's it's not a great book, but it's got a lot of stuff about Portland. But you know, Snooker was a bad person, and uh, I was kind of iffy about it. And Dutch, who was just a few months away from passing away, went off on me on this facebook page <laughs> get out of here what happened oh well he was just <laughs> he was just a different generation you know those guys but dutch um even toward the end like when i was living in portland around 2099 uh dutch was on um um uh what you call it a bra what is it uh cable um free cable like the access public, public access, access cable. Yeah. public access uh, doing preaching. He was extremely religious and um, extremely conservative in his in his views. So he was 
he was a guy not afraid to let you know his opinion and not afraid to give you your opinion. So didn't Dutch Savage walk away from wrestling after he was the commentator and kind of denounce things? No, Dutch was fired. Oh, what happened? Dutch and Buddy Rose didn't get along. And, you know, Dutch was the guy who kind of ruled the roost for a while. And then Buddy came along and Buddy was a great draw for Don. And so Buddy had Don's ear. Buddy would always say that he wasn't the booker, that they all worked together, but everyone knew who Don relied on. And it was it was Buddy. And so Buddy worked a show in Washington at like a school, I believe. And he was not happy with his payoff. And Buddy was very persistent. Uh, Buddy wasn't afraid to call people. Uh, Buddy uh, had a lot of weird online message board campaigns before he died. So Buddy called the school and found out the actual attendance and was able to prove to Don that more than likely, allegedly, uh, Dutch was skimming from the purse of the night. And Dutch was uh, let go and sort of they didn't make a big deal about it. And it was just, you know, one week he was there, one week he was not. And that was it. And I'm sure Dutch denies it. And again, I do say allegedly, but uh, he was accused of it. Don believed Buddy and, and that did happen. You talk about Buddy having Don's ear. Correct me if I'm wrong. Before Len Denton gets there as the grappler. There weren't too many firm bookers. It was kind of like whoever had Don's ear, correct? Yeah, that's the way it was. It's always been presented to me. But you know, I do the Portland WrestleCast on the torch for torch, uh, torch on the Observer for uh, Wrestling Observer subscribers, and I've had a number of guys on, and they they do say that yeah, um, there wasn't a booker, and they did work together, but everybody knew that Buddy was the guy, and that if you went a you went awry with Buddy, then you had problems in the territory. So early on, you connect with Jimmy Snuka. What other, yeah. what other guys early on did you really become fans of, and why did you become fans um, of I loved, you know, I mean, I was just a kid, so I was not that tall, so I never realized how tiny Jonathan Boyd was. But Jonathan Boyd was a great talker, and not the crazy Jonathan Boyd that you see in Memphis when he lost all of his hair, but when he still has all of his hair, and he was just a great tough guy. He was going to tell you what he was going to do. And, and, you know, nine times out of 10, he did it. And he was just so blunt about it. And having that Australian accent helped. He was, he was a great hero, but without a doubt, the guy who influenced me the most, who was so exciting. And some would say, you know, the biggest time in Portland wrestling was, was Roddy Piper. No question. He was amazing he took the territory by storm he and buddy had an epic feud and it was it was an amazing time it was an exciting time and i and as dumb as this sounds i'm very grateful that i got to live through it because it was just so good tell me about when piper first got there what were your first impressions so Dutch was often on commentary with Frank Bonnema, and he was promoting this guy, Roddy Piper, who's going to come in. And Dutch kind of put him over. Oh, he plays the bagpipes and everything. And Dutch was saying, oh, you're going to like him, da-da-da. And then the next week he comes in, and he's a bad guy. And, you know, my childhood brain is like, why would Dutch Savage say such nice things about a terrible person? What, did he not know? He must, he must not have known. So Piper comes in, and, and he's a bad guy. You know, he's, he, you know, he's not at the top at all. He's, you know, he's mid card. He's not losing, but he's definitely not main event. And at the time, the two top heels were Buddy Rose and Ed Wiskowski, your favorite from Mid-South. 
Ed was usually the Pacific Northwest champion and Buddy and he were usually the the tag team champions and they would do the trick where they'd bring up a wheelbarrow and put all the belts in a wheelbarrow. And at this time, uh, uh, George Shire was dying down in San Francisco and George Shire, uh, Roy Shire, sorry. Um, George Shire's uh, Minnesota. But, yeah, let's not get George uh, and yeah. Roy confused. <laughs> sorry. One's a very nice guy and one was a miserable prick. And that's uh, if you listen only to the people yeah. who extol his booking. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, Buddy and Ed were the world tag team champions out of San Francisco too for a time. So uh, Piper comes in, and then also who comes in is Tim Brooks, known everywhere else as Killer Brooks. But this is a true story because of the connotation. Don Owen wouldn't let him be Killer Brooks. He had to be Bad News Brooks in Portland. Bad News Brooks. Yeah, he had to be bad. He couldn't be killer. This is like 1979. I mean, I, I it's amazing that a blood and guts territory like Portland, it's like, oh, wait, no, calling someone killer. That's that's going too far. So he had to be bad news, Brooks, uh, because Don Owen didn't want to call him killer because he thought it was a bad connotation. Someone will have this answer and they'll say it is some guy who wrestled yesterday. But who's the last guy named killer to get a significant push in wrestling? Uh, well, Killer Cross, Kevin Cross right now in uh, in TNA. He's been doing great. Uh, you know, I don't really know what happens in TNA. <laughs> I can't well, remember. yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I, do, I do know this, that it's not TNA anymore. It's Impact. That's true. Killer Khan, I guess. Killer Khan. Killer Khan. Killer Kyle. Although, you know, I wouldn't call him a main eventer. But there yeah. haven't been too many good killers in quite a while. It sounds like that adjective now, because I'm on this show, I feel like that should be like one of the characters for the top ten. The killer? Yeah, it will kill her somebody. A killer, like someone who's someone who's like like uh, someone who was like a terrible wrestler or someone who was uh, just awful, you know, like the killer mulkies or something. I don't know, but just <laughs> for some reason, just being on there, that's just the way I'm thinking now. But uh, getting back to it, Piper was huge in Portland. So first they were they were heels, and they decided to form a super team. So it was going to be Wiskowski, Rose, Piper, and Brooks together, you know, like this mega evil Legion of Doom. And they did a, an elimination match, like a Survivor Series match with four of them versus, uh, I think, Adrian Adonis, Ron Starr, maybe Hector Guerrero, and King Parsons, maybe. Um, honestly, in this scenario, they're not important. Uh, so they're doing this match and they 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 win the first fall. Everything's going great. And then Killer Brooks is about to be pinned. And Ed Wiskowski comes off the top rope with a diving headbutt. And whoever was color covering Tim Brooks gets up and Ed Wiskowski headbutts off the top rope. Killer Brooks and causes Killer Brooks to lose. And of course, because it's off the top rope, it's a serious injury. And everything falls apart. Piper's mad. Brooks is mad. Uh, Wiskowski and Rose are mad. And for a couple of weeks, nobody knows who to boo, who to cheer. And finally, the fans settle on Piper. And, you know, without mouth of his, in his early prime, it was just awesome. They built up to a hair match where Buddy Rose uh, went through, like, the entire lower card baby face roster. Uh, doing uh, doing hair matches and cutting everybody's hair in Portland. And then Roddy Piper got revenge by cutting the sheep herders 
the Bushwhackers here who were now in the territory and members of Buddy Rose's army. And it built up to a match with like 6,000 people, not in the sports arena, but in the Portland Expo Center, which was much larger than the, the sports arena. It sold it out. And uh, Piper, of course, won. And according to Dave Meltzer, that was the biggest one-night paycheck that Don Owen ever wrote for anybody that night that he wrote for for Rose and Piper. So it was a really big deal. It was an awesome time. Rick Martell came in, and he was a babyface, and he and Piper were an awesome tag team. It was a really exciting time. And I look back on it when I watch the stuff on the, the DVDs from Rich Patterson, and it, it still holds up pretty well. How much was that check for, do you know? I think Meltzer said a thousand bucks each. And that was the biggest check he had ever written one of the wrestlers. For one night. For one not night. Like, yeah, not the one night, a one night payoff. Not like you'd get like a thousand dollars, you know, you'd make more than that in a week. But right, for, right. for for one night, um, that's what it was. I mean, people like Don. People, you know, people always talk about Don being a very fair payoff guy because Don made his money. He was a rancher. So you know, not to say that wrestling supplemented his income. He made a lot of money off of wrestling, but he had a very lucrative ranching business as well. So where other promoters would, well, that was their only, that was their only revenue stream. Don would, would pay fairly for the most part, from what I understand, you know, because he could, and by most accounts, he was a decent guy. I know Dean Silverstone wasn't a big fan of Don and in his book, accuses Don of, of anti-Semitism, and I wasn't there. I don't know. I certainly think Dean is, is a very honest man, but by all accounts, most everybody loved working for Don, and that's why you know Piper never ran against Don Owen. Um, when they did the, 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 uh, the 60th anniversary show, 1985, May 15th, 19th, something like that. I don't have it in front of me, but they filled up the Portland Memorial Coliseum. So probably like 12, 15,000 fans sellout crowd main event, Billy Jack against Ric Flair. Uh, Rick Martell came in, defended the AWA world title against uh, Mean Mike Miller. So you had two world title matches. You had the Road Warriors taking on the Hennigs and the Road Warriors. And I talked to both Ellering and Hawk and Animal uh, during my radio career, and they all three confirmed that they worked that show for free, even though it was sold out. They worked it for free out of respect for Don Owen, which is crazy when you think about it. Uh, but the cool thing about the show, to show how much Piper respected him, so this is 1985. WrestleMania happened in March 31st, so we're like a month and a half later. Piper was the biggest bad guy in the world, working the biggest show up to that date, and Piper came in and wrestled Playboy Buddy Rose on an NWA show in Portland. And where he's the biggest bad guy in the world, and he's on MTV, and everybody hates him, that crowd treated him like a returning hero, like he had never left. And it was funny because when I was a kid reading the magazines, when Piper first left and went to Mid-Atlantic as a heel in the, the Stanley Weston magazines, which were very kayfabe, but this must be real because I don't know why they would have mentioned it. But from time to time, they would talk about in different articles, wrestling fans from the Pacific Northwest writing in letters wanting to know why the magazines trashed Roddy Piper because he was a really good guy. You just don't understand that. <laughs> and they would reference that in the magazine. So I'm guessing that couldn't have been an angle that that had to have been something real. When did you start attending shows? 
Uh, I remember there's one show that I vaguely remember. I must have been really, really young when my brain was still forming, so I don't remember a lot of it. But the first show that I absolutely remember was 1978 uh, in Chehalis, Washington at the high school there. And on the card, this is an incredible, ridiculous array of talent. The main event was Rose and Wyskowski against Andre the Giant. Also <laughs> on the show. I know. Yeah, it was a fun match. They, you know, Andre sold a lot for them and they, you know, eventually Andre won, of course. But it was, I remember that having a lot of comedy and, and being a fun match. But on the card, Jesse Ventura, Jimmy Snuka, I believe Bull Ramos, um, Dutch Savage, obviously. On the undercard, Skip Young, uh, Steve Ols- Olsonowski as uh, Mark Hanna, and Gino Hernandez, a young babyface Gino Hernandez. So just a ridiculous <laughs> amount of talent on this show at a high school in a town of you know 8,000 people. We'll talk a little bit more about Portland as we get going with the show, but I am curious. I want to get back to your background. You mentioned a little bit about you talked to the LOD and Ellering when doing radio. Let's get there. How do you go from being a fan to getting involved as a broadcaster? So I just always, it was funny. I listened to Semper Vivi on your last episode talking about how much he loves radio and how much he loves wrestling. And I don't know if he was joking or not, but saying that he works a night shift and he's poor as crap just because he loves radio and wrestling so much. Uh, do you know where he lives? Because I think I want to call Child Protective Services. Oh, no, no, don't say that. Because <laughs> he, he just seems very unfit. I love Mike. No, like, Mike's a great guy. I don't think he gets enough credit. But yeah. um, I I loved radio, too. And and I got into radio, and I was in radio for, I don't know, 20-some-odd years. Um, it was all I wanted to do. It's funny. Uh, uh, earlier this year, I ran into one of my old teachers, and she was like, oh, you just knew what you wanted to do, and you were so focused. And I think she wanted me to like talk about how great it was to live my dream as opposed to all of the bull crap that I had to deal with in the, in the world of radio, the, <laughs> the long hours, the, the crappy shifts, the bosses who just rip you apart, the being a slave to a rating. And if you mess something up, you're gone. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a, it was a rough, rough business. Um, and you know, I'm glad I'm out and maybe if Mike would have gotten into it in earnest instead of just the observer, maybe he would not be as, I don't know, he'd have a decent job. He'd be better off. He'd have the big house on the east side, like like Ric Flair. But um, <laughs> so in the in ninety nine ninety eight, um, I moved to Portland, Oregon. I moved. I went to school in Eastern Washington. Uh, got some jobs in Spokane, Washington, and that was kind of the broadcast loop forever until not that long ago, where now you can go from market. 135 all the way up to New York because yeah. the pay structure is different and just the the whole demand of the job is different. But back then it wasn't uncommon to go from Spokane to Portland, Oregon, and then to Seattle. You kind of work your way up the ladder, and that's that's what I did. But my time in Portland, um, to get into Portland, I kind of took a pay cut, and so to supplement my income, I worked weekends, kind of running the board and helping out at a small station. And this station was in a house, and not even a nice house. But uh, the the people who owned the the house and everything, who had offices there, they uh, ran that incarnation of Portland Wrestling. They had bought the the licensing, which had kind of come down. They didn't buy it from Don Owen, but they bought it from the person, the person, the person who got it from Don Owen. But they were running Portland Wrestling. And so just by happenstance on this radio station, they had a weekend show. 
And one day as the working at this station, as just an employee of the station, I had to go in and run the board for this wrestling show. And this wrestling show was primarily people <laughs> who were in the, the indie Portland wrestling in character, cutting promos on each other and just... I'm sure it was fun for them, but I don't think, in all honesty, it was providing value to the promotion. It certainly wasn't really selling any tickets. It was just kind of there, and they didn't they didn't have it didn't have any structure. It was just kind of guys yelling and uh, trying to cut promos and just it wasn't real. So when I was running the board, a caller called up and asked, and this was a ridiculous question. Uh, the caller asked what Austin three sixteen meant. And this is 1999. <laughs> and the the Portland wrestling people are dogs in headlights. They don't know this. I mean, it was just three years earlier that this happened. Yeah. There's not yeah, there's not anybody listening to the show that couldn't answer this question. And I was kind of dumbfounded. And it wasn't my plan to get on the air. I was just gonna let them do their show no matter how much it pained me. But I jumped on the mic and I explained what happened, you know, the whole Austin 316 story that we all know. And I kept talking and just by chance, the owner heard it and he was like, you guys are off the show, Jim, you're on the show. And I decided to pivot the show away from all local talk to start doing national stuff. So while I was at working at the big station across town during the week, I would use that to score interviews with with real famous wrestlers. And this was, you know, Mick Foley's book had come out, so this was really the era when wrestling books were hot. So it wasn't that hard to score interviews. But I would pretend that I was recording the interviews for the real station, but in reality I was putting the interviews on a radio station that couldn't go all the way across the town of Portland, Oregon. And that was called Total Chaos. And for a time when I was on the torch, some of those old tapes are up. If you're a torch subscriber, they're still they're still up there. So I interviewed everybody at the time. Triple H, as I mentioned, I mentioned uh, all the Road Warriors. Uh, kind of a funny story with the Road Warriors. Um, Hawk, who everyone knows all about Hawk. Um, I contacted him and he was willing to do an interview and he was so nice. And he even gave me Animal's number. And at this time, you know, I, I'm guessing that, you know, they're doing indie shots all over. So I'm guessing they must live in the same town or live near each other or whatever. I don't know that Animal lives in Minnesota and Hawk lives in Florida. But um, so Hawk gives me that number and he's like, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll be on the show. So no shock. I call Hawk to be on the show during a commercial break and he's not there. He no shows. <laughs> and I think we, we can all guess probably why. But. I call Animal thinking, you know, they're probably not too far away from each other. He probably knows. Maybe they're hanging out together. And Animal doesn't know me from Adam, and he's in another state. And Animal was nice enough to go on the air and save my interview and and do a show. So I will always be eternally grateful. Hawk came back and uh, was on the next week, and he he even sent me like 10 autographed pictures because he felt so bad about everything. So how do you go from being a real broadcaster in the real world of radio where everyone goes broke to being a wrestling podcaster and a wrestling broadcaster beyond radio. when you're actually working for different websites and doing your own thing. How do you make that transition? I like to be on the air. This is fun. There's no, I mean, I get why Semper Vivi likes this. This is fun. I mean, that's why you do it. That's why everybody does it. I like to do this. I mean, I've done talk shows, political talk shows and things. Matter of fact, I filled in not that long ago for a friend of mine who works in Las Vegas. But to be honest, I just don't want to deal with the crap. You know, everybody 
it's like you can't just have a, a political opinion without like spending an hour defending it or on message boards defending it. So I look at this to be in this nice little siloed area of professional wrestling where we can talk about things, even have some opinions, but I don't have to get down and bog down and deal with the BS that is the the political arena these days. So I find out a nice way to have fun. I keep my skills sharp. I get to do production and, you know, use kind of my program director skills and things like that when I design the shows or come up with topics. But I can stay under all of that crap that happens with different topics and more serious issues. So I just find it a nice little bunker to be in. It's something I enjoy. And it's just a way to keep the skills sharp without having to deal with all of the the political crap that's out there. You mentioned the torch. We brought up Cauliflower Alley. You're at the Observer now. Talk about that. How do you end up where you are today? Um, okay, so I should give a shout out to uh, Scott Bowden, who I've never met. And uh, Kentucky Fried Wrestling is honestly, legitimately my favorite podcast. I love Kentucky Fried Wrestling. He will love hearing that. Uh, and again, I've never met the I've never met the guy. Um, I just like his delivery. That he's just kind of a little folksy. You know, he's like wrestling's Garrison Keeler without the grab ass. I'll tell you something. I don't know if I've said this on the show before, but I probably don't have as much fun with anyone else as I do with Scott Bowden just recording the wraparounds. We just laugh the whole time, and it's just a, it's just nonstop. He's one of the funniest people I've ever worked with. I get such a kick out of him, and I have such a good time working with him. I was listening to his show, and I was like, you know... I should do a Portland show. So I sort of, I don't want to say I stole the idea, but the inspiration was Kentucky Fried Wrestling for the Portland WrestleCast. And also, I had heard some other podcasts and some really, really smart people who got some things wrong about Portland Wrestling. I was listening to a a guy who's, again, I'm not going to mention names, but a guy who's smarter than me and probably knows a lot more. I know he knows more wrestling history than I do, but he thought on a podcast, he said that Portland, the Portland Territory, was an outlier territory. He had no idea that Don Owen was like an original member of the NWA and that the NWA champion, Fez and Briscoe and Race and Flair and, I mean, everybody came through Portland. The champion came through Portland once, twice a year. And and I was like, wow, if this guy who knows so much doesn't know that, then there's a, there's a gap out there. Yeah. So... I do. I also do the the Pacific Rim Pro Wrestling podcast with with my friend Fumi Saito, who's a a wrestling savant as well. And we just kind of did it on our own. I was I was in Japan in seventeen, and Fumi was like, "We got to do a podcast." The kids these days they listen to podcasts, and I want to reach them. And you know, he's very high minded when it comes to wrestling, and he wants to teach and he wants to pass this knowledge down. He's like, "We need to do a podcast." So I was like, "Okay, we'll do a podcast." So I mean, I just put it up on Podbean and. Um, there's still episodes up there if you search for them that are free. But I was like, well, I want to do another. I want to do the Portland WrestleCast, but I don't want to spend any more money on podcasts. <laughs> so I put it out on Twitter that I was looking for a home, and Meltzer messaged me, and I was like, holy cow! Well, I should do that. Uh, so that's how we ended up in the Observer, and then Fumi and Dave go way, way back. Oh, so yeah. then Dave, of course, was like, well, what about that? What about your show with Fumi? Why don't you bring that aboard? And so we we brought that aboard for subscribers, but that's how that's how this all ended up. And I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's like the most popular show on the Observer, but it certainly is getting some traction from what I understand. And there's been message board chatter where like a couple of people have said, you know, I didn't grow up with Portland, but I love this show because 
I'm learning about a territory that that I didn't know about. And I think really Portland, there's a few of them, but I think Portland, there's not a lot of knowledge about. So I'm really happy to kind of be providing knowledge. And to be honest, I feel like the clock is ticking. One of the people I've been trying to get a hold of, like, for example, Dick Beyer was in Portland and I'd been trying for a while to get an interview with Dick Beyer. And unfortunately, his health being what it was, I wasn't able to do that. Uh, just a few days ago, the brother of Lonnie Main, Sean Main, passed away. And again, I was trying to connect with him. Uh, so I'm just uh, trying to get this out there. And certainly, as you mentioned, there's there's things on YouTube and there's other stuff. But it does seem to be that this is the podcast era. And if you want to disseminate the information, the podcast is is the best way to do it. And that's that's what I'm trying to do. I need there's so much content out there. There's so many podcasts out there. And so I, rather than just doing a podcast where it's, hey, this is my opinion on wrestling, I figured I needed a niche. And there's probably no other Portland wrestling podcast that I'm aware of. I have certain broadcast skills and I and I saw a lot of it. So I just thought, you know, am I the the best historian in the world? No. Do I know the most about Portland wrestling? Oh no. But when you look at you know, who can format a show, who knows not to take too long and keep everything the right length and try to make it as entertaining and informative as possible. I, you know, I think that I was probably, you know, the, the best choice, not that there's that many people to pick from, but I really like the Portland WrestleCast. It's, it's my little thing that I can do. I mean, I have the podcast with Fumi and obviously we both have input on that. And I do the Wayback playback with Pat McNeil and he, you know, that's kind of his baby and he kind of drives that car. And I do the cauliflower alley club radio podcast. And obviously, you know, you got to take care of cauliflower alley. So this is my thing that I can do that. I don't have to check with anybody and, and it's just my little creative endeavor and, and, and I like it. And somehow I ended up with all these podcasts and I don't know how that happened. That wasn't the plan. It just sort of happened. I understand how that happens. Uh, you know, we're going to get going with the top 10 in a second, but I want to discuss with you something that actually recently was featured on your Portland wrestling podcast and you had sent it to me in advance. So I got to hear in advance of it because I don't traditionally listen to podcasts other than the ones I'm producing. I don't have time and usually I don't have interest because most people aren't good at it. I mean, you are, but most people, especially when you're, when it comes to putting history in the proper context, most people drop the ball and don't know what to ask, don't have any institutional knowledge. It just isn't worth it. So I don't listen to too much stuff. And you sent it to me and I gave it a listen. And I have to say, it was a pretty stunning interview. Uh, you had on your show Tony Ray Bourne, the sister of Matt Bourne, the daughter of Tough Tony Bourne, and the ex-wife of Buddy Rose. And it's kind of legendary. And legendary may not be the right term because it sounds more glowing using that word than it really is. But the stories have always been out there about Matt and Buddy fighting. About, well, let's be honest. We have Matt kicking Buddy's ass time and time again and about the problems that the office had with them there, even though in the midst of a lot of this, they worked together. There were constant problems with the two. And we always figured Buddy may have been mistreating Tony Ray. That may have been part of the issue. And Tony Ray, in this interview you did with her, and I could tell by listening to her that you weren't prepared for where she went because she was, I don't want to say casual, but she was open, I guess would be the best way to put it. She was very open to discussing all of this and what her life was like, but Tony Ray on your show went into pretty explicit detail about the beatings and the abuse 
that she suffered at the hands of Buddy Rose. What was that like for you? Because I know that you probably had a little bit of a hunch of some of what she went through, but to have her on the show so openly discussing all of this, when you're in that moment and you're conducting the interview and you have an idea of where you are and where you want to go, when a bomb like that is thrown into the interview, how do you react? I mean, I know how I react, but I want to get your perspective on this. How do you react? How do you keep your composure? How do you keep things together? And specific to this interview, what was that like for you? What was that moment and multiple moments like when she talked about this and you need to keep this thing going and you have to find a way to get back onto the path? I was stunned. You know, as you mentioned, the stories have been out there and living in Portland, people had talked about it. And even in the Buddy Rose obituary in The Observer, uh, Dave talks about a couple of incidents. Um, just to, just to back up, um, this happened on television. Buddy Rose came out on television in 1981 with his now wife, Tony Ray Bourne, and they had kind of been talking about it a little bit. Matt Bourne was fairly new to the business, and he was the good guy, and Buddy, of course, was the was the top bad guy. And he'd mentioned months before that, oh yeah, now Buddy Rose is dating my sister, but. You know, you don't know if that's real or if that's just a wrestling promo. But a few months later, he comes up into the crow's nest with Tony Rayborn, who we'd never seen on television before. And he's like, I'm dropping the Playboy off my name. I got married. This is Tony Rayborn. She's now Tony Ray Rose. And we're married and I love her and I'm going to stay with her forever. And to Matt... And to Tony, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, this is a business. And, you know, if I want the title, I'm going to go after the title. And that's the way it is. And if you want the title, I know you're going to do it. And that's the way it is. And, you know, Tony Ray gets on the microphone and talks about how she loves Buddy and and blah, blah, blah. And then and then they were then it was kind of done. And it was confusing because it's you know, it's not like now where people try to work the fans and work the smarks and throw things in to confuse people. But it, this was confusing. It's like, is this real? Is this, what, what, what is this? I don't know what this means. And they just kind of moved on. So you're like, okay, well, I guess this is real. And I had, I had the same question you did. How could um, Buddy and Matt work together? And so yeah. as I was, do, as I was doing this Portland WrestleCast and I don't really have a plan for it. I just kind of grab interviews wherever I can. And so it happened that my first interview was with Mr. Electricity from the AWA, Steve Regal. And Portland was one of his biggest territories. And he was there during the wedding. And I kind of talked to him about it. And he didn't, he didn't know that much. And then as I was watching tapes, I was like, oh yeah, Mike Masters was there. And I found him and he's now known as Rocky Jones. And he knew a lot about it uh, on the one of the epi second episode of the WrestleCast, maybe the third one. He talks about a confrontation in the dressing room between Buddy and Matt when they were breaking up. And Buddy was tormenting Matt Bourne saying like, your sister's a whore. And, you know, Matt was not the most balanced person in the world. I don't know why. <laughs> Why you would torment Matt Bourne? That's a really bad idea, especially when you're not a tough guy like Buddy Rose was not. But anyway, so I had heard all of these stories and I was always under the impression from what I heard that, yeah, there were issues that Buddy wasn't always the nice guy. But I wasn't aware that 
to be quite honest, Buddy beat the crap out of her. Yeah. I was always given the impression that that there were threats of violence. She called Matt. Matt came over and the violence happened between Buddy and Matt. And you know, I had part of the what you hear in that interview with Tony Ray is I kind of promoted, you know, oh, we're gonna have a big guest, we're gonna have a big guest, someone who's never talked because I don't think she's ever talked before. And had I known then what I know now, I wouldn't have promoted it that way. So I felt like a jerk and I still kind of feel like a jerk. But so we, we, we talked and, you know, she talked about Lonnie Maine and everything. And whenever you're dealing with it, with a sensitive subject, with, with, with someone who's, who's been victimized the way she has, you know, you want to be very careful. I mean, when I was in news radio, you know, I interviewed a lot of people in, in that situation. And, and so, I mean, I've been through it before. It never gets easier, but, you know, she talked about how they went out on their honeymoon. So they had just gotten married. They flew to Honolulu and Buddy blacked both of her eyes on their honeymoon. That was stunning. When she told that part of the story, I mean, any of the abuse is reprehensible and stunning. Yeah. But when she said it was on their honeymoon where it really got crazy, I was kind of blown away by that. I was just like, wow, this poor woman. What she had to go through. I mean, she, I felt like it was weird. And, and tell me how you felt. I felt listening to her like it was almost affecting me more now than her currently. Oh, definitely. I feel like she's kind of moved on like, okay, this is the bad stuff that happened in my life. And now I use it as a lesson for my daughters to tell them what to look for, what to stay away from, etc. She also mentioned something I didn't follow up with in the interview because you just don't know. You want to be as sensitive as you can. But she mentioned, she makes reference of it, uh, losing a job because of Buddy. Well, somebody heard the interview and messaged me and goes, oh, my gosh, Jim, I had forgotten. I worked with her when that happened. Oh, and wow. but Right? And Buddy came to the office and made a big scene and it got ugly at the office and she had to go. And other than her, when I, when I say this, I'm not talking about Tony Ray Bourne, but as she tells these stories, Nobody comes out looking good. Uh, she talks about how Matt Bourne tells her, her brother, her flesh and blood, her brother, tells her, hey, um, you're making trouble because I'm trying to make money with Buddy. Don't ruin this for me. Well, I'll tell you, forget about that even, because he was one of the people involved in everything, obviously. And, and again, that's a very flawed logic there. But I believe it was Sandy Barr in yep. that interview that she mentions. And I'll let you explain this right now, but I heard that. And, you know, I, I wish I could fly to the Pacific Northwest in that period of time and just hit him over the head with a blackjack <laughs> or whatever it is. I was yeah. so offended by that. But but explain what what exactly so she said. Sandy Barr was a was a wrestler for Don and he got injured and he became the referee and he was, you know, not a stupid referee. Sure, he could be fooled, but everybody loved Sandy Barr, the character, and everyone knew that justice would eventually be served under Sandy Barr. And he was also involved in the promotion. As a matter of fact, every Sunday after Portland wrestling ran at the sports arena, there was Sandy bars flea market. And it was this huge flea market. As a matter of fact, they didn't take the ring down. They left it up. And like the, the vendors would be hanging like t-shirts and stuff off of the ring ropes. Uh, I think the rock mentions uh, stealing a watch or something from the flea market in his, in his book. 
so Sandy Barr was intricate into the promotion, probably very much a leader, uh, probably, you know, he's office. And so she goes to Sandy Barr and says, hey, you know, look at my eyes. She takes off her sunglasses and Sandy Barr is like, look, you married him. You grew up in the business. You know what this is about. Deal with it. Jesus. That's so and, fucked up. That really is so fucked up. Yeah, it is. And I played it for my wife. And my wife grew up in the area. And she's a couple years younger than me, but not much. And I thought that she would be as shocked as I was. And she heard it. And she just kind of shrugged. And she was like, that just sounds like an abusive relationship in that era. And I was like, yeah, you're kind of you're kind of right. I mean, she felt bad for her, but she was like, that was not unusual. And it really wasn't. And people talk about, oh, we're living in sensitive times right now and victims have so much power and you could ruin a guy's life or blah, blah, blah. And I would point to what she went through as a reason for the way things are the way they are, because probably what happened to her is not that unusual for people in her situation, that it was really hard to find support, to get help. And to to get out of a situation like that. So, you know, I would rather have things the way they are now, which is not to say that they're perfect, but I'd rather have them like now than, than what she's what she went through. What she went through was was horrendous. And it's it's really hard because you know, Buddy has a lot of fans still in Portland. Buddy is still revered in Portland. And there were times when I was doing my show in Portland, I, I don't want to get into it, but there were times when, when I called buddy out on his, on his garbage that he would pull his carny crap. And a lot of people got mad at me. Um, you know, there are those type of, of people who are into celebrities or into wrestlers that wrestlers or celebrities or people in power can do no wrong. And just to hear what she went through was, was heartbreaking. I had no idea what I was getting into. And it was, it was awful. There was another story. Um, she, they're at their house and buddy is beating her up and she calls the cops and locks herself in the bathroom and the cops show up and they want her to come out of the locked bathroom. And she won't until her family shows up who she also called. And during this time between when the family showed up and she's waiting the cops who were there, who know she was beaten up, they know who did it. They ask Buddy for his autograph. That's so crazy. That's so, again, fucked up. Just so it's, fucked it, up. It was a completely different time, and I'm so glad that we've, it seems ridiculous that you, that this would even happen. You know, growing up, you think that, oh, we're so evolved and we're so much better than we were. And, you know, back then I, I thought we were. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that, you know, how could anyone have a slave or how could anyone discriminate against anyone from someone of color? You know, we were taught all of that stuff in school and I was on board immediately. You know, you grew up with, with Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers talking about all those things. And it's like, it's so simple to understand. And then you hear about stuff that happens in real life and you're just like, ah, that's a different world, man. Just a different world. And I'm glad that I'm glad she got away. I'm glad she's alive. And, you know, she's got a husband who she adores. She's got two daughters and, and she's lived a, lived a much better life. Thankfully. Thankfully. And uh, I encourage everyone to check out that interview. It's at wrestlingobserver.com. Really a, you know, I hate to push so hard an interview that deals with such a dark subject, but it's worth a listen. 
And, you know, there's one of those things that a lot of us have to deal with, which is the reevaluation of some of our favorite wrestlers when a lot of these stories come out, whether it's anti-Semitism, whether it's abuse, whatever it may be. And, you know, it's just it's one of those things with professional wrestling that the more you get into it, the more you dive into history, the more you find out some of these guys were not good guys. And it's not just the the personalities behind the scenes. You know, no. I do the way I do the way back playback with Pat McNeil, and it's a it's a watch along show. So we go back, and the fans pick the show and stuff. And that's a that's a free show. You can just search for way back playback. But um, you know, we watch certain things on the network or on YouTube and stuff. And I go back now through adult eyes. I mean, I remember as a kid. I thought the Adrian Adonis character, the adorable Adrian, was was embarrassing and ridiculous, and and I hated it. And I look back now and I watch stuff and I go, oh yeah, I didn't like that. And I go, oh yeah, I didn't like that. And sometimes, honestly, I question myself. I go, why did I compromise my values so much to watch wrestling? Well, Jim, let's continue to compromise your values right here and let's get going with the top ten. And of course. The Top 10 is brought to you by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsore Records, ramsorerecords.kungfustore.com. Enter the promo code 605 at checkout and save 20% on all purchases. But I actually have another link I want to tell everyone about today, facebook.com slash Records. That's the best place to get updates on all the Ramsore artists from the Avit brothers to the Ruin brothers. There's a lot of brothers over there. But once again, Facebook.com slash Ramsore Records, R-A-M-S-E-U-R. They support the Super Podcast, so support Ramsore Records. And actually, I want to mention another thing. There's a big show, and boy, I wish I was in Charlotte, because I would like to go to this. It is coming up on April 13th in Charlotte at the Evening Muse for the first time ever. The National Reserve and the Ruin Brothers are playing a show together. Of course, we have done segments on both of these bands. The Ruin Brothers, a longtime favorite here on the Super Podcast, especially of Hot Dog. And the National Reserve, we played some of their music before they had even put out their album here on the show. And I think they're fantastic. So that's a great bill. If you are in the area of Charlotte, North Carolina on April 13th, check this show out at the Evening Muse. Once again, the National Reserve and the Ruin Brothers for the first time ever. And you can get more information about that as well as all Ramsore Records artists at facebook.com slash Ramsore Records. But with that, Jim, let's get going with the top 10 at number 10 this week. Jim. Jim. Are yes, Shockmaster. I mean, Black there? Scorpion. Do you remember? 2017. I... Tokyo. Ribera Steakhouse. I actually went to Bull Nakano's restaurant in, uh, in Bar and Killer Khan's restaurant in 2017. Don't ruin the bit. I'm sorry. Do you remember Bull Nakano's restaurant? 2017. <laughs> How was the food? Uh, it's actually a bar. Uh, it's a really small bar. She just closed it, as a matter of fact. No. Yeah, I think she's got other projects to do. I wouldn't be surprised if she's got something bigger and better coming up. Kurt Brown. That's her bigger project to do. How was <laughs> Killer Khan's restaurant? Killer, Killer Khan's has awesome food. It's really good food, and he's there all the time. So, And he's got an awesome T-shirt. 
with his face on it. He's standing there. Uh, the T-shirt is great. You get uh, like a water bottle uh, to pour water, still water, and it's got his logo on it with Killer Khan. He's got pictures all around, and he'll autograph pictures, and he's a super cool guy. It's an awesome experience. Forget Ribera Steakhouse. Go to Killer Khan's restaurant. You know, at the last, at the last Charlotte Fan Fest that they did a couple of years ago, they roasted Ole Anderson, and the whole time, not one mention of the Black Scorpion. How do you do that? Amateurs. Yes. Well, at number 10, it's the Black Scorpion, in case you didn't figure it out. It hasn't been on the show in a while, so it's nice to see a return in the voting from the Black Scorpion. You know, I mentioned Tokyo. I have to say, Jim... You're great to have on the show. You're a very annoying person on social media, only because <laughs> it seems like you take a vacation every vacation. I've seen pictures of you in Japan, in Mexico. I think I saw one with a snorkel. I've seen you in all these different places. How many of these trips that you're taking do you get to actually experience wrestling? Do you get to see wrestling in different environments? Yeah, I married really well. <laughs> um the secret is, is that my wife is a superstar in the travel business. I'm really kind of like you, Brian. I'm a trophy husband. So that's <laughs> why I got to look this good. Um, no, but no, my wife is a superstar in the travel industry. So she always is booking stuff for us. Um, and she's been nice enough to at times. Actually, my wife probably would make a lot of people listening to this show jealous. Um, she's seen Misawa wrestle. Get um, out of here. Where? In Tokyo? Uh, yeah, in 07, when I first met Fumi and we first went to Tokyo, uh, Fumi's like, where do you want to go? And he was like pitching me all these indie shows. And I'm like, nope, I want to go see Misawa. And obviously now, given everything, I'm so glad that we did. But yeah, we went to go see Noah at Differariaki, which is also gone now. And yeah. so, yeah, we saw, we saw, um, so, I mean, he didn't do anything, but I saw him. He was just in a six-man tag uh, you know, in for a couple of spots and then out. Just a very traditional, very typical, you know, kind of a house show run in Tokyo at Differariaki. But also on the show was a young pre-WWE Ted DiBiase Jr. And he was great. He people, showed People thought he was going to be a star, if you remember. They thought he was going to be one of the big breakout stars of this decade that we're currently in, actually. If you would have asked me that night he was so charismatic and he had the crowd in the palm of his hand he was doing you know the the ted dibiase that falling punch that db that his dad did he he was so entertaining and i i think it's sort of like like harry smith i think he just got different direction and and couldn't deal with it i think he was a guy that maybe maybe should have stayed stayed in japan but he was he was so good that night, and it was so disappointing with with everything that happened. I mean, Cody Rhodes, you know, he was able to kind of get out from under that and do his own thing now and prove himself, and maybe in a different time, better timing, the, the same could have happened to, to Ted DiBiase Jr. What are some of the other places that are interesting that you've seen wrestling in, let's oh say, the God. last couple of years at least? Oh, my God. I've been so lucky. Do you realize, like, since last November, I just by chance, and I haven't planned any of this out. This just happened. This is the only good part of my life. Um, we went to Mexico City and saw last November we went to Arena Mexico and saw CMLL in Arena Mexico. And if you can, if you have the means and you love wrestling, go to Arena Mexico. 
the most fun experience I have had at a wrestling show decade in decades, probably. So much fun. Do you feel safe in Mexico City? Because that's always one of the big things I've been in, uh, afraid of when it comes to traveling. You know, I'm not like I'm really going to be doing that now, but in the past when I have thought about it, you hear so much about the violence in Mexico City. Did you feel safe going from your hotel to Arena Mexico and back? Absolutely. Um, you know, we had even, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, someone who never goes anywhere post on Facebook that they saw, you know, on the news that, oh, there was someone shot in Mexico. I'm never going to that country. But uh, we had, we had even people who are who are Mexicanos who live in Mexico City were like, yeah, you probably shouldn't go by yourself. And I was like, oh, okay, well, if they tell me that, so we ended up booking that. You know, um, CMLL is awesome, but it's also kind of a tourist thing. You can book a tour easy. There are tours, so you can be taken there, and that's what we did. But once we were there, I was like, this is completely fine. So you show up. And it's this, you know, this super old building and it doesn't look like a circle or a dome or anything. It's just a, like a brick building. And outside the arena on the sidewalk are all of these pop-up tents, probably 20 pop-up tents. And they have got so much merchandise. They have got dolls and t-shirts and plastic championship belts. And of course the masks, they have got really super expensive masks and mid range masks and cheap masks, and they've got pins and they've got coffee cups and they've got bobbleheads. They've got sweatshirts. They've got baseball caps. They have like a giant mask, maybe the size that could fit a fit a like for decoration that could fit maybe like a beach ball. Uh, I'm not even touching. I haven't even scratched the surface of how much merchandise is there and you show up and there are like all of these working class Mexican families there. It's like going to the circus in a good way. Like the kids are wearing the masks and the dads are wearing masks. And, you know, even the moms, some of them are wearing, you know, like, you know, Fabi Apache stuff or whatever. It's so much fun. And all of the stuff is reasonably priced like seven bucks for something. And, you know, the tickets aren't very expensive. And it was so refreshing. You know, here in America, you know, everything is expensive. You want to go see football, it's 500 bucks for a family. Or go to Disney on Ice, it's several hundred dollars. And all of the merchandise is designed to fleece you. And it was just so refreshing to see uh, an event that, that, you know, the tickets were, I don't know, 15 bucks maybe. Something like that for ringside, 20 bucks for ringside. And then all of the merchandise was priced for families and, and everybody's walking around and they're talking and they're having a great time looking at all the cool stuff. And then you go inside and people talk about, oh, like you listen to Conan and he'll say, you know, CMLL is an old product and they need to update their product. But after going and seeing it in person, I never want CMLL to change. Yeah, I, agree. I, yeah. I never wanted to change. It was so much fun. And like the, the, the wrestlers would go out and do the match and the crowd, I mean, the crowd knows they're not stupid. They know that it's a show, but in the moment they're cheering their favorites and booing the bad guys. And you know, when the match is done, the guys go up the ramp and they'll stop and take a picture with somebody or sign an autograph. It's just a fun environment and it really is magical. It will, if you're kind of burned out on some of the stuff like I talked about, it will reinvigorate some of that magic that maybe you lost 
for pro wrestling. And, you know, you can say, oh, Lucha is fake or Lucha is, but in the moment, it is really exciting. Um, my wife, you know, she tolerates wrestling, but uh, her favorite wrestler was there, and that was Kay Monito. The, the little green monkey, the little blue monkey. I thought you were going to say Negro Casas, but okay. Yeah, yeah and he came out, <laughs> you know, he was there, which was awesome. Um, and, you know, one of the things, seeing it in person, which is different, is there was one guy that I totally was asleep on who is a star. And it didn't even, I don't know why I didn't notice. Maybe he just comes off different on TV. Maybe I'm just not paying attention or I'm dumb. But Volador Jr. is oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. He was amazing. Cavernario was great. Just everything was just, it's such a fun show. Um, they also, if, if you like beer, they, you don't go to the, <laughs> you don't go to the concession stands. I don't think from what I saw, but they have people in white coats that bring you everything. So at the end of the rows, there are like these cases of beer and people will run and grab it and you tip them and they, you know, you settle up at the end of the night, but they're, they're, they're running stuff back and forth. Uh, all night long and i'm guessing that they're you know probably get paid by tips and everything but it's such a fun experience i loved it so so much if you can hear the excitement in my voice if you have the means to go i would encourage you to go it was super fun well let me ask you this as someone who has traveled so extensively and gone to wrestling in various parts of the world let alone various parts of the united states how would you compare and contrast the makeup of the audience in the arena Mexico versus the crowds that you're seeing at other shows. Were you getting more old people, more families? What was the audience like? It was a lot of, uh, from what I could see, a lot of young families, um, a lot of boyfriends and girlfriends seemed to go. I mean, I think by makeup, I would say that there's probably more women there than there was, for example, like in an average WWE or ring of honor or any other type of, you know, really hardcore wrestling show here here in the United States. But what, I think what I'm trying to get across is the vibe was just so much fun that everyone there is having a great time. And there, again, I'm sure people, there are probably some smart fans there and probably some people who are just there because they're tourists and they're watching Nacho Libre, they think, jump around and they're enjoying it in that regard. But everybody's on the same page. When when bad guys did something, they'd go to the crowd and go to the crowd and they would get booed. And the good guys would get cheered. And it's just, it was just so much fun because, again, the, the price point, no one's trying to fleece you. And everybody is just having a great time. And the and the, the guys put on a on the, the men and women put on a put on a great performance. I I loved it so much more than I expected. That's number 10 in the top 10, The Black Scorpion. Let me turn this off. <laughs> it's still making noise. Uh, at number nine this week in the top 10, the always popular yet still mysterious Brother Midnight. Baby, baby. Have you ever encountered Brother Midnight in your wrestling travels, Jim? Uh, not that I know of, only here on the, the 605 Super Podcast. Any, do you have any favorites, guys who, you know, you're talking about Portland wrestling. There are so many guys that we know. We know Buddy Rose, we know Roddy Piper, we know Dutch Savage, and so many others. Do you have a favorite unheralded Portland wrestling star? Someone that you watched and you really like, but you don't hear people outside of Portland talk about. You know, Jonathan Boyd was really great. Uh, Jonathan Boyd with hair had a great way of just looking at the camera and almost looking through you. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
I remember uh, Buddy Rose one time, I think, made a joke about, you know, I could eat a you know, bowl of soup off of Jonathan Boyd's head. And because he was so good at it, or maybe because I was a kid and I was probably still shorter than Jonathan Boyd, I didn't realize that, you know, he's like Taz's size, you know, a smaller guy. Yeah. He was able to project, you know, being big and being strong. And, you know, you believed that he was going to going to going to kick butt. You know, another guy, as I go back and watch things, Rip Oliver, and I'm not going to sit here and say that he should have gotten a better shake in the WWF or something, but he's a really good promo. And you you look back now and you can kind of see the psychology of what he did. And I think I think he's he's underappreciated again, not to say that he's like a like a world championship caliber guy, but he's probably underappreciated. Let me flip the script now and go the other way. Unpopular opinion. You know who I did not like in Portland wrestling? Uh Uh-oh. And I think this may be a sacred (laughs) cow here on the 605. Chris Colt. Really? Why? Now, Chris Colt was gay. And at the time, I didn't know that. So this has nothing to do with any of that. And even if he, even if I did, it wouldn't make a difference. Homosexual GM. <laughs> I'm sorry. You set that up too perfectly. I did. <laughs> Go ahead. But anyway, just the character, Chris Colt, I thought he looked so dirty and second rate and just trashy. His gear didn't match. He just looked grungy. I mean, he looked unclean. And well, in the reality, he was unclean because he didn't, you know, have very good hygiene. And I just thought it it reflected. And I just he wasn't that big. He always kind of got cheap heat and his gear looked like garbage. And I just thought he was terrible for a time, for a brief period of time, a cup of coffee. He was Portland's top heel where uh, Buddy Rose had the army and Rip Oliver had the clan. Chris Cold had the mafia. And it was just, I don't, I just, I just thought he looked terrible. I just, I didn't like him. I know Dean Silverstone loves him and talks in his book about how much money that Chris Colt drew for him when he was promoting. And I'm sure that's the case. And I don't begrudge anybody, but I just thought Chris Colt was dingy. He looked like a, like a mangy dog. Did you ever get to see Dean Silverstone's company, Superstar Wrestling? No, I never even knew about it probably until like 2000. I did not know about it at all, ever. So, I mean, you knew about certain things that were happening in Seattle, but that was too under the radar. Actually, it may have been, I'm trying to remember when they closed down, they may have already been gone by the time you got into wrestling. Pretty close, yeah, pretty close. Well, that's number nine in the top ten, Brother Midnight. The regulator, innovator, dominator, creator, updater, the imitator, assassinator, baby. Well, we can't top that. At number eight in the top ten, homosexual Jim. It's the old lady, Mrs. Spencer. Hey, stupid. There we go. Jim, any thoughts on Mrs. Spencer, the old lady? Obviously, you know the story. Dennis Carluzzo tried to call Jim Cornette in Morristown, Tennessee, dialed one number wrong, and got Mrs. Spencer, who just was not having it. One of the things I love about the 605 is that you have taken, not taken, but you have raised the awareness of many of the things that were only known by tape traders. You know, when a lot of the tape trading was going on, I was in college, I was starting out in radio, so I didn't have the time or the means to to do all of those things. So there's a whole culture that is awesome. And so many promos that were cult classics with that group of people. And now I feel like I'm up to speed on all the things that I missed out on because of you and what you've done here on the 605 Super Podcast. I just want to point out that you avoided answering the question 
What are your thoughts on Mrs. Spencer? I, I, I understand why you don't want to give a firm answer there, but I still have to ask again. Uh, you know, she just... Uh... I don't know. I mean, she just sounds like any old lady from my childhood when you piss them off, to be honest. I mean, I've had old ladies when I was a young kid and you do something stupid, you don't even realize it. That's the way they talked and they would just yell at you. Uh, you know, that's kind of the difference probably between growing up now and then is that when you got yelled at as a kid back then, uh, it was your fault. And now when someone raises their voice, it's their fault, no matter what the person did or the reason why they raised their voice. And I'm not saying that's for better or for worse. I'm just saying it's a it's a difference. But I mean, I, th I think she's hilarious. And I'm I'm sure that her family is happy that she's still immortalized. She's like an audio meme here on the 605 Super Podcast. Go to hell, you motherfucking son of a bitch. She didn't really take too kindly to you, Jim, but here at number eight in the top ten, it's the old lady, Mrs. Spencer. Who are you and what do you want? At number seven this week in the top ten, one of the long-standing popular characters here in the top ten, and that is none other than orgasmic Larry Nelson. No, I... And now the short form. No, what's the stipulation? Are we having fun, people? Jim, are you a Larry Nelson fan? Looking back, you know, Larry Nelson <laughs> didn't really strike me at the time. I think I was more wrapped up at that age of just how terrible the AWA was and all the old man stuff that Vern Gagne booked and just how out of touch they were and how frustrating it was. Because, I mean, I loved wrestling and I wanted wrestling to be successful. And there's always this thing about wrestling is the promoters are always a little bit behind the times. They're never quite with the times. And Vern was so far behind. I was think I was focused on that. But looking back now, you know, Larry Nelson is actually a pretty good broadcaster. He's, you know, he speaks to the audience. He's not he's not announcing at you. Hey, fans, we'll be back again next week here on the AWA. Hey, fans, we're out of time. Uh, you know, he's just talking to you, and that's what, honestly, that's what good broadcasters are supposed to do. It's a it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation. For me personally, because of when I started and what was hammered into my head by my broadcasting mentors, and this doesn't matter now because everybody does it. I know that. But when someone says, hey, you guys, or hey, everybody, it's like, no, you're not talking to everyone because no one is gathered around, you know, their device listening to any podcast. It's one on one. They're one person, you know, listening in the car or listening while they're on the treadmill. There's not, you know, it's not the old days where the family gathered around to listen to Arthur Godfrey. So for me personally, as a broadcaster, that's that's a pet peeve. But no, I think I think Larry Nelson was good. And, you know, you could say that maybe he shouldn't have had a had a beard and maybe, you know, maybe some slick back hair, some optical things. But, you know, he talked to the fans. He never talked down to you. And, yeah, he had to sell some stuff like, you know, watch out, Baron Von Raschke. You know, he had to stooge at times. But, you know, all announcers had to do that. Speaking of Portland wrestling, obviously, Frank Bonema is still spoken about fondly today and unfortunately passed away rather early. Beyond Frank Bonema, do you have a favorite Portland wrestling commentator? Well, the only one who um, who followed him was Don Koss. And Don was Don was, you know, different. Don played, you know, the the fan who doesn't know what's going on. So he, you know, shamelessly rooted for the baby faces and, you know, was fooled all the time. and. I was actually for the for the iteration of Portland wrestling that was in the 2000s. I got to do some commentary with with Don Koss, and when I met Don Koss, it's like 
he's a really sharp, savvy business guy. And he's a, a nice guy. And the fact that he was able to convincingly play this, this I don't know if I call it a character, but this persona really speaks to to how good he was. Did you know this? This is, maybe I'm putting myself over here. I auditioned. I was flown out to the WWE for an audition to be an announcer. No, get out of here. When was that? Tell me about that. Uh, That was 2003. This is an absolutely true story. Because of the situation, it's a weird story. Um, It's a little long. I can go into it. We can save it for another time. I can't effectively shorten it because it's so circular in its nature. I will warn you. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll tell you what. We will save that for next time because that gives me another reason to have you back on. Love it. And uh, we are short on time. So so at number seven in the top 10, orgasmic, Larry Nelson. Look out, Baron Von Reisky! Oh, Jesus! At number six this week in this ridiculous top 10, it's Kevin. Hey, Jim Valley. Hey, Kevin, how are you, man? Oh, gosh, you got any cocaine? When you were in Tokyo, did you see all those temples they built for my dad? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. He invented the claw, and now Godzilla uses the claw. How many cats did you kill when you were there? Any saw blades? Or I, I, no, I love, I love my cat. I have a cat, Sherman, and he's, he's like one of my best friends, so no, I would never do that to a cat. You know, speaking of valleys, I remember one time, gosh, Pop went away, and me and Carrie and Dave went into a valley and ate a bunch of mushrooms. Then we killed some cats. Just another day in paradise on the Von Eric Ranch. Hey, um, you know, uh, Kevin, yeah. I've got a friend. He, uh, Dave Meltzer calls him Scotland's leading historian. His name is uh, Bradley Craig. He helped co-write Jeannie Clark's book. Oh, yeah. And he does an incredible impression of you. Maybe what? sometime you guys, you should have Kevin and you should, or Kevin, you should talk to Bradley and see if he could have, uh, do his Kevin impersonation of you and you guys could do like a dueling Kevin. Oh, we'll see. I don't know. I don't deal too much with these, uh, secular folks. Uh, does he know what Austin 316 means? <laughs> Nobody does. It's a mystery that will never be solved. <laughs> There's a lot of those with the Von Erics. And number six this week in the top 10. It's Kevin. Have you had any interactions or run-ins with Kevin Von Erich? I've never met Kevin Von Erich. Um, you know, I mean, I'm glad that he's alive. I'm glad that uh, he's able to to persevere despite all of the tragedies, let's just call it that. Um, you know, I wonder, maybe maybe for next time when you when you have Kevin, you know, all this stuff happening with uh, with Kofi Kingston, I wonder what it, what he thinks about this revival of Kofi Kingston after his uh, speech at the Hall of Fame, if you remember talking about the... Oh, yeah, he's one of those new gay guys. <laughs> yeah, 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 I wonder, I wonder if Kevin's been watching the... the have you been watching uh, Kofi Kingston on SmackDown at all? I haven't. Do they have Ralph Pulley doing the ring introductions for the gay guys? <laughs> Talk about terrible announcers, Ralph Pulley. <laughs> he wasn't. No, Ralph is, there was no some, he was fine. There, <laughs> you just you just said he's terrible. I was thinking like, of. Oh, no, uh, I was fine. No, 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 I was thinking of uh, um, <laughs> Bill Mercer, not Ralph Pulley. But you see, Bill Mercer, as a traditional wrestling commentator, he's terrible. But if you can get past that, <laughs> if, you can, if you can somehow get past that, to me, Bill Mercer's a step up from the Ed Waylands of the world, because or Rod Trongard. Rod Trongard's awful, but Ed Whalen to me is the is the bottom of the barrel in terms of like the classic era wrestling announcers. Nowadays, there's a lot of guys that are really bad, but Ed Whalen for that period of time was really awful. 
But Bill Mercer gets tagged with that too. And look, I understand he either didn't know the names of the holds or he just made up the names of the holds or he sometimes just wasn't calling what, like, he's not very good as a play-by-play guy. But I guess because of his voice, because of the seriousness he puts into it, I do like Bill Mercer. I I actually am a Bill Mercer fan. I'm going to go on the record here. He's very homespun. He's very he's he's very homespun. Or he could just do what Rod Trongard did and literally call every move a body slam. <laughs> that's an, that's another way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Just call everything a body slam. Everything a backward body slam, a forward body slam. Everything was a body slam. Rich Mancuso used to have a a spot on WFAN when I was a kid here in New York at like three o'clock in the morning. I think on Saturday nights. Jody McDonald, who was the regular overnight host, the son of uh, Joe McDonald, the former GM for the Mets, Jody would let Rich Mancuso, because they were friends, come on the air and do like an hour in the middle of the night on wrestling. And it lit up the station. Like the phone lines would light up. It was a really big thing because wrestling fans, especially then, like 1990, 19, you know, that, that period of time, if you find out there's an opportunity to talk wrestling or hear other people talk wrestling, you will wake up in the middle of the night, even if you're a 10 year old kid just to hear and pick up on something, some information, some news, some rumor, whatever it is. And yeah. every single person that would call in, they would say, uh, whoever it was, Rich Mancuso, would, they would talk to Rich, and they would say, hey, Rich, uh, whatever happened to, it, it could be whoever, it could be uh, whatever happened to Shane Douglas. And it was either he's in Canada, he's in Japan, or I don't know. Like he, ne- <laughs> like he never accurately explained I don't actually think he was a wrestling expert in any possible way. I don't think he really knew anything about professional wrestling, but he was friends with Jody McDonald and he liked wrestling. So that was enough. Yeah. um, I remember like in the nineties, I had that. Did you ever have the cable radio network? No, but I remember it. Yeah. So Saturday nights, I think it was, there was a guy, I think it was out of California named the shadow. Yes. And Mike Mike Lano took over that show. Okay, I didn't hear that. I only heard the shadow. And he was, he was, you know, he, he was, you know, he's, he was fine. I mean, I, I, you know, he was, he was perfectly fine. Nothing against the shadow wherever he is. But yeah, I would like postpone going out with my girlfriend just so I could listen to the cable radio network and the squared circle or whatever that was, just so I could hear, you know, this, this radio show. My dad always had really great stereo equipment because he's a, he loves music and he loves radio. So when I was, I guess, like 12 or 13, I became aware of the Wrestling Insiders radio show hosted by Mike Tenay. And it wasn't anywhere near me on Long Island. I think it came out of maybe, I mean, it was out of Las Vegas, but I think the closest possible place to pick it up from was either Buffalo or Albany or Syracuse, someplace in upstate New York. And you couldn't get it very often. But every now and then, my dad always knew, you know, which nights were good to get signals from someplace that wasn't 50,000 watts. You know, my dad always knew this stuff. And on some nights, you'd be able to pull it in. And I remember when Kevin Von Erich called in, actually. I mean, funny enough, we bring that up. But that was a big deal at the time. It was right after Kerry died, I think. And he wasn't doing too many interviews. I remember various things they had on there. It was so cool. Just It was such a big deal beyond John Arezzi, who aired in New York, to be able to hear something from out of town talking wrestling it was such a big deal to me well i remember uh you know when i was like in junior high and stuff and you know cable is growing and wrestling is cheap programming so you know there were more and more programs and suddenly i got it into my mind that you know what i need to do i need to make it a goal that i need to watch every wrestling program during the week 
And so, you know, some of it was on at two in the morning and three in the morning. And and I didn't make that goal every week. But for some reason, I tried uh, for probably way, way, way too long. Oh, let me tell you, there's a tape somewhere from when I was 12 years old and I tried to tape everything I could see that wasn't WWF because I had separate tapes for just WCW and WWF. But there was a while in New York, we had IWCCW, and then we had the IWF out of Orlando, Eddie Mansfield's group. That was great. That was airing here. I really liked it at the time, but it was also, I was 12. It was when I first started really getting into like late night showtime. So there's a videotape somewhere of like Chubby MC and the Long Riders and the bullshit demolition and Eddie Mansfield cut in with like ski school and like all these like various late night movies from Showtime. So it's like boobs and Eddie Mansfield. I got to <laughs> find hilarious. that tape. It's probably at my dad's yeah. right uh, now. <laughs> true story. You mentioned uh, the, the late night Skinamax programs. I graduated. I don't know her very well, but I graduated with a girl who was the lead in bikini car wash. I wow. think maybe bikini car wash company. One of those two. I don't know. But it was just kind of funny when, you know, you don't expect to see someone you went to school with and, hey, look at that. She's topless on cable at two in the morning. Now, when you do something like that, do you still get like inducted into your school's Hall of Fame? You know, they did do a story on her in the local newspaper. I mean, good for her. Yeah, um, I'm not saying it's anything wrong with taking. Yeah, I'm not taking. I'm not taking. I mean, yeah. you, you you go down to Hollywood and you get in, you know, movies that actually get distributed. I mean, that's really ser- sincerely an accomplishment. That, you know, you do have, I mean, to have any sort of career in Hollywood is, is really beating the odds. So, I mean, to a degree, she, she really did. So, no, I thought it was cool that, you know, they did a, they did a story on her and everything, but it's just so funny that, you know, like in high school, you're like, oh, this is the super pretty girl and everything. And I don't know that, and she was very pretty, but I don't know that anyone, if you were to peg who was going to go to Hollywood and become a starlet for a brief time, that she would have been the one, but good for her. Good for her. You know, Bikini Car Wash is something still talked about uh, nowhere, but except here on the Super Podcast. It's it's either Bikini Car Wash or Bikini Car Wash Company. I don't remember. Do you remember Malibu Express? That was good because that was from like the 80s. That was from like 84, 85. So it felt much older than all the Dean Cameron stuff and everything else that was on Showtime late at night. And it looked like he was even older than it was, but it was about this guy Cody and he's like a detective, and it's nothing but like women naked for no good reason, and playmates getting their first acting gigs, and the guy who played Nick the Dick from Bachelor Party, Mr. Nicholas in the strip club, Malibu Express, I own it on DVD, actually, because <laughs> I said, I, one day I, I said, I gotta get this, because I remember it a certain way, I have to watch it to see if it's what I remember, and it's exactly what I fucking remember. So what you're saying is, is that your favorite tag team is Malibu Express. Sybil Denning is one of the stars of the movie. People may forget her. She was like a sex symbol for a brief time there uh, in the 1980s, especially. You know, I think I think one of the reasons for my wrestling fandom is that, as if you couldn't tell, uh, I wasn't really supervised as a child. And, <laughs> and I don't know if it's because my parents didn't love me or what, but, you know, I go back now and I see, you know, you talk about these movies and stuff. And at the time I was like, oh, who cares? It's just boobs. It's not a big deal. And I don't know if maybe I'm right or just we're in different times now, but I go back and watch that stuff. I was like, I should not have been watching this. This is a, this is a really bad influence. I got Porky's on DVD not too long ago, a couple oh, of God, years yeah. ago. And I said, how the fuck did I watch this when I was a kid? Right. And I deal with it now with my kids because I always want to show them, not Porky's, but I always want to show them stuff from the 80s, like stuff that I think of as innocent. And Suzanne will be like, no, when was the last time you watched 
whatever it is, you know, Ferris Bueller or, you know, Goonies or something. Well, you know, it's been a while. Go watch it first. And you're like, well, there's two fucks and a shit. You know, there's a pair of boobs, whatever it may be. Right. You know, Revenge of the Nerds. Oh, my God. (laughs) That was my favorite fucking movie when I was a kid. And that movie, I don't you watch it now. It's like, holy fucking shit. Every scene is offensive to everyone. Well, and those were the good guys. Yeah. The good guys commit rape. The good guys are doing all of these terrible things. Like even the end, even like the big happy ending where like the uh, jocks are going to beat up Gilbert, I think, on the stage while the coach is like yelling at, and Bernie Casey comes out, UN Jefferson, and he says, hold it, coach, hold it right there. And then that's like the big ending of the movie. The black guys come to save the skinny white guys because all the jocks are scared of the big black guy. It was so racist. Yeah. And that's like not even the worst thing. Of course, you mentioned the the weird date rape thing. It's not even a date rape thing. It's a mistaken identity rape thing. There's also the surveillance of the women yeah. in, their, in right. their fucking dorm room. Every single scene in that movie wouldn't work today. Yet I, I do right. still love that movie. I have to. Say. And again, this is the heroes of the movie doing this. At number six this week in the top ten, Sybil Danning. I mean Kevin. <laughs> at number five this week in the top 10 is a man who is usually short on words and i'm assuming doesn't have much to say this week i haven't spoken to him yet we're gonna plug that into the show but let's now go to number five in the top 10 cranky barista ken patera here at number five this week in the top 10 it's cranky barista ken patera and i believe he's with us right now cranky barista ken patera are you there number five isn't that something? Yes, number five in the top ten this week. Are you going to order something? Order something? I'm not twisting your arm or anything, pal, but this is a place of business. Five out of ten, is that right? Well, I'll be. You know, that reminds me of something that we used to say back in Vern Gagne's wrestling camp many, many years ago. What's that? That's an old saying. Fuck you, asshole. <laughs> How about that, huh? <laughs> was that the ending now go drown yourself dipshit lose this number there he is number five in the top 10 cranky barista ken patera and it seems that he's getting crankier by the week very similar i guess to the real ken patera but we'll find out more next time in the top 10 at number four this week one of the all-time greats of the super universe, it's disappointed Lance Russell. Ah! you get that stupid pool out of here? Hey Jim, when did you first discover Memphis wrestling, and do you have a favorite Lance Russell moment or memory? You're a broadcaster. What do you think of him as a broadcaster? But again, beyond that, favorite Lance Russell moment and memory. Lance Russell is the greatest of all time. I used to be growing up a Gordon Soley guy, and obviously. Uh, during his peak years, I thought Jim Ross did a great job. But now that I've seen on YouTube so much of, I think I've gone through all of the years that are on YouTube of Memphis wrestling. I believe that Lance is the greatest announcer of all time. When did you first see Memphis wrestling? Oh God. I mean, I remember I was actually home where I was in front of the television the night that Jerry Lawler was on Letterman when that whole thing with Andy Kaufman happened. So I saw it unfold on television. So that's 82. Yeah. So I was a big, I was a big Letterman fan in the magazines. 
I don't think I – I think that was the first time I, like, saw Jerry Lawler. I knew of him through the magazines, but I didn't like him because sort of like Chris Colt, I thought he looked – I thought the pictures of him looked low rent. I didn't like his little goatee beard. I just thought that he was – I just, I just didn't, I just, he just didn't physically uh, appeal to me. I didn't think he was, he just, I don't know. I just didn't like him. Uh, now that I see it all and I saw it years ago, binging all of it on YouTube. I think, you know, Lawler is, is, is a genius when it comes to his promos. He knows what to say at the right time, but getting back to Lance, you know, no, he didn't call all of the moves kind of like we criticize some other people for, but Lance was a genius at explaining situations and the psychology of what was happening in the ring and kind of the dynamics of feuds and, you know, why maybe this guy won and this guy didn't. You know, he was really good at just the human aspect of wrestling. And you could tell that he did come from radio with his descriptions. You could tell that he did things outside of wrestling beforehand. And I was so lucky a couple of years ago when he was at he was at Cauliflower Alley Club I I messaged his son Shane and I was like hey could I could I get an interview with your dad and I got about a half an hour in my room recording with Lance Russell um I have it up on my SoundCloud I can tweet that out maybe for people but yeah. I love the interview and I love 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 Lance Russell because there's all of this ridiculous coming around and he is able to somehow stay above the fray. He's able to somehow make sense of all of the insanity and the goofiness of Memphis wrestling. And I just, he's just brilliant. You know, you talk, we played the stuff from, from Larry Nelson where he's like, oh, geez, oh, criminy and oh, whatever. And, you know, when I did some of my announcing for, for wrestling, sometimes you would catch yourself doing that where maybe you yell and you emote too much for a situation. Uh, there was one time where there was an interview I was doing and the, the script was the, some wrestler was supposed to come in, jump him. And then I think like mimic that they were cutting him or something like that. Maybe I'm wrong, but a very violent situation. And I had to remind myself, okay, Jim, don't take away from this situation. Don't go, Oh geez. Oh crime and or what are you doing? Or something like that. And I just didn't say anything and I let it breathe and it worked perfectly. And Lance was a master at that. When someone needed help who wasn't good on interviews, Lance was very good at kind of gently moving them along. When he didn't need to be in the situation, he was able to back away or he was able to explain it or he was indignant without being overly ridiculous. He just had this perfect, soft touch. And I just think that he was the greatest of all time. And how disappointed do you think he would be that you compared Jerry Lawler to being low rent like Chris Colt? Well, I'm saying in the magazines, I now have an appreciation for Jerry Lawler and I love Memphis wrestling. So much wrestling you watch and you go, oh, wow, that was really awful. So, you know, with the advent of the network and things, I go back and I watch the things that I have good memories of. And sometimes like the Attitude Era things or ECW, like you've talked about, I can't watch anymore. And then I'll go back and like, I'll see like the early Raws from like 94. And I'm like, you know, this is a pretty breezy, 
psychologically sound hour. Yeah, some of the costumes are outrageous and some things are a little ridiculous, but it's a really pretty easy watch and it kind of has its own logic. And Memphis, I think, holds up really, really well. Uh, you know, you do your your podcast with with Mike Mills, who's great. You know, talking about Mid South wrestling, and Mid South wrestling was awesome. Probably the best, you know, episodic television in wrestling history. That said, there's no wrestling like Mid South out there anymore as we're speaking. But you can make a a case that you can draw a line from Memphis wrestling with the skits and some of the craziness, and you can make a line from Memphis to sports entertainment. That's number four this week in the top ten, disappointed Lance Russell. Tell him in Mexican just to get out of here. He obviously knows about that trip you took to Mexico City. Numero uno, (laughs) numero uno. At number three this week in the top ten is the popular, for reasons I don't quite understand, hot dog, or as he refers to it, hot dog and lasto. I think in his mind, he has a radio career much like Jim Valley's, but of course, it much doesn't better, really, much, much better. better. It doesn't really exist. That's the whole point. But let's now go to this very sorry segment right now. At number three in the top 10, it's Hot Dog. Here at number three this week in the top 10 is Hot Dog or Hot Dog and Lasto, as he insists on it being called. I don't know why he keeps getting voted into the top 10. But he remains popular for reasons I don't quite comprehend. Hot dog, are you on the line? Man, I last of all, I love it when you bring me on in the morning with stuff like that, saying, I don't know why hot dog remains popular. I don't know why hot dog is so hilarious. You know, it's classic straight man banter from the uh, Bud Abbott to my Shep Howard, the great Brian Lasto. Yeah. Here you are once again in the top 10, voted by the listeners into the number three spot. Uh, no one says hot dog, you're very hysterical. But anyway, hot dog, how you doing this week? I think some people say it. Number three again in a ratings book this week, huh? Yeah, holding steady at three. Well, at least we're consistent. <laughs> was this that? is a pretty, I was thinking last week that, that, that <laughs> three wasn't any good, but this is a pretty big market. I think number three isn't too bad. Well, at least we're not down there at number eight or nine like Andy Crisco or Sheila the Shooter, right? <laughs> uh, well, actually, they haven't been in the top ten in quite a while. Yeah. Remember Mighty Joe Thunders? <laughs> well, I think it was just Mighty Joe Thunder with no S, but yes, I remember yeah. Mighty Joe Thunder. Me neither. Mm. <laughs> Short lived. Hey, Lasto. Yes, what's up, Hot Dog? As you know, WrestleMania weekend is right around the corner, and I do want to mention that old Hot Dog's annual. WrestleMania Weenie Watch Party is on like Donkey Kong again this year, all the way live from very near Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs in Coney <laughs> Island, Brooklyn, brother. All the way live, just like Ric Flair used to say about Precious. That's right. We'll be watching the big event as it happens on multiple iPads. Plus, we're going to have contests, door prizes, <laughs> oh, celebrity guests galore. Yeah, we've got special VIP picnic table seating. What are you talking got- about? What, what celebrity guests? Well, we've got so much other things going on. Since you mentioned celebrity guests, in fact, I have a mystery caller on the line who's going to be there in person at the event to tell you more about it. He's on line three. Uh, Say hello to our mystery caller, TG. Is it Fred Schneider from the B-52s again? Brian Lasto, Brian Lasto, hails from Long Beach in New York. He's the king of Arcadian Vanguard. Pardon me while I kiss my own dork. (laughs) 
I guess I think I know who that is. Welcome back to the show. Did we have a name for our parody, Lanny Poffo? I don't even remember. Well, greetings, Brian. I don't know if I'm contractually allowed to say my name, but it is I, the mystery caller full of glory and renown. (laughs) I'm on my way to Hot Dog's giant foot-long WrestleMania weenie watch party, (laughs) where I'll be judging the hot dog eating contest this year. (laughs) Lanny Poffo is going to be judging the hot dog eating contest. That's right. I'm removing myself from competition. It just wouldn't be fair to pit myself against uh, mere amateurs. (laughs) But not to worry, because I will be conducting a special sausage swallowing seminar for VIP ticket holders. (laughs) Hopefully there are no VIP ticket holders this year. As you know, when it comes to that particular scale, I'm a Hall of Famer in my own right. I've heard stories, yes. Brian, you've heard of the Knoxville Five? Of course, we've done many segments on various Arcadian Vanguard shows all about the Knoxville Five. I'm known as the Downers Grove Eight. The Downers Grove Eight? Yes, eight, eight and a half on a good day. (laughs) Brian, I've written a special poem for my good friends Hot Dog and Lasto. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. Vote for Lasto, vote for Hot Dog. In the 605 Top 10, they've reached the pinnacle before. And with your help, they will do it again. Hot Dog always keeps us laughing with a funny song or joke. No, he doesn't. But I can take my own hog down and never, ever choke. (laughs) No gag reflex whatsoever. Ask anyone. Yeah, all right. Thank you so much, Mystery Caller. Mystery? Yes, what a great poem. I'm honored. We're going to have a bunch of Frisbees printed up with that poem on them for sale in my WrestleMania Weenie Watch Party. I have to say, you sounded a lot more like Lanny Poffo before you had a cold. I'm not sure I pick up what you're putting down. (laughs) Well, anyway, Hot Dog, here we are. I don't know if we're going to keep talking about your weenie party or whatever it is, but you're at number three in the top ten. That's fantastic. I'm going to see you out there at Coney Island, right, my brother? I don't know about that, although I could go for some Nathans. I love Nathans, and a lot of people don't talk about their corn on the cob. Nathans always had really good corn on the cob that they made in a vat of butter. It was delicious. It's going to be a blasto, Lasto. Hey, Lasto. Yes, hot dog. No sleep till Brooklyn. We got to go. There he is at number three in the top ten. The somewhat popular, I guess I should be honest, the always popular hot dog. At number two this week in the top ten is a woman that has captivated the imaginations of 605 listeners, and that is Hiccuping Fabulous Moolah. And let's now go to her ranch or estate, I forget what it is, in Columbia, South Carolina, to see if she has her hiccuping under control this week. Here at number two this week in the top ten is the always popular hiccuping fabulous moolah and i believe she is right now on the line i don't know where she is but we'll find out shortly hiccuping moolah are you there oh hi uh this is pro wrestling this week hi joe and bonnie it's an honor to be here (laughs) no 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 this is a super podcast and you are at number two in the top 10 welcome back moolah how are you oh brian i didn't know that you were you were scheduled today you know my good friend ivan is here again uh, psychedelic Ivan Koloff. We were just going through his record collection, washing my ass and talking about the good old days. <laughs> okay, what are you guys talking about? Give me that. Number one, <laughs> eight miles high. Then we had to turn around as we were violating international airspace. Oh, Ivan, don't stop. 
Don't stop. Don't start with that negative material. Shut up, Lillian. Do you know that the eight miles eye is done by the birds? Did you know what the official bird of Russia is? What, Ivan? Why don't you just go ahead and... Shut up, I told you. It's the it's the retching crane. It just edged out the hacking egret. Bird of the year, retching crane. Just edged out the hacking egret. You know, we were listening to the vanilla fudge. <laughs> Set me free? <laughs> Why don't you? <laughs> Larry, will you shut the fuck up? I'm trying to get through a bit here. <laughs> vanilla fudge, you keep me hanging on. Or as we know it in the USSR, you keep me hanging on. A hook in the Stalag dungeon. <laughs> Mullah has an outstanding American record collection. We have only had the odd USSR pressings, which, as you know, are either on concrete or cardboard. <laughs> really? Very tough on the players. Yeah, I would think so. If loving you is... Lillian, <gasps> shut up. I tried to get through this. If yes. loving you is wrong, the government will issue swift and brutal punishment. The best <laughs> I can assure you, this is no laughing matter, Lillian. You know, everyone in America loves the voodoo child, right? The child of the voodoo. Stand up next to a mountain. Take it, Lillian. Chop it. <laughs> Chop it. <laughs> give me one. Hurry up, woman. They only give us so much time each week. Damn right. Chop it, <laughs> Chop it down with the edge of my hand. You know what? I did the very same thing once and found myself on the very wrong side of the forestry commission. What? They came on me hard and heavy. <laughs> Stood up next to a mountain, knock it down with the edge of my hand. My ass. <laughs> well, anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway. What else do you have for us, Mula? You know, for those of you who have inquired, <gasps> Jujubee is recovering nicely and just fine, and she is convalescing with some soothing heat treatment right now. That's good. That sounds like a good way to soothe your pain. Get out of my way. You have her buried in a box, Lillian. You have her buried up to her neck in a box. What? It's 165 degrees. I haven't kayfabe. <laughs> Shut the F up. <laughs> oh, he's always overreacting. Somebody, please, alert the proper authorities. Brian, I think I'm double booked today. Do you mind if we conduct this a little later? There she is at number two this week in the top ten, Hiccuping Fabulous Moolah. Jim, any thoughts on any of the characters like Hiccuping Moolah and Hot Dog that unfortunately you weren't on the line to speak to, but Cranky Barista Ken Patera, I guess I should throw in there too, but you may have heard previously here on the Super Podcast. I think that uh, <laughs> Cranky Barista Ken Patera, uh, a couple of years ago at the Cauliflower Alley, they honored him. And I think they sort of said, hey, you know, try to keep the speeches under 15 minutes. And 45 minutes later, uh, Ken Patera <laughs> was done. But I'll tell you what, you know, he's he's so cranky. I mean, it fits Ken Patera so much. Oh, my God. It's just it's it's really funny. Um, and Ken Patera that night was just like that, uh, and that's what I mean. I laughed. I know that a lot of people were upset by it. A lot of people who produced the show and things. It's my understanding that they were upset, but I thought it was hilarious. 
Um, and I thought he was really funny. But yeah, he went too long, but at least it was funny. That's what matters. But um, I think that the the new character that I didn't get at first when it was introduced just recently, a psychedelic Ivan Koloff. I was like, <laughs> what, 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 what does that mean? And then when he sang that all of his teeth are brown, I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. I get it. I'm on now. I'm on the trolley. I can tell. Uh, you, I can explain it to you right away. It's Ivan Koloff on acid. Yeah, it's it's funny. No, it's it's a it's a it's a great idea. Uh, you know, I don't even know why I'm on this show because I can do zero impressions. <laughs> so I offer nothing to any of this. So I have so to say, I, if CAC was flipping out over Ken Patera, they're going to have a ball this year with David Schultz giving a speech. We'll see what happens. You know, I'm going to be uh, doing a Q and A session with uh, David Schultz and also Dory Funk Jr. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's awesome. Uh, I would real quick, I just want to mention that I know that uh, your guys come on and they talk about CAC not being as good, and that's there's some certainly some valid points by that. But I personally think that uh, Brian Blair is doing a great job as president, trying to shore things up and make things run in a more professional manner and kind of growing the people that Cauliflower Alley Club honors. You know, last year they had their first ever Lucha Libre Award with uh, Blue Damon Jr., which I think is awesome. Um, so I think they're kind of trying to expand it and make it grow. And so I, you know, it can never be as good. It's never going to be Luthez and Mike Mazurki and Red Bastine and Nick Bockwinkle ever again. But, you know, times have times have changed. And I think Cauliflower Alley is is changing with the times, too. And I'm and I'm proud to be associated with it. It's not that any of us have been negative about Cauliflower Alley. No, it's no, you haven't. No question certain things, especially with finances. Uh, and I still question some of them, to be quite honest, even though they did help out Jerry. I think there's a limit. They say they could only help out wrestlers for like $2,000 a year. And they did help out Jerry. He did have to run through hoops to get paperwork to Carl Lauer, which I thought was a bit ridiculous. The, the method that he had to mail everything there when he was really having a rough time. But he did get some money out of them. But there are still issues I think need to be talked about. But look, they're making some good decisions. Having Scott Teal. So heavily yes. involved, I think, is a fantastic decision because Scott, yeah. Scott has credibility. Scott wouldn't be involved. If Scott saw some shenanigans, Scott's going to leave as opposed to stay there. And I would, too. I'm not on the board. You know, I do the seminars and I do the, the podcast. If, if I knew of you know, significant problems, I wouldn't be involved either. By the way, I have to ask this. And, and if you have to stay silent during this, I understand. I'll ask it to the listeners and I'll do it in a way that you will find annoying. Hey, guys, got a question for you. <laughs> Cauliflower Alley this year is honoring various people from Dr. D. David Schultz to Ming and the Barbarian. But there is a guy honored this year. I have seen his picture numerous times at various autograph conventions sitting next to another wrestler of note. I don't know if I've seen this guy wrestle. Someone will say, oh, he was an ECW guy or oh, he worked indies here. I don't have any memory of ever seeing this guy wrestle. But this year they're honoring, I think it's Andrew Anderson. Yes. I literally have no idea who the fuck this guy is. <laughs> yeah, he's, a, you know, there's oftentimes, usually every year, there's always somebody on, on, the, on the, the dais who they honor who, you know, not necessarily was, you know, in, in a major company. And Andrew kind of fits that bill this year. You know, he's he's worked here in the Northwest. He's worked in you know a lot of indies around the around the country. I know he's worked a lot. You know, Kevin Sullivan is inducting him, and I know he's done some work with Kevin Sullivan. And I think he's a bit of a protege of his. He's a you know a really big guy, sort of kind of looks like 
I guess maybe Dave Sullivan did back in the day. Um, but yeah, no, he's, he's, he's an indie guy who's, who's been around for quite a while. One of these years will be nice if they honor Dennis Carluzzo. Just going to throw that out there. But anyway, that was, where are we? That was number two in the top 10, hiccuping fabulous Mula. Also not honored this year at Cauliflower Alley. At number one in the top 10, making a big, big debut. He really captured everyone's hearts last time on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, at number one, Lord Apnea Hayes. Here at number one this week in the top 10, making his debut at number one in the top 10, that's a big debut, is a man who has captivated the 605ers since his appearance on the last episode, and that is Lord Apnea Hayes, I believe is the name he wants to be called, and I believe he is on the line right now. Your Lordship, are you there? Hello. Is this Brian Osh's loss? <laughs> Hello, Your Lordship. It's good to have you back on the show. Are you still doing your program? No doubt highlighting the quirky roadside attractions across the country. Is that what this is all about? Is that what I am to be led to believe? Yes. Well, I must say, <laughs> without jesting, that it is an honor to be here. Oh, I have done my research. You appear to be the number one choice wrestling podcast for both longtime wrestling fans. And incels alike. <laughs> well, maybe so, uh, your lordship, but you're at number one this week in the top ten. Congratulations. That's a big debut. And, of course, that means you get a championship match next time. What do you say about that? You know, I think that it's a foregone conclusion that Lord Apnea Hayes is going to reign wherever and <laughs> wherever he should please. Brian Oshis. But if you'd really like to make the best use of my time, I suggest you join me. I've just come from a lovely repast, and I'm going to check out my social media. Social media? Would you like to come along for a moment? I'm going to check my Facebook. Yeah. Can I come along? Yes, please. <laughs> you know, Brian Oshis, <laughs> I find it most curious to see what the commoners are entertaining themselves with these days. On Facebook. Oh. Go ahead, Brian Oshis. I don't mean to, <laughs> to interrupt no, no. you. You only have seven and a half hours a week. <laughs> no, that was, I was just stressing that it was Facebook you're speaking of. You're on Facebook, apparently. Facebook. I believe you young people call it social media. <laughs> ah, delightful. A rare sports post. I'm riveted to know what you beer-guzzling, pork-necked, tree stumps think of your new quarterback. What? I'm quite sure that he's thinking about you, too. And your Barker lounger. <laughs> oh, here we have an apparent glutton Wait, proudly what? drooling over the latest addition to his obviously lard-based diet. I've set my computer <laughs> to notify me when he graduates from pre-diabetic to diabetes type 2 status. Well, hold on. What are you doing, Lord Hayes? I'm leaving the names out, but I'm showing the world the banality of my apparent Facebook feed. Now, hold on. Your feed would be containing your friends. So these are your friends on Facebook that you're putting down? Two words for you, Brian. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> but it is not as if I need them. Okay, all right. Oh, look here. This is delightful. Here's a young lady with eyebrows like Groucho Marx for no apparent reason. And she has a clever life hack on how to make a watermelon easier to eat with less cleanup. 
Well, I have a life hack for you, sweetheart. Go sit on a church steeple and holler hooray. Okay. Lord, Lord Hayes, I think we've had enough of your social media. I don't know why these people would be friends with you on Facebook. Cons- Promotional consideration paid for by the following. <laughs> but as I was saying, that's what made Darlin Dagmar such a professional. Back then it was wrestling. Huzzah! There he is at number one in the top ten, a massive debut, Lord Apnea Hayes. And of course, being at number one means he will challenge for the championship next time here in the top ten. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier. You can vote on the top ten and the championship match usually the day after a new show comes out, sometimes two days, at facebook.com slash superpodcast. But Lord Apnea Hayes will be challenging either the defending champion, the magnificent one, or... The handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. And the votes have been tabulated. The votes are in. The winner and still champion, the magnificent one. And we're going to go to Sunset Beach, Hawaii in just a moment. But first, let's get a few words from the defeated handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. Here he is, fresh off his championship match with the Magnificent One. Unfortunately, he was not victorious, but he is with us right now on the Super Podcast. None other than the handsome Boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. I've heard two claps now. What's going on over there, Boogeyman? The Boogeyman feels low. What's the problem? I'm a little under the weather, Lasto. Handsome's got the rockin' pneumonia, and the not Boogie will get flu. Oh, what's... what's uh. the- <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a common cold mixed with the croup and a touch of the creeping crud. Ooh, that sounds awful. I'm often constipated and over-medicated. <laughs> this sounds even worse. But my job description says that I'm a professional wrestler, so I will soldier on and might understand that Brother Jimbo has once again snatched defeat from the jaws of victory at the hands of that Polynesian pothead the Magnificent One. You have indeed lost in your challenge against the Magnificent One. He reigns supreme once again as the champion, and you and you you have gone against him multiple times now. You unfortunately did not come up victorious. Well, I will address that travesty at the tail end in just a moment. But first, I'd like to welcome to my segment a new sponsor. Wait, what? That's right. Friends, do you poop out at parties? Is your prick a little sick? Do rats desert your hotel room like it was a sinking ship? Well, never fear. Handsome Jimbo is here with the answer to all your problems. Boogie's Big Blue Boner Pills. What? Come on. We don't do that kind of shit here on the Super Podcast, Boogeyman. Don't fret a frown. Just gobble one down. Boogie's Big <laughs> Blue Boner Pills. The miracle truable that will make you most screwable. <laughs> Made from my soon-to-be patented recipe using generic Viagras with the logo scraped off. Blue food coloring, and my secret ingredient, the essence of tumescence. What? <laughs> Not Boogie's Big Blue Boner Pills will give you more confidence in the boudoir. <laughs> Turn that Twizzler into a Sizzler. <laughs> Put a kickstand in your hand. Put a kickstand in your hand? <laughs> Do you realize, listeners, if you had eaten a big, bad Boogie Blue Boner Pill when I began this ad, you'd have a Hollywood loaf in your pants already. <laughs> That's right. Simply contact Handsome Jimbo from Mepo 
in care of this podcast and use my promo code BOOGIE and all you'll pay is shipping on your first order. The next order is where we really screw you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Boogie Man, are there any side effects? And back to our regularly scheduled programming. Well, all right, Boogie Man, enough of this advertisement for some bullshit medication. Here you are. I was about bullshit. to say in the top 10. You're not in the top 10. You lost the championship match. Anything you want to say to the listeners? Because, again, next time they have to choose to either vote you back into the top 10 or perhaps not vote for you at all. Well, let me just address that. I sense that the formerly loyal 605ers, the mothershippers, I sense that they have allowed some interlopers and Donnie come lately to usurp my position at the top of the top 10 stack. It's like that old joke about the Smothers Brothers' mother, brother. <laughs> I think they love someone else the best. You follow me? I follow you, yes, yes. Well, I won't take this lying down. I was ready for a face-off with the magnificent Munchie Man, and who does he let in the door but that old crusty crumpet, Lord Apnea Hayes. You know, we got one good thing in common, his lordship and I. We both fell asleep during this promo last week. <laughs> oh, I got a mind to kick that moldy English muffin right in his nooks and crannies. <laughs> Well, he was voted the number one this week in the top ten, so the listeners seem to really like Lord Apnea Hayes. That's just lovely. Well, I am mobilizing Boogie's army, Lasto. What? And we're taking back what rightfully belongs to me, and we're not moving aside for any hiccuping, fabulous moolah, or a cast of weirdos, be it Cycle Slut Ivan Koloff, or Honey <laughs> B, or any other mother brother. And I may have to confront the magnificent ton, even if I have to fly to friendly skies, there's Little Grass Shack in Kahuna Kahika, Hawaii. <laughs> and get up close and personal with that freak. Oh, flying to Hawaii. <laughs> okay. Tell Don the pothead handsome Jimmy's on his way. <laughs> Woo! Mercy, Daddy. Here he is off his big victory over the handsome boogeyman retaining his championship and he continues to be one of the most dominant champions we've ever seen here in the top 10 it is none other than the magnificent one and i believe we have a connection right now to sunset beach hawaii magnificent one are you on the line you've reached the prince of darkness himself radiant as always what can I do for you today? I almost thought it was your answering machine there for a second, Magnificent One. Well, congratulations. We are doing the top 10 once again, and you have continued to reign supreme. You have retained your championship with a big victory over the handsome boogeyman. Like it was ever any question, like it was ever any doubt. What did I say upon my first appearance? I'm going to reign for a thousand and one years, and that is nowhere close to being up yet. So go ahead and fire away anything you'd like to know about the Prince of Darkness himself and how I came to dominate the show that you created. Synonymous with excellence the world over. When they hear my voice, they come running to see what's next from the Magnificent One. That may be true, and Magnificent One, I guess one of the big questions is, what do you think about your next challenger, next time in the top ten, Lord Apnea Hayes? You know, Lord Apnea Hayes is a big, dark horse. I've worked in territories with him. He's earned every title that he's come by, honestly. Mid-America heavyweight title. English Federation title. And, of course, his biggest, most prestigious title, that of Horse Cock. 
<laughs> All right, a throwback to last time. Uh, forgot about that joke, Magnificent One, but he is your challenger next time. I believe we first met him in your rumpus room. Wasn't he part of one of your parties? I wouldn't be surprised. Last thing I saw from him, he was leaving with his pads around his ankles and getting all uppity with me that the champagne wasn't up to his standard, that the caviar was not his brand. That my whores were not good enough for him. All of a sudden, <laughs> the beach was not hot enough. The sand was not sandy enough for Lord Alfred Hayes. Lord Alfred Hayes, all the And then he fell asleep and shit himself. So what do you want me to say? <laughs> I couldn't tell if you were describing <laughs> Lord Hayes or Robin Leach there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you brought your own show to a halt, Brian Lass. You have nobody to blame but your fucking self now. You know, you didn't even let me get to the list of people who I destroyed over the years. I didn't just destroy one man. I destroyed dynasty. I destroyed families. families. You didn't let me get through my list. Ask me who I work with. Any great worker. You now, love wait, hold lot. on one second. We did this last time. Are you just going to start naming people in a wrestling family that people would not usually name as being the best member of that family? That's ridiculous. I work with only the best. Okay. Flash me... Funk, Judy Bagwell, Horace Hogan, Jamie Dundee, <laughs> Eric Watts, Kelly Kaniski, David Flair, Doug Gilbert, David Sammartino, C.W. Anderson, <laughs> David Rogers, Dirty Rhodes, Debbie Malenko, Kamala 2, Assassin 3, Twin Devil 1. <laughs> What's wrong with that list? Oh, who's that? A professional wrestler if I've ever seen it. A very good well, who's that? that? Yes. There it is. Throw the book at me because I'm guilty of love. What would you like to know? <laughs> Actually, I don't even know exactly what I'd like to know from you, Magnificent. What I'd really just like you to continue saying whatever it is that you want to say. I would like to say this to the loyal listeners of the 605 Super Podcast as we come into this first, second quarter of the new year, 2019. I have preached from the mountaintop from day one that I would be the most entertaining, loudest, proudest member of the Super Pad, Super Car universe. And you know that I've lived up to my every word. Super so from now on, never forget and always remember, mahalo and go fuck yourself. Well, there he is, the magnificent one. And once again, I want to mention that you can vote on the top 10 after the show comes out, usually a day or two, at facebook.com slash super podcast. And as we move on here with the show, Jim, I want to make a few notes. First, I want to send out a massive thank you to a few people who help out each and every time with the show. I want to thank Jace Nakarado, our director of show research, as well as Lou Kippelman, who has done such a fantastic job, not just helping me with various things with 605, but his fine work on other Arcadian Vanguard shows like Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry and Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin. Lou is really the man. And once again, big thanks to Lou for everything he's done. And I can't forget Travis Heckle, who always kills it with his artwork that, again, you can see at Facebook.com slash Super Podcast or even on YouTube. We're trying to put up as many episodes as we can on the YouTube page. You can go to YouTube.com slash Arcadian Vanguard if you choose to go through some of the catalog of older shows on YouTube as opposed to going through iTunes or anything else. Sometimes it's easier for people if they're at work to play a YouTube video, I, I found out recently, than to listen to an iPod or something. So. Check that out. The YouTube page has been updated. A couple other notes here. I want to mention that we have a Patreon account. It is patreon.com slash superpodcast. If you've listened to the show, you know how it works. I guarantee nothing. I promise you nothing. You get nothing. You're guaranteed absolutely nothing for supporting this show on Patreon. And we have a few secret millionaires up there. I want to say hello to you guys and thank you for your continued support. And we have several other people up on there. And I don't really update it too much. Every now and then I do. But 
I've recently gotten to the point where there's various things I have that I record that either aren't suitable just because I don't think it works for a show, for instance, like an outtake or something, or maybe something that's off topic. And I've decided that I'm going to start putting some stuff on the Patreon account when I run into that problem, when I run into something that this isn't going on the show, or I want to do something, but it doesn't fit the show. I'm going to put it up on there. So a couple of people have noticed some things up on there. I just want to make that announcement here. I still guarantee nothing. I promise nothing. You may go months, years without any content up on there. But for some of you who are patrons of the show, if you've noticed that in the last several months, that's what it is. When I have something that doesn't fit the show, that's where I'm going to put it. I'm going to use the uh, Patreon page as kind of a canvas for my other things. One other note, Jim, I want to give an update on something we've talked about in the past and something that will come up later in the show with Les Thatcher and again next time on the show with another guest that we've just recorded some stuff with. The Plan B video that Bob Roop and the Knoxville Five put out threatening to expose the business if they didn't get their way. Well, we have a couple updates on that. One of the listeners of the show, Christopher Todd Ghost, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It could also be Goss, but he's a member of the Mothership Group And in one of the threads where we were discussing Plan B, he mentioned something I found very interesting. You know, there have been various scenarios put out there by people guessing what they think the purpose of the tape was. A lot of people said it was a bluff. They didn't send it anywhere. They didn't do anything with it. We heard from Kevin Sullivan last time on the show, and you heard what he said. He thinks Jim Barnett got the tape. Well, Christopher Todd Ghost said in the Mothership Group that he got the tape years ago from someone in the Jim Crockett office. and. He was given the tape in exchange for some work he was doing for them, and he was told to never circulate it and never reveal who the source was. But there is, according to him, you know, and again, we haven't spoken to him or hired an investigator yet to tear into his background, but according to Christopher Todd Ghost, which could be Goss, the tape was received by the Crockett office because that's where he got it from. So that's pretty interesting news there. And then one other thing that has recently been unearthed, thanks to the great research by Tim Hornbaker, a friend of the show, author of Death of the Territories. I put this on Twitter. I put this in the Mothership Facebook group. A letter that Ron Fuller wrote to the NWA from September 17th, 1979 has been found. And now to read it, so you don't have to listen to more of me, let's go to the booming voice of Lou Kippelman. September 17, 1979. Gentlemen, this is a short update on the situation here in Knoxville concerning my former booker and some of my former wrestlers and the operation they are running here. They have accused me of stealing gate receipts from my sponsors and made these accusations to the sponsors. A lie which I am happy to say my sponsors failed to believe. On their wrestling program, they have made the statement some wrestlers are real and some are phony, and several other statements with no regard for protection of our business. There have been many other things said and done, but I am happy to report that none has served to improve their business. They have expanded into Nick Goulas' Chattanooga, with rumors of expansion into Houston and the Gulf Coast, with total disregard to all promoters. I don't expect these people to be in business much longer, so I will list their names once again, just in case in the future any of you should have cause to do business with them, you will be aware of what to expect. Bob Roop, Bob Orton Jr., Ronnie Garvin, Boris Malenko, Ron Wright, Tiger Conway, Roger Smith, Assassin, 
Randy Savage, Poffo and all the Poffos, Barry Orton, and Bob Orton Sr. Sincerely, Ron Fuller. Well, there it is, the booming voice of Lou Kippelman, Lou the Boom, I guess we can call him, here on the show, as he reads this letter from Ron Fuller that has been unearthed. Jim, before we move on with the show, any thoughts on all of this? I know you've been following it, you've seen it, it's been all over social media, all over various podcasts. Any thoughts on the Knoxville War and the Plan B videotape? You know, it has been getting a ton of traction in a lot of different places who... Funny enough, don't mention the 605, but okay, fine, whatever. Um, yeah, we're used it, to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everybody gets ripped off. Um, anyway, um, you know, it's just, it's amazing to me that that how long it's taken for this story to, to come out and see the light of day. And it's, you know, it's really fascinating that, you know, so many fans go, oh, Vince exposed the business in 1988. Uh, you know, in reality, there's always been this issue of either people knew or people threatened to know. You know, in the book uh, about Christine Gerettini, um, you know, everybody's uh, favorite person, um, J- uh, Jeff Pfeffer, uh, Jack Pfeffer, Jack Pfeffer, uh, yeah, you know, threatened to threaten Teeny uh, to expose the business and and ruin her territory. And you know, she gave Jack Pfeffer grabbed him by the face and you know let him know that uh, that would be a, <laughs> a big mistake that it would probably cost him his life. So. It's just interesting. Uh, you know, I remember that, you know, Ron Garvin, when I finally saw him on World Championship Wrestling, Georgia Championship Wrestling, I, I thought he was the the coolest, kind of like Semper Vivi did. And to find out that that he was blackballed and and it's just a it's such an interesting business with all of the characters and the way people handled their business. And sometimes people got away with it and, and other times they didn't. You mentioned a book, Teeny. Let me give a quick plug here. That's by a friend of the show. You may remember he appeared on the show a while back. Brennan Martin, the grandson of Christine Jarrett. So check out that book. I think it's on Amazon. Again, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. And Brennan is listening. Brennan, hello. But from there, let's move on with the show here, Jim. You know, last time we had Pandemonium Theater and people went apeshit over Mike O'Gorman as Andre the Giant. Here's Mike O'Gorman. This guy's been on HBO Vice Principals on The Tonight Show. He's got a few really funny web series. You'll hear about them here. You should definitely check them out. Really, really funny stuff. And people are going crazy about this Andre the Giant he did. So I figured, let me get Mike on the show. Let's talk a little bit about the origin of this incredible impression. Let's go to this conversation right now with Mike O'Gorman. I am very happy today to welcome to the Super Podcast a man that you may have seen on Vice Principals as Bill Hayden, or perhaps you've seen him on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, or perhaps you remember him not too long ago as Andre the Giant right here on Pandemonium Theater, and that is none other than Mike O'Gorman. And Mike, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Brian, thanks for having me, man. Good to be here. Everyone's been talking about it since you were on Pandemonium, so we have to talk a little bit about that, (laughs) and then we'll get to everything else. Sure. When you saw this script, did you have any thoughts? Did you have any you, – you were very receptive to the idea right away of doing Andre here, which was tremendous, and you killed it, and you knocked it out of the park. Thanks, when, man. When you saw the script, did you think, this is good, this is bad, what is this? What were your thoughts? You know, it was, it was one of those things, because I'm not, I'm not super familiar with uh, wrestling, as we've talked about, but, you know, it, it, it was obvious what you were doing with the story and Vince McMahon. So I, I basically just put all my trust in you and that in post it would – do what it does but i you know 
but I just assumed like, well, I'd give you three different reads of stuff and you'd be able to work with it. But it was pretty straightforward. I felt like the scripts. Yeah. Well, let's go to something you just hit on right there. You are not a wrestling fan, correct? I'm not. I'm not. And not, not that I don't like it, but I just never got into it. But um, I just have so many people in my life that are so into it. And with the case of, you know, when I don't know how old you are, I'm 39. But like when we were kids, when I was a kid, you didn't have to be a wrestling fan to know about Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and the Iron Sheik and all those guys. They were like everywhere. So it wasn't really at that time, like a matter of being into wrestling. It was just like, if you had been paying attention as a child, then you knew who these people were. And so Andre has always been in my head. And then, you know, obviously Princess Bride and like, I've seen him in interviews and stuff, but it was more about that. It was less about the wrestling for me and him as like just an icon of pop culture. You and I are both the same age. We are both from Long Island originally. Did you watch Hulk yeah. Hogan's Rock and Wrestling Saturday mornings on Channel 2? I'm sure I did, yeah. Was that and that was like sort of like the the good guys versus bad guys cartoon? It was good guys versus like, bad guys and then I think after that was Muppet Babies and Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cuz I remember that I think the Iron Sheik was like the leader of the bad wrestlers, right? If I remember correctly. Well, you know, it was kind of like this is so bizarre. It was kind of like car driven. Like each of the bad guys had their own <laughs> car. Like Roddy Piper had a car and John Studd had a car and I think the Sheik had a car. So whoever had their own car from the best of my memory, right. I haven't watched it in many years, had like their own little <laughs> clique of guys who would help them with various uh, nefarious deeds. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I watched that because I was such a Saturday morning cartoon junkie as a kid. So Princess Bride was a big movie for people our age when that came out in the 80s. Fred Savage was in it. Sure. My name is Enrico Montoya. I mean, there's so many things people remember. Yeah. Did Andre, I mean, was there something about Andre's performance in that that connected with you? Did you get a kick out of it? When did you first try to do the voice? Well, the movie itself, I, I remember as a kid, like seeing it and just, you know, it's a, it's a pretty great adventure movie, you know? So as a kid, it just like comes off as sort of a straightforward adventure film. And then when you're an adult, Andre is kind of fascinating because he does, you, you kind of realize like when, once you are old enough to understand like character building and all that stuff, but like he's this sort of gentle giant, which is kind of endearing. And so there's nobody that doesn't like uh, Andre the Giant in that movie because he's so like warm and like, you know, kind of a, just a giant teddy bear. Yeah. Um, the way I figured out that I, I used to do stand up in New York years ago and I would close every set by doing a bit about how it would be funny in a movie if when a kidnapper calls for ransom and they have like that voice modulated thing that makes their voice really deep. <laughs> if they accidentally left that on and then called for like Chinese takeout. <laughs> so it was like, you know, you, you call, it's like, and then uh, I would do the ransom call and then act like I was hanging up and then pick back up again and be like, call the Chinese food place to be like, um, can I get an order of uh, General Tso's chicken? Uh, let me get an order of egg rolls. And like, so I would do this bit. And then later I realized if you put, if you put a French accent on it, it becomes Andre. So it was just a, it was just a matter of taking that modulated voice that I could naturally do and then adding a French accent to it to turn it into Andre. Was that something you came to or was that something that one of your wrestling fan friends suggested? No, I, I, I think I just I found that on my own. Because you do a perfect Andre. That's the thing that surprises me when you revealed to me that you don't like wrestling or that you're not an active wrestling fan, I should say. 
In that right, right. There are things about Andre that you get perfectly. You do just the best Andre I've ever heard. How do you think you arrived at that? Did you watch lots of Andre interviews after the fact, after you started doing The Voice? Did you go back and watch Princess Bride on a loop? How did you nail <laughs> the intricacies of his voice? I don't know. I think at one point I did actually go... The first time I ever did that impression for money was when when Jimmy Fallon was still doing the late night show before he was on the tonight show, they had me on a couple of times to do like this bit they called audience suggestion box and the suggestions, I think I did it two or three times, but the suggestions were always like, Oh, can we, you know, let's see a regular guy in your audience that sounds like Andre the giant ordering wings or whatever. So it'd be me on the phone, like or, again, ordering takeout. I don't know why that's the, <laughs> the, the string for this, but but I think I think when I when I got hired to do that bit because you have I had like a couple of days before I was going in I did, I think I did watch some interviews and stuff and maybe that helped get some of the little idiosyncrasies down and the nuances um, so yeah I, th- I think I probably did go back and watch some some old footage and stuff him on like Letterman and stuff like that when you started doing the voice as Andre did your wrestling fan friends immediately go, holy shit, this is amazing? I mean, what was the reaction when you started doing the voice to people you knew? I think kind of like what you're saying. I mean, I think, A, if if you look at me, it doesn't look like that voice can come out of me. (laughs) Uh, But B, I think like, I think they were like you, where it's like, well, you, you don't, you're not a wrestling fan. How, you know, how did you come to this? I don't know. Sometimes, like I do a lot of impressions and sometimes they just hit you. And I think that was kind of one of them where it came, you know, it came from that kidnapper voice and then the, the French accent thing. But uh, yeah, just kind of like some, sometimes they just click, you know. Is there another one hidden in there? Do you do a mean junkyard dog or anything? <laughs> Not yet, but <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you ever need, I'm sure I can just YouTube some uh, old clips and we can figure it out. <laughs> I'll tell you, I may have to start doctoring this script so, <laughs> so I can get as many impressions from you into there as possible. Do it. You know, you first came to my attention. We had talked about the idea that in this, which was part four of Pandemonium Theater, I needed an Andre the Giant, and I wasn't going to do it unless I found someone who could really do it. I didn't want to do it because I didn't think I could do it well. Right, right. I needed someone good. And mm-hmm. someone had sent me the video, the Andre the Giant show on YouTube. And unfortunately, I think there's only two videos, uh-huh. two episodes that are up there. So what's there's the three. Yeah. three? What's the story behind that? What's the background of that? And why are you not still doing that every week today? I, uh, what did I do? I think it was when I first moved to LA, I had, I got here in January and then right away I booked a pilot and I had to be in Atlanta for like two weeks. And then I came home and when you, when you do a pilot, they lock you in until they basically, until they decide whether or not to put it series, you know? Right. So I had like two months or something where I'm sitting around doing nothing. And I had enough money that I could just, I, I talked to a friend of mine who was a producer that I worked with at VH1. And I said, I'm thinking about doing this weird talk show thing. Can you help me like find a green screen studio and stuff? And I think we did those three episodes in one day and it was enough. It was cheap enough to do it for one. It was like, you know, at the time, I think it was something like four or 500 bucks for the day to pay people the makeup, the hair, the, not you bad. know, all the shit, the studio. No, it wasn't terrible, yeah. but not something I could do every week. So the idea was like, I was going to do the three of them, see if I could find somebody to fund it or maybe get like funny or die or some, you know, one of those web things to go into a thing where maybe they would, they would sign on for 10 or whatever, but it just never, it never happened. It's not something I wouldn't like, I would be happy to revisit it if somebody 
wanted to do it. It's just not, it's not like I do a web series now with a buddy of mine called the porch, which is super easy and cheap because we do like eight to 10 of them in one day, but it's just on my buddy's porch. You know, we don't need a ton of lights and all this stuff. It's just shot outside and it costs us nothing to make. So this was something where, not like you said, not super crazy expensive, but not something I want to shell out for all the time. So I would much rather have another company come in and help me do it or want to buy 10 of them and then, and then do them. Cause I do think, I, I think it's, it's a fun idea. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think if you had something, if you had the right company behind you, you could get bigger names even to do it. So yeah, it's not something I'm, it's not something I'm done with. Although you had some pretty good names from comedy. You had Pete Holmes on there and he was having a ball. It seemed like he was having the greatest time yeah, of his life. He, he loved it. He loved it. And he's, and Pete's great. I've known Pete for a long time. And, and, uh, uh, he had ju- he was a good sport. He had just his talk show because before crashing, which was his recent HBO show, um, he had a talk show on CBS and his talk show had just been canceled like the week before. So he came on. I don't think he was in the best of moods, but he really like turned it on and made it a fun episode. So it was he was he was a really great sport. So you're locked down for this pilot. You have time to kill. You have a few bucks. You could do any project in the world you want to do. What made you decide, right. you know what, Andre the Giant, talk show, this is the way to go? <laughs> uh, I think it's just like I like doing different things. So having just come off like this was like a cop comedy, but it was narrative. I was playing like a, I was playing a character, but it wasn't like out of the realm of possibility. I was playing like a cop in a comedy. It wasn't, you know. And then I always like to, I know people think, some people in comedy think it's like hacky, but I still love impressions and I've made a lot of money doing them and I think they're fun. And so when I got back, I was just like, I want to do something funny and silly. That's not just me acting in a, you know, cop costume or something like that. Not that the pilot was, the pilot was great. One of the best things I've ever done, I think. But like, it just was like, I like, I like sort of the roller coaster. You do something a little normal and then I want to be a little crazy, you know? So it just seemed like, Andre the Giant having a talk show seemed just silly enough and crazy enough to have that be the next thing that I wanted to do. So, How much of that was improv? How much of you doing Andre on that set was oh, improv? Uh, I, would, I would say at least 50, if not 75%. I mean, so much of it. Especially like when you've got somebody like Pete, who is great. My, uh, my other friend, my friend Brian Cogman, who was a writer and producer on Game of Thrones, he was the other guest. And then my friend Allison Scaliotti from Warehouse 13 was the other, the third guest. But when you have somebody like Pete, who's used to just like bouncing off, I mean, we, that was the one that we shot the longest. We shot the most of because he's just right there. And we were, it was like playing tennis, you know, but even the other ones were, there was a lot of improv. The questions, I had the questions, but that was basically all we had. And then everybody else was able to, sort of role i mean you kind of understand when you're when you're the guest on that show that (laughs) it's not exactly like (laughs) you know it's not exactly charlie rose or like you know dan rad's not 60 minutes no they Um, have have much better wigs on those shows yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure well you know i certainly hope something could happen with that i'd love to see you bring that back because i do think it was a fun concept and you didn't get to really truly flesh it out you only did those things that you shot in a day so uh, hopefully you do right. get to uh, to do this again in the future. I am curious. Yeah, I would love to. With you having this amazing skill with Andre, and you said you do other impressions, and of course you do so much other stuff, have you run into any wrestlers or wrestling personalities or people in the wrestling business while... Yeah, we did. Uh, years ago, I worked 
for a like a web company and towards the end that company was around for like three years and at the end of their sort of life they attempted to do a full-length pilot written by my buddy pat driscoll who is probably the the biggest wrestling fan that i know and pat had written this pilot called undisputed which was essentially like if i'm just going to break it down it was essentially like 30 rock where I was like the Tina Fey head writer, but for the wrestling world instead of for like a sketch comedy show. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was cool. It was a, it was very funny. It was a great concept. And so the big star that we had on that show was Mick Foley who came in and this was, this was like, I know probably a lot of wrestling fans will be mad at me because I'm not a huge wrestling fan. And the, crux of the story was that Mick Foley was a character in the organization and I'm the head writer, but we, we hate each other. And so there's a, they shot a montage of Mick Foley. We, we did a chest chop to me. He threw me through a table. Like I got my ass kicked by Mick Foley. (laughs) Like it was, and it was so fun. (laughs) And like, I'm sure like there are wrestling fans who were like, fuck this guy. Why did he do that? Um, but that was super fun. It was him. And then um, the head of the company, the sort of Vince McMahon character was played by Martin Cove, who I don't know if you, if you know him, he was the, um, the Cobra Kai sensei. In oh the yeah. Original Karate Kid. Oh, that's a great yeah. pick. So, and he was, uh, he was great too. Really, really funny. Like you wouldn't think he would be funny, but he really has this dry sense of humor and his deliveries were great. So it was a, a really fun thing. It didn't, unfortunately, you know, like a lot of these things, they don't, they just don't get the traction that they deserve. And, but it was really, it was really a great experience. And, and uh, that was my first sort of foray into how, cause they had, Pat really knew how, you know, the WWE, especially like worked, how they, you know, they arranged the stories and the arcs and how they come up with the characters and all the stuff. So he had done his homework. And that was the first time I really learned about like the inner workings of that world, which I think are fascinating. It really is. And, you know, a lot of writers in the WWE have been former comedians or current comedians. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Patrice O'Neill was a writer there for a while. And yeah, also, I've, known, I've known guys that have been writers there. Yeah. And I was going to say, they also have people who have written there who seemingly have no knowledge whatsoever of professional wrestling. So it may be a great time for you to apply. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> when Mick Foley chopped you and threw you around, did anyone go over, did Mick go over with you? What you should do, what you shouldn't do, what it'll feel like, what you should expect? The chest chop was, he, he basically was just like, this is going to sting like crazy. <laughs> and I was like, all right, because they just did it. You just did a chest chop. And they did it like five times because you've got to get multiple takes on, you know. Yeah. And so my, my chest was like, you know, did that thing where it's like purple the next day and then three days later it's green. Like I looked like I was wearing like camouflage for like the next week after, but it was like, it was like, it's all for the thing. And I get to say that I got chest chopped by Mick Foley, the table thing that they did, you know, the table was pre-cut underneath. So I just went right through that actually didn't hurt at all. But uh, the chest chop was something else, but it's, you know, like I said, badge of honor kind of thing. Well, listen, Mike, as we uh, wrap up this segment here in a second, I want to once again thank you for being a part of Pandemonium Theater. You really lit up the previous edition. And uh, like I said before, I'm actively going to find ways to get you back on this show doing an impression (laughs) one way or another. But before we go, let the listeners know a little bit about how they can keep up with you, how they could follow you, whether it's on social media or whether it's through your web series. What should the listeners know? Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I think it's both at Mike O'Gorman. 
uh, no apostrophes, just all one word. And uh, uh, I do a web series with uh, my buddy Jerry Trainer, and that's called The Porch, which you can find on um, YouTube if you just uh, search The Porch Michael Gorman or The Porch Jerry Trainer. We got about, uh, I think, 19 episodes of that up. And they're all a minute and a half. You could watch them all in like, you know, less than an hour. But uh, so that's what I'm kind of doing now in between things again. And um, yeah, and then you can, you know, Vice Principals is on HBO streaming on HBO all the time. And uh, that's pretty much it. Any chance we can get an au revoir from Andre as we prepare to leave? <laughs> wow, thank you for having me on the show. It was my pleasure. I'm, I'm now going to drink five bottles of vodka. There he is, Mike O'Gorman. I'm going to officially declare him a friend of the show, and I think hopefully you'll be hearing him back on the show at some point in the future. And from there, let's go to a conversation with a longtime friend of the show, someone we all love, the golden boy, Jerry Gray. I am happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast one of the most popular people on this show, beloved by the listeners of the Super Podcast. He is your friend and mine, the golden boy, Jerry Gray. And Jerry, welcome back to the show. How you doing today, man? Thanks, Brian. It's good to be back. I'm, uh... I'm still here, <laughs> still surviving. Well, we're glad you're still here, and uh, I know you're going through a rough time right here at the top of this segment. Let's remind everyone, if you want to help Jerry out in his ongoing battle with stage four cancer and how it has really just destroyed him in so many ways, especially financially, then help him out. If you enjoy Jerry on the show, help him out. Go to tinyurl.com slash gofundgoldenboy, and every dollar goes directly to Jerry Gray, and it really helps him out with his medical bills, his other bills, food, all the simple things that we think about. Jerry's having a rough time, and he has not only been a tremendous guest on this show, but he's been a tremendous friend to us at the Super Podcast, as well as so many listeners. So if you enjoy Jerry on this show, please consider giving whatever you can to helping him out. You know, Jerry, I wanted to ask you, just because there have been a few topics recently here on the show that have gotten a lot of attention, and I wanted to get your take on them, and let me start with one that I just thought about a little bit earlier, and that is The Destroyer. Dick Byer, who just recently passed away, we did a special tribute episode last time on the Super Podcast, and I was trying to remember if you were in Mid-South when he was there with Mark Reagan, and I think you were, were you? Yeah, I actually was, and I, I don't know if I had Mark Reagan's first match, but I had I think that was his first match on the television show. He was dancing like Michael Jackson doing all that. <laughs> That's stuff. right. And, yeah. and then, and then I can't remember the the name Dick Byer used them, but he was under a hood. The shadow over everyone. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Because Jim Cornette talked about him being there, too. Yeah. But I actually made a long trip with him and uh, Messiah Ito. Messiah Ito. Yeah. And uh, Pat Rose was driving, I remember, and yeah, it was a long trip. And I learned I had never been to Japan yet, but I was going to go like two years later. I didn't know, but I learned a lot from listening to all his stories about Japan. And I remember him smoking a lot of cigars. So I was smoking my weed. I don't think he, he didn't like it. I know he didn't smoke weed, for sure. <laughs> but he, uh, yeah, he was an interesting guy. And he, he was telling definitely, mostly he talked about Japan the whole time on the trip. And uh, good guy. What about Mark Reagan? Because Mark Reagan's a guy that showed some potential, even though some of his drop kicks, while they were impressive in height, sometimes completely missed the opponent that he was trying to kick. But yeah. he seemed to have some real potential, and then he just disappeared. 
What was he like to work with? Obviously, he was a rookie. It was his first match on TV working with you. But did you think this is a guy with a future, or what did you think? Um, yeah, he was a nice guy. But like I said, like you just said, he was he was so green you couldn't really tell. And then he was a real real big. But um, and then I think he was there again when I came back to Mid South, and he had improved a lot. He was there for a short time in '85, I think too. But um. Yeah, I don't know whatever happened to him actually either. So, yeah, he uh, and then you know Dick Byer trained uh, Rotundo too. I think it's the only two he ever trained that I know of. But um, it's because yeah, Rotundo like went to Syracuse, way. and Syracuse was Dick Byer's school. Yep, yeah. that's why. Yep, but the other uh, Mark Reagan must have went there too. Maybe I'm not sure. Yeah, but he was uh, definitely a character. Dick Byer on that trip, <laughs> he uh, I don't know. I don't think he left his mask on too long. Like wrestling too, always they always said he never take his mask off, but he he took his mask off right when we just pulled out of the parking lot. He didn't leave it on very long at all when the, you know the fans were still around and everything. I couldn't believe it when I first saw him. I was like, man, that was I mean, this was back in '84. I rode with uh, Johnny Walker a bunch of times, and he what he was looked that like? a lot older. Uh, it was kind of boring, but he actually smoked weed. I didn't know that at the time because I was trying to cafe because the, the way he looked like a, my grandpa or something. So I figured, man, I better not even mention this. But then I heard later that he smoked weed. Some people have told me. <laughs> but uh, no, he was he didn't talk a whole lot. It was just kind of like it would be like an 18-year-old guy riding with a 40 or 50-year-old guy, whatever he was. You know, not much in common. <laughs> and in Mid-South in 84, they would change Mr. Wrestling 2 into Mr. Wrestling 1 and bring in Ray Hernandez to be Mr. Wrestling yeah. 2 because number 2 was not 2 to anyone. So he became number 1. I think that was the way he put it. So they bring in Ray Hernandez, yeah. who eventually would be unmasked and be Hercules. And you had already known him, right? You had already been friends with him from the Carolinas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I liked Ray real good. Yeah, he uh, he actually wrestled on a lot of my shows, too, in the, uh, the 90s. So. Yeah, one time, uh, a good story about Ray Hernandez. We were sitting with Harley Race. He knew Harley Race from Kansas City because that's where he had came from. They sent him from Kansas City to uh, Charlotte. And uh, we were sitting having breakfast at a Holiday Inn with Harley Race, who was the world champion. So I was, I mean, really thrilled to sit there and hear his story. So, And Harley was telling us how what his weeks were, how much he was making. As, you know, the 10% he was getting out of the gate for being the world champion, he was saying, I just made 25000 in Florida for the week, and then I went to Alabama for the Fullers, and I made 20000 He was saying all these big numbers, and then after it's all over, we get all three separate checks, and then uh, Ray was so mad because Harley didn't pay for ours after bragging about making all these $20,000 weeks, and we're making 500 300 or whatever. <laughs> Pretty funny. But, uh, yeah, I was I was happy to hear the. I mean, most people don't tell you how much they're making, especially the big money like that. World champions back in those days, anyway. But uh, yeah, Ray was Hercules, a good guy. Yeah, tell me some stories about Ray Hercules Hernandez, and what do people who only saw him on TV not know about him? He was just a uh, fun guy. I mean, like never if you don't mess with him, he's not going to hurt anybody. And then. And then after he had changed the style a lot because he was really easy. I mean, never touched you even. It looked like he was killing you back in the 83. And then when I started using him on my shows, 
all those years later, that was when he had gone to New Japan and became one of the, uh, what was it called? Jurassic. The, uh, the Jurassic with Powers and, with him and Scott Norton. Yeah. So he, I mean, he had been there so much. That's where he's making a living in Japan. And he got to be to where he was one of the stiffest guys I ever worked. I had him on my show and I worked him and I thought he was going to kill me. We got into the thing where he, uh, a little chop contest and then his big, huge arms, you know, and then he was chopping with, with not just his hand, the whole arm across my chest. And then he gave me a clothesline. I was knocked out on my feet and then he got me in a chin lock and it was like, uh, I thought he was trying to choke me out, and then I told him, loosen up. And he was like, huh, huh? <laughs> and afterwards, I said, man, what, what the hell happened? He goes, oh, well, I'm not any good anymore. <laughs> he was a big funny guy. I like the story where Cornette told how he, uh, his door, the semi knocked his door off, and he still <laughs> act like nothing happened. <laughs> hey, what do you but, remember yeah. about the referees that you had in Mid-South? I think when you were there, you had Pee Wee Anderson. Maybe Alfred Neely. Who else was there? Carl Fergie. Um, when I was there, Fergie, I rode with Fergie a lot, all the time. He was uh, my good bud. And then, uh, yeah, and there was, uh, and then Ron West, the second time I was there. He was excellent. One of the best, if not the best, him and Tommy Young. Tommy but, Gilbert uh, was refereeing when you went back in 85, right? Yeah, he was, but I didn't like his refereeing because he tried to tell you what, you know, your high spot, the heel calls the match, you know, back then. And he would be trying to call the match for you while he's the referee. I'm like, I know what I know what I'm gonna do. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Was he doing that on his own, or was that the directive from the back? Was Bill Watts or no, Dick Slater no, saying, "Hey, no. go out there and you tell them what to do"? No. Or was Tommy Gilbert just going into business for himself? Yeah, yeah, that's what he, he was just doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He uh, anyway. He he was. Uh, I had some matches with him too, though, in Memphis in '80. I think it was '80. First time I was ever there, eighty four, beginning of eighty four. But he he could go too. Well, he never blew up either for the edgy well back then even. But yeah, the referees and then Pee Wee was there when I was there too. And um Tell me about Pee Wee. Um uh, I don't wanna say anything. The only thing I knew about him <laughs> but the junkyard dog is where he, he kinda got in from driving junkyard dog around and getting his stuff for him and everything. But the uh I'll tell you what a good guy junkyard dog was too. How faithful he would be if he if he told you he could do your date. I had a big show like in ninety or probably yeah nineteen ninety, and they won a junkyard dog after he had just been on WWE and all that WWF, and then they kept wanting junkyard dog, and then I said uh, okay I'll get him, and I called him and he said I'm already booked on that date, so I was like. Then he only wanted 500 or something. And I was like, well, I'll give you a thousand. And he goes, ah, man, I can't do that to that guy. You know, you uh, you know most wrestlers will be like, yeah. And then I said, I'll give you, I ended up being 2000. I told him because they wanted it so bad and they were going to pay me good, you know, this fair. And then he ended up turning down 2000 just so he wouldn't turn down the promoter. He said, that they already had him booked. So whatever people say, whatever people say about him, I found out right then how because Jimmy Snooker did did a show for me and he took the money one time, even though he got five grand by the time he was done, <laughs> five thousand uh, dollars. So uh, they wanted Snooker, and then somehow it got advertised Snooker. It was it's a long story, but I had a big show at a fair and I had a lot of big names on it, like ten big names. 
in the contract that said, in case one guy didn't show up, I always put like, it'd be 10 of the following 12 guys or whatever, you know, 12 stars. And they took it as where he was going to be there. So they advertised his name, even though he wasn't, you know, one of the, uh, and I finally gave him the card. I said, this is the card. And they said, no, we want Jimmy Snooker. What you put in us? And I'm like, God, oh, you got to be kidding. And then I call him and he was like, uh, I'm already booked, brother. And then I, <laughs> I never met him before at that time. And I go, uh, well, he usually got like 750 or 500 or whatever. And then I go, well, I'll give you more. You know, and he goes, how much? You know, and they say he couldn't count or read or write, but he knew how to get more money. <laughs> but he goes, uh, yeah, he goes, uh, how much uh, more? I need more. I said, well, I'll give you, you know, I kept saying smaller amounts at first, like 1000 He goes, no, no, I need 5000 brother. <laughs> I was like, 5000 and this fair was not going to do it. They were going to cancel the show and everything if I didn't have him. And it was like a $30,000 show. So I was like, shit, what the hell do I do? So I had to actually do it, paying $5,000. I was so mad because they were going to cancel it. At least he didn't demand that you book the Metal Maniac. <laughs> you know, no, he didn't that time, but I did end up having Metal Maniac <laughs> on <did>. one show. <laughs> really? One go? time I used him somehow. Oh, I know what happened. I had a big name. I advertised, and somehow they sent Metal Maniac. It was supposed to be actually Hercules. Yeah, Hercules was supposed to be on the show. And somehow a Metal Maniac was set in his place. I was like, that's not Hercules level, man. Come on. I don't even know who this guy is. Yeah, it was, he's, he was a nice guy, but it was just like, man, I'm, I'm not, you know, I get uh, Hercules paying for damn sure. The famous story about him was I think he worked one time at the Sportatorium in Dallas and. He worked early in the show, and then I guess during intermission, they had Kerry Von Erich in the ring doing Polaroids and signing autographs, <laughs> and the maniac got in line for his autograph photo while still in his full gimmick oh. after already working. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, he was, was different. <laughs> Definitely. Hey, you brought, but, up, yeah, you brought up the dog working for you when you started promoting mm -hmm. shows, and Hercules yep. worked for you. How many of those guys that you worked with in 84 and Mid-South ended up working for you when you became a promoter? Did the rock and roll ever work for you? Yeah, that's a really good story. Because um, what happened was right when they had just, I guess they got fired in 89, was it? 88, whatever year. Maybe 88? Yeah, 88. When they were really hot. you know. So I had this, the same fair that won a junkyard dog. I had... Uh, I think I found out rock and roll was, you know, fired or released and they were just working in Memphis. So I told them that they could, I could probably get rock and roll. So then uh, I figured I'm going to want a lot of money, you know? So I called Ricky Morton and he, uh, he told me some price and I was just like, are you kidding me for this? I mean, the name they are at that time, he said $300 each, you know? So I was like, no, nah, I'll give you guys $600 each. And he was like, Wow, are you kidding me? Hold on. And then he told everybody in Memphis. So then all the guys were calling me, wanting to be on the show. <laughs> like uh, Chris Champion, everybody, whoever was there in 88 in Memphis, uh, Chris Champion, all the guys, the whole the crew, whole crew was calling, wanting to be on the show. So I was like, yeah, well, I just want to rock and roll, man. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, and then I always ended up paying them that, all the shows after that. Always paid them the, pay, the deal that I made the first time. So they like that from me. They drew a hell of a crowd too. I had it down in Fort Lauderdale. It's a big, um, it's called the Swap Shop. It's like the biggest flea market type 
but it has like everything. It's like an indoor huge arena they have. And then they told us that we drew more than I think Tammy Wynette was there the week before. We drew like three times what she had rock and roll did. I think they had like I think two or three thousand back in those days for an independent. I mean, it was like a lot of people they drew because people loved them. I mean, still they were just right off of NWA TV, you know. Did you ever have any so, difficulties yeah. getting buildings considering you were running independent shows in the same state where you had first championship wrestling from Florida, but then after that folded, you obviously had the PWF for a while. Did you ever have any difficulty booking these shows and getting buildings? No, because they were all gone by that time. The PWF and all that. I was the only one that was pretty much that um, had the bigger fairs and arenas like that and stuff. Because I had the you know big names like Terry Funk and Dorian, Black Jet Mullig, all the people that were with Florida. They were still lived in Florida. <laughs> So I would use all the, you know, all the local talent that were huge names still, but I never had any problem no, with that. Hey, Jerry, let me ask you about something else that's been a real hot topic lately here on the show, and that is the Knoxville Wrestling War, the Knoxville Five, Ron Fuller, Southeastern Wrestling. I'm sure you've heard so many different segments mm-hmm. on various shows recently about it. And I know you weren't yeah. there when all of this went down, so I'm not in any way saying, hey, tell me what happened. Mm-hmm. But you were around all these guys. You got along with Bob Roop. You worked for Southeastern. You know a lot of the different characters who were also involved. So I really want to get your take and really your outside thoughts on the people involved as opposed to the specific incident and series of incidents in Knoxville. So let's take a step back. You worked for Southeastern for a brief period of time. What was that experience like for you? How was the pay? Did you feel like you were paid fairly? Talk about your first experience with Ron Fuller in Southeastern. I was only 18 years old, 19 years old, so um, the pay to me was great, but the houses were full everywhere we went, too, so, and that's when Bob Armstrong had first turned heel, so, and I actually never really talked to Ron Fuller face-to-face. We just met in the ring, and I got the wraparound punches for a bunch of times, but the uh, <laughs> when I was the destroyer, <laughs> and I was the destroyer for, you know, Bob Armstrong, I told you brought me out with a sling on his arm, saying that he can't wrestle tonight. This is his replacement, Bonnie Hunter or whatever. They brought me in for a couple of weeks, but um, and then I was there a bunch of other times after that too. It was just Jerry Gray, but um, but that time I never really, but I knew Robert Fuller a lot better. But Ron, I never really was, you know, in a room with him where we talked tonight. I was just in the ring only. So um, but the money was good, good money, and I didn't work the territory full time ever though. I know they wanted me to go bad. Uh, Steve Armstrong, when he was down here at the Southern Boys with Tracy Smothers, and when Florida was getting ready to fold, they uh, kept wanting me to go up there to the uh, Continental, I guess it was then, because I know Bob Arm- Armstrong owned some of it. They they kept wanting me to go there bad, and I already had the plan to start my own company, you know, and everything. So I would never go. They couldn't figure out why I wouldn't didn't want to go. But, um, yeah, I never worked the full-time territory there. Tell me about Bob Armstrong as a heel, because you were there when yeah. he had that big heel oh, turn geez. on Ron Fuller, and it was a different Bob Armstrong than we ever saw before. Before oh, that, God. or since, I mean, it was a brief period of time where you got this amazing heel Bob Armstrong. What was that like? <laughs> How good was he in the role in your eyes? And what were, you say the crowds were, were huge. Talk a little bit about it. You had been exposed to various wrestling territories by that period of time. How hot was it in Southeastern when you got there? That was some of the biggest heat I've ever seen. I think it was Mobile and Birmingham. I mean, 
we had to run. I didn't know what was going to happen after it was over the destroyer and everything after Ron Fuller beat me and everything, but then they still wanted to kill both of us, me and our Barrow Armstrong on the way back to the dressing room, all the police had to surround us and people were running. I mean, we actually had to run and all the people were behind us running, like trying to hit us and slamming the door, shutting the dressing room door, locking it and everything. It was like, geez, I mean, he had huge heat. Some of the best I've ever seen, really, besides the Mid-South, you know. Yeah, he, he was definitely over. Did you work much with Brad Armstrong during your career? Yeah, he was really good. Definitely really good. Smooth. One of the best. Him and Scott McGee were tagging a lot. I rode with them, too. Uh, some trips. I think I told about that, how Brad always liked my orange uh, weed I had. Because <laughs> I, I was selling weed. Uh, you know, wrestling part time and selling weed to the whoever wanted to buy it, the boy on the on the side. <laughs> and then he was like, You got any more of that orange shit, man? What the hell is that stuff? But uh, yeah, he was good though, definitely. Even back then, he was it was like eighty eighty one, I guess it was, eighty two. Yeah, he was really good. Well, let's now, Jerry, talk about the ringleader of the Knoxville Five, Bob Roop, because you were around him at various points throughout your career. He was also a booker that you work for. So you got to see him in various different respects. Talk about your thoughts about Bob Roop, what you've observed, what you think of some of the things you've heard. Tell me whatever it is that you're thinking. Um, I saw the, um, the interview that came out with the five of them. I didn't know. I don't, I met Ronnie Garvin. I knew Bob Orton Jr. from Japan and Malenko. I knew just cause I went to him a couple of times when I was like 16 to work out a couple of times, but I knew Bob, uh, Roop a lot better and at that time in 86 87 up until the territory folded in florida he was he never said one word ever that i ever heard like about you know taking over the territory or anything like that but one thing i ever heard was one time one of the houses was real big and they said the the count was like thirty thousand thirty thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars or something and uh him and Sullivan were arguing about saying, and Bob was saying, uh, no, there's no way. It's way more than that. And Kevin <laughs> said, no, I've been here a million times, and I know. Kevin said, I've been here a million times. I know that's what it is. That's what the house is. And then they were getting kind of heated a little bit about that. And then uh, <laughs> that's the one thing i ever seen at all where he was kind of getting mad about the money part. But one thing he did do, um, I hurt, I almost broke my arm one time, kind of separated arm. And he, uh, the only promoter I ever had that actually paid me while I was, I only took off for maybe a week because I just came back with a bandage on my arm. Back in them days, you didn't, you know, you didn't get any months off or anything like that. But um, I wanted to make money. So he uh, actually sent me money. I don't even know if the office knew about it. He sent, somehow he wrote checks and sent it to me while I was uh, hurt for that week or two. That's pretty cool. While he was the booker, yeah. So, and then one time he really, it kind of embarrassed me too and gave me heat, but he, uh, in front of the whole, all the heels, it was like, uh, Bushwhackers, Ron Bass. I can't remember who, who all the top heels were at that time, you know, in Florida. And he told all the dress room, the only wrestling heel we have is Jerry Gray. And I was like, oh my God, they gave me heat and made me feel good too. But what, what does he mean by that? The only heel we have, or the only wrestling heel, is it specifically about the heel. way you work? Yeah, because everybody else was just kicking and punching, and you know, Dick Slater's a wrestling heel, Bob Roop was a wrestling heel, Orton was a wrestling heel, you know. But 
you know, like Ron Bass, he, he didn't do wrestling really in Bushwhackers. They didn't, you know, sheepherders. It was just like a bunch, a lot of, the style he liked was more like, that's what Eddie Graham liked too. I mean, to wrestle and get your heat, but you got to wrestle too. <laughs> you know? Were you there but when anyway. he tried to run against Eddie? Well, not, not Sunbelt, um, but when they tried to do the Tough Man shows. No, but I heard about it. It was him, Ron Garvin, and Bob Orton Jr. And I think they were still up there in uh, ICW with Papa's, but they just came down to Florida to do with Ron Hill. He was part of it, I think. And they did a couple shows. And I, I wasn't with them at that time. I didn't start yet. I think that was like probably 79, maybe. Not sure of the exact year, but um, they entered a tough man contest in Tampa. All three of them did. And then all the audience knew who they were because they'd been there for years, you know, working on TV. So then kind of the judges made sure that, you know, the only pro, pro wrestlers can't win this because it's going to look like the contest is fake then. So even though they pretty much outpointed all their opponents and all, the, they still gave the other guys the decision somehow. Each each match got screwed out of it, they said. They didn't get knocked out or nothing like that, but they were beating each guy their opponents and then they made sure at the end though and then they got on the microphone i guess and said that uh how come the tough guys aren't here the big stars the pwf wrestlers championship wrestling forward how come they're not and they're supposed to be the toughest guys around you know they got on the microphone and said that how come they're not here mike graham did um on one of the uh interviews i don't know if it was a radio or news interview or something to promote one of their shows he did come there and punch one of the guys for real Cop police had to come and everything. I know that happened. Wait, he punched who? Yeah. It wasn't, I think it was either Ron Hill or not none of them, because I don't know. Bob Roop might have taken him, take him down. But um, yeah, he punched one of the guys. It was probably Ron Hill. I don't know if you know who he is, but Ron Hill. I think it was him or one of, just one of their guys, maybe one of their guys they trained or something. Well, but he did well, punch stop, Let me stop you right there, Jerry, just because a lot of the listeners okay. probably don't know who he is. Who is Ron Hill? Yeah. Okay, he's one. He started too, uh, where Les Thatcher did with the Tony Santos back in the days on, you know, the uh, Boston. He was an old timer from the. He was the Golden Gladiator on the um, independent thing there, and uh, the out. Uh, what you call it, the opposition there, and uh, Ann Gunkel's thing against uh, Georgia Championship. All wrestling. South, all South wrestling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Golden Gladiator. He had a mask. Ron Hill. Say, look it up. They'll see. I don't know if he's probably on somewhere on on uh, internet. But uh, yeah, he was uh, he was something behind the, that that company too that they tried to start. Well, they didn't run many shows at that time before Sunbelt. This is before Sunbelt. They only ran a few shows. Wait, and, you are you talking about the Tough Man shows? Or you're talking about separate wrestling events they ran against Eddie. No, Eddie they did Sunbelt. wrestling. Yeah, yeah, they did wrestling shows too. A few, and then they did the stunt, the uh, tough man, just to start that thing to say, like, how come the other tough wrestlers aren't entering this? We are. That's the only reason they did that, really, pretty much to, to show, like, make them look bad, you know. So it might have been about that same time they did the interview, '79, you know, probably was because they were trying to do stuff like that, say that the nothing was legit and everything. Yeah, but they they did some shows. I remember it wasn't a territory or anything. They just did a few shows. And probably around 79, I'd say it was. They came to Orlando and I don't know what other towns of Tampa, probably. Just like three shows, probably, from uh, wherever they were running, Knoxville. Or... Do you know how they did? No, I don't know anything about that part. But I know Bob Roop, um, 
he, he said the reason he had the falling out with Eddie was because of that. Um, what was it? He got sick of doing hurting everybody. He didn't want to hurt people at the, you know, the snake pit. He didn't want to do, he just wanted to stretch them. That's all, but he didn't want to break nothing. And you can even hear Eddie say break it on that one tape that's on YouTube, you know. You can hear Eddie saying break it, the arm or whatever on that one guy that keeps yeah the dummy that keeps <laughs> and uh and Bob's like, What? Break it and then he could tell he's not really trying to do anything that bad. But um he got sick of doing that. He said every minute he'd be calling down there to do it, do it again, break this guy, do this guy. And then he just got tired of it and then uh something happened where uh, Eddie sent him somewhere, and he got really mad about that. Australia, remember when somebody else took over Australia? I can't remember what who it was, but it wasn't Barnett anymore. Bobby Shane, and for some reason they didn't get along. I guess Bobby Shane and Bob Roop, and Bobby Shane was the booker in Australia. When when Roop went back again, and they wasn't even going to book him. Yeah, they wasn't even. They wasn't even. They said he had something. He did something illegal, and he. <laughs> I can't remember the exact story, but I know he got there all the way, flew to Australia, and then they said, you're not supposed to be here, and somehow he got approved to where he could go there. I don't know if it was through commissions or something, but anyway, because of the Olympics, it's a long story, but what happened was he got there, and and Bobby Shane couldn't believe it. He's like, you're not supposed to be here, and then Bob Roop said, yeah, I know. They said something about my thing, but I'm here. Look, and then they didn't like each other, and then they tried to make him like a job guy almost, I think. Bob got mad about that because Eddie sent him over there. And, and then that's one reason. And then when he did the Knoxville thing, he talked to Eddie again. He said after that, after the Knoxville opposition against Ron, you know, he said Eddie sent people up there to, you know, the competition against uh, Bob and them. You know what I mean? Eddie sent some. Yeah. So he was mad about that because he said he tried to, uh, he even called it a hostile takeover what they were doing yeah how could he be mad i'm mad that these guys are helping out their friends (laughs) while i'm trying to steal their company what the fuck how dare dick slater let his friend ron know that i'm trying to steal his company (laughs) he said something what was it he said they talked to eddie on the phone and eddie was talking out of the side of his neck like two-faced like acting like he was still his friend but then then he sent all them up there against him something weird i don't know i really don't know but you know who knows the real story Roop has had several stories about the falling yeah. out with Eddie yeah. and what caused it. And, you know, there's various stories and various excuses, but let's not get into that right yeah. now. Before we wrap things up, because yeah. you had a good experience with Roop. You actually never had a problem yeah, with him. No. And you were there when he booked. One last thing before we go, Jerry. Once again, here at the end of the segment, much like we did at the beginning, I want to remind everyone, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy is the way that you can help out Jerry Gray right now during his battle with stage four cancer. Jerry, as we wrap things up, is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners of the Super Podcast? Yeah, I'd just like to thank everyone again. And just if anybody can help me, and it doesn't matter if it's a dollar even right now, it's like, it's not, it's just everything going on because the, my, uh, GoFundMe was kind of messed up lately and it's still not, I can't explain it, but I'm not a computer expert and it's still, uh, having problems with it, like posting it kind of. And I still have some feeling somebody had something to do with that after all the fiasco with, uh, the guy has a nickname of Snake, but, um, kind of weird how all that happened. That's what Honky Talk Man even suspects. 
You know, by, by the way, real quick, Jerry, before we wrap things up, because I've heard from a few listeners confused about this. I guess yeah. the Jake camp, whenever anyone brings up, hey, Jerry Gray, or hey, Jerry Gray, still mm-hmm. waiting to hear from Jake, they now send a copy of a tweet that says something along the lines of, Jerry doesn't want Jake to pay him. Jerry doesn't endorse and had nothing to do with this campaign. This is Jerry's words. Is that true? No. I don't know what he's talking about. Okay. You know, you know the truth. Is, it happened organically where they said that, that saying, pay Jerry Gray. I, you know, that's what I said. It's not like I, I said, told everybody, you know, post that. What's it called? Hashtag. I don't even know anything about Twitter. Really. That's what I said. But I said, I didn't, I'm not the one that said, you know what I'm saying? I, it was think, organic. You didn't go out there and use your yeah. own hashtag, pay Jerry yeah. Gray. Hey, everyone, help me out. Pay. Yeah. Hashtag pay Jerry Gray. It That's was organic. Said, the listeners yeah. ran with it. Yeah. Yeah. He was trying to act like nice guy, whatever the guy behind that, whoever his no name guy is that was behind that podcast. He uh, was trying to act like two faced, trying to get information like that so he could, you know, post something like he did do. But all I said was, I, I, I don't even know how to do Twitter. So I don't know what the hell. All I know how to do is post my GoFundMe. That's about it. And ain't that the um, truth? You're horrible on social media. I know. That's <laughs> 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 what I said. They think I did this. Jesus. But yeah, so I don't, yeah, that's, that's complete bullshit. <laughs> and, in terms of, and, like, and in terms of Jake's whole thing that everything is made up, it's all the honky tonk man. Obviously, oh, the honky tonk man's pulling your strings. For the record, I just heard an audio tape of Bushwhacker Luke telling the drinking piss story. So yeah. there's, oh, a, really? there's another okay, person yeah. on tape on the record telling the exact same yeah. story. So, yeah. uh, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> at some point, it's not everyone else. It's the snake. I just want to say that. Yeah. What really pissed me off is when he, when he said, where would he get 10 grand? That's like, oh, he's really changed a lot. You know, such a good heart. You know, where would he get 10 grand? That's like, He's seen the shows I had. He was on the show I had back then in '99. It was $55,000 show. It was like, where would I get 10 grand? And I didn't give him 10 grand at, at, at all at once. And that was all the whole story was it was like a, you know, accumulation of a bunch of damn things. Every minute he's, you know, asking me, oh, get me out of jail, give me 500, give me 500 every, you know, week. It wasn't like 10 grand all at once. And, he wouldn't, and, and, and let then me stop Jake you right there, too, because I want to clarify something. You never came on the yeah. show and said, hey, Jake, pay me. Jake owes me all this money. No. You actually went the no. opposite way. You said Jake was my friend, and I did all these yeah. things for him. And if you add yeah. everything up, it would total more than $10,000. And, of course, the Jake What's camp, it? which seems to have serious comprehension issues, uh, and I'm guessing mm-hmm. several of them may not be able to actually read, uh, they seem mm-hmm. to think, Oh, Jerry said Jake owes him all this money. It isn't true. Jake would never. Well, you know, one person tells the truth and various other people back him up. The other person may or may not steal Mm -hmm. watches when he gets into a dispute with people at a convention. You never know. But before we get too deep (laughs) into this, Jerry, once again, let's go back to it. Any last words for the listeners of the Super Podcast? No, just thank you so much. And and that was a great show you did. I've listened to all of them still, even when the ones I'm not on, that was really good. The Destroyer. I like that one, and the last podcast, too, was great and everything. So I really appreciate everyone. You guys are like family, all the whole 605 mothership. So I'm fighting hard as I can, and I'll continue to tell stories. I got a million still, a million more.
There he is, the golden boy, Jerry Gray. Once again, tinyurl.com slash gofundgoldenboy to help Jerry out in his time of need. From there, you know, last week on the show, Jim, we had a Destroyer tribute. And the one thing I feel I didn't get to do that I wanted to do was include actual audio of the Destroyer doing promos. There isn't a lot of stuff. I mean, that's one of the sad things. Other than what exists from Japan, there's very, very little footage, let alone audio, of the sensational intelligent Destroyer in the United States. Very, very little. And you could say that about a lot of territories and a lot of wrestlers from this period of time. Well, I remembered that I had something, and I went back and I looked for it, and I found it. And what it is is a cassette tape of audio from 1964 in Los Angeles. And there's some really interesting people on here, from the Destroyer to his tag team partner, the Ripper, who you may know better as Rip Hawk, to audio of Dick the Bruiser doing these really, really interesting interviews in Los Angeles, to even Regis Philbin. We always hear about Regis having a relationship with Fred Blassie, and of course, there were so many WWF guys on his show in the 90s and the 80s, but he really had a long-term involvement with wrestling, going back to him hosting the morning show in Los Angeles all those years ago. So we get to hear a little bit of him. Let's now go to this audio from 1964 in Los Angeles. Uh, Mike Sharp. Well, incidentally, he asked for a bout with you. What do you think about that? He says that he can beat you any day you want. And he showed me some action last night that you didn't have much of a chance with him. Exactly what happened. This guy that looks like a fugitive from an ostrich farm, he's got legs like that, and a chest to hit Lassie, and his mazurki all blonde to the old, the old soldier's home over here on Putnik's Hill over here. They all three belong together after I've beaten Blassie down to a pulp. And by the way, I read in a paper that this jerk Blassie had a Charlie horse. Well, for everyone that can't read between the lines, he had a G-R-O-I-N injury, and he couldn't continue, and they had to carry him out of the place, and he's probably still in the hospital. Anyway, after I was massaging Blassie with my foot in the head, this jerk that looks like a turkey with his feathers off jumps me from behind. He didn't knock me around the ring. I stumbled on three marbles that some drunk threw in the ring. I slipped, fell on my head. I got up to tell everybody I'm all right. I slipped on another one. Then I went over and this, this jerk Stuck out his hand to shake hands with me, and I fell over the ring ropes backwards. That's what happened. He didn't knock me over the ring. Well, I don't know. We had about 3,200 people down there, and I suppose they had their version of it. I understand, according to your schedule, you're open on the 26th. That's two weeks from last night. And Mike Sharp said he would like to duplicate all that. What do you uh, think about this match? Anything I like to do is eat. Oh, rub on turkeys. <laughs> on Friday, whatever that date was. That's right, that's right. I'm going into L.A. Thursday. I got a little date with a girlfriend of mine named Wanda. I'm flying all the way from Chicago. She's a well-built baby. I'm going to drink beer. I'm going to get in shape. I'm off that Friday. If you want to guarantee me $1,000 to come down here and to meet this old turkey jerk, the guy that looks like a, a pheasant with his uh, feathers off, I'll be here. But one thing, 
don't let any of them more of these old bums, these old drunks, these old guys that live in San Diego. I think actually that you go out to their old ships in the mothball fleets and pick out all the old sailors that are under all that junk that they cover them up with and bring them here to, to wrestle a bruiser. In fact, I think you're a refugee from there, too. <laughs> well, anyway, we can count on that match, Sam. You can count on it. I'll have my belt. I'll put my belt up at stake. I'll bring Wanda with me. Does Wanda wrestle? Wanda doesn't wrestle, brother. <laughs> Wanda's a real athlete. We'll take in the burlesque show that afternoon. We'll drink a few beers, and the bruiser will be down there at that joint, ready to wrestle this Mike Sharp and all his friends. You'll probably have Mazurki with him, too. Well, you can stick Mazurki and Sharp and this other blast if he's well enough, right up in your, right in your ear, because I don't care how I'll whip them all. Doesn't matter to me. I can't stand those idiots, because even the destroyer looks like them. He's a halfway, too. The Bruiser prepare for their wrestling match. Uh, you'll love this. What you got on the phone? In, in an epic, epic wrestling match for the championship. And first we're going to see how these boys prepare for the match. Then we're going to see a little bit of oh, the Destroyers back in town. The Destroyer was on our show a number of times. He's up to his old tricks. He just gets that crowd into a frenzy. And uh, he and his buddy Jack the Ripper uh, won their match. <laughs> Jack the Ripper? Jack the Ripper, yeah. Oh, no. And then, uh, so they stood in the ring and they challenged the Taurus brothers, who are the current holders of the tag team title, to come into the ring, which the Taurus brothers did. I mean, you knew they were coming anyway, didn't you? They all dressed up. up. No, no, all dressed up, and the Destroyer ripped his shirt off, and it was a madhouse. And then we're going to see some of the classic wrestling holes between two of the greatest showmen in wrestling, Dick the Bruiser and Freddie Blassie. First to the dressing rooms before the match. Now watch this. This is Freddie Blassie combing his hair. Look at this. This is how he prepares for the match. See what makes me mad? His is longer than mine. <laughs> Look how careful he is. Concentrating. Precision combing. <laughs> Ignoring me. <laughs> Isn't he marvelous? He's beautiful. Now he's making that little, what is that, a ducktail or something? Yeah. Very straight line back there. Got to be perfect. Now for a last look. Oh, no, he's warming up a little bit. He warms up with the weights. He's in his shorts there. Incidentally, they're blue lace panties, if you want to. <laughs> uh -oh. Now he's warming up a little bit. And now he's combing his eyebrows. <laughs> Isn't he beautiful? Now... Uh, oh, he found Ernie Ladd's shoe, and he put it on his own shoe. Oh, that lad has got the biggest feet in the whole world. Look at that. Puts his own shoe right inside Ernie's shoe. Now, here's the bruiser. Look how he warms up. Smoking a cigar, drinking his beer, reading his girly magazine. <laughs> Pours the beer on his head. That's how tough he is. <laughs> oh, he's so tough. Oh, he's getting so McKissis his dolly, and he walks out. I kill and I name. Look how big that lad is. We watched the uh, some of the bouts from uh, a corridor there. Ernie's just he's bigger than ever. Here's the crowd getting ready, and that the destroyer is in the ring now. 
He's infuriating them. When the Tory brothers come down, they come in the ring. The destroyer starts pounding them. Jack the Ripper is working over the other Tory's brother. And the crowd was uh, near panic. But then the destroyer gets frightened, of course, leaps out of the ring, and runs up to his dressing room. All of which is by way of telling us that those two are going to be next week. The stage has now been set. Now, here, here's the bruiser. Look, look at Freddie. <laughs> He's fighting him. Mm -hmm. I don't know who he's applauding for. <laughs> now here goes Flassie against the rope. He's a master at this. He looks like he's really getting his brain beaten up. Oh. You see the reaction that Freddie has. Oh, Johnny Garfield never took a fall like that. <laughs> <laughs> then the then the bruiser starts kicking him. It's mayhem, and the crowd's yelling for more. Now look at this horse. <laughs> I love Freddie's reaction. Picks him down. Throws him down. Choking him. Poor Freddie. Somehow Freddie won this first fall. <laughs> he sure did. Now Freddie's working over the bruiser, and the bruiser's back on Freddie, trying to pull his mouth apart there, I think. Gouge his eyes out. The referee is Mike Mazurki. Not, not quite as awesome. Now, I don't know what this is called, but it sure looks good. Oh, the bruiser's in agony. He kicked his way out of it. Oh! I don't know why Blassie bothers to comb his hair before he goes out there. Now, now he's got him tied between those two ropes. <laughs> they can't get him out. <laughs> oh, that bruiser. These guys have got to get Now, here's... <laughs> and that's how the first fall. Lassie won the first fall. That was it. We can only save for the first fall. But now look at Freddie. Look at him. This is him after this, after the first fall. Almost looks like he lost. But somehow the Bruiser made a gallant comeback and went on to win the match. Oh. We'll be right back now. And just one and right, the big night, because the destroyer will be on the card, lending my intelligence and my ability. You know, a lot of people think you're going to pay to see the Bruiser and Carpenter. Well, you got news for him. The destroyer is going to be there, and there's going to be a lot of fans to see this. Now, now I've got something I want. a lot about what you do. Where did you, how did you ever become what you claim to be? Listen here, I held that world's belt. These people know I held that belt. You know there's no wrestler in the ring today to compare with my intelligence and my skill. Know you know, my, you might not like my tactics, but you like I my skill. All right. Skill. All right. Now, I do not like some of the acquisitions that have been passed around about my partner and I. We have been told to go out by a certain tag team champions to get a reputation. Now, what kind of a reputation they want? You know this Inoki here? I annihilated this guy in Japan just about one year ago today. Yeah, he's a new man. There. He's a different man. Than That's he was right. He was Ricky Dozan's protege, so I took it out on Ricky and this Inoki. All right, now, since then, I've been in Japan, Hawaii. I held the Northwest Heavyweight Championship belt. I was a world heavyweight champion here. I was co-holder of the world's tag team championship. I took a month off after wrestling in Portland and toured around the country. Now, I picked the one man I thought could equal any partner that I've ever had, and I picked the Ripper. I've chased this guy, and I've guaranteed him to come out here to be 
the world's tag team championship. So we've uh, been told. Get over a couple of pretty All strong. All right, now kids, wait a minute. We've been brother. told to go get a reputation. Now I want to know. This guy will tell you where he's been. This is the Ripper. Well, listen, now look know. at the reason I got this guy. He's the only guy I could find that's a little better looking than I am. See, oh, <laughs> he's got that profile. That's see? absolutely right. You know, I come out here not only to wrestle as to destroy his partner, but I come out to give these people a break out here. They they holler about all the good looking people out here. When the Ripper is here, have no fear. He's the most handsome man that's ever hit Hollywood. We got a lot of miles. Thirty cents a dozen for profile. Thirty cents a dozen. They're a bunch of bums. But enough of that. The women know here. They know how good looking I am. They can see all this. What do you do in the ring? But you have seen what I can do. You've seen what the destroyer can do. Now we're here to meet and beat any challengers that we have, that we can uh, they say get. It's pretty hard to win. It's unseated incumbent. And the Torres brothers are pretty well. Seen. Well, I don't know. We're not uh, talking about them uh, in particular. We're talking about any any teams that you have out here. But if they want to try us, they're welcome to. Believe me, they're, they're probably a bunch of bums well, like the rest of the Jersey. Don't worry. All right. Well, 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 remember, we don't like to brag. No, I can see that. Very modest fellow. Hello. And hello, here are you. the champion tag teams. Well, there you are. I couldn't help uh, overhear what this uh, guy said here. That we don't, we haven't made any acquisitions about uh, them getting our, our reputation or anything like that. Even though we got the title, we're ready to defend our title against uh, any challenges or any. Anybody right. so It's an open challenge. Anybody can you know, can challenge us. We'll give them a match for the championship. We're ready, and we'll, we'll give them a match. We'll get our reputation. Just you worry. You and you. Just remember that. We've got it. Don't let's try to be gentle. We wrestle all over the country. Look out, All right, cut it out. Hey, you, get over that. All right, cut it out. Cut it out. All right, never mind. Now let's 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 settle down. Then you got we don't rid of that pepper belly because we'd annihilated it again right here. Yes, we're wrestling this week. Uh -huh. Regardless of that, Mr. Lane, you know, you've been downgrading me, and you had a couple of Japanese wrestlers here before. I want to tell these people out here, and you, that next week on this show, I'm going to unveil a new figure four. You got that? A new figure four with a double bar arm. I learned this from a judo champion in Japan. He showed me his favorite figure four, and I showed him mine, see? Well, I got to tell you this. You do it better than anybody I've seen since Frank Wolf. Listen here, there isn't anybody got the legs I got, see? Million dollars, right? All well, right. The trick is to now, get the whole arm. If people want to see this team in action, all they got to do is get in their little car and drive down to San Bernardino, see, Saturday night, and they'll see the Ripper and the Destroyer annihilate them. But if that's too far for them, they just drive out that Pasadena freeway on Monday to the Pasadena Arena, and we'll be there, see, you Monday see, night. You see, we're in such great demand around here. And, and they're begging for our services, all these promoters. And we've decided that we will give them all a break, but they'll, they'll have to stand in line. You understand that? Oh, yeah. I mean, we can only be at one place at a time, even though we're in, uh, in this great demand. And another thing I would like to beg the women uh, in this area and all the areas that I wrestle, please do not block the doors at the arena or I'll have to have a truck come in and haul them away. You see, they're after the destroyer and myself so desperately they want us that uh, they're just blocking uh, traffic, causing a lot of headaches for the police, and we, we're tired of this. But our main objective here in California is to wrestle, beat all comers, 
Uh, well, don't you, you forget it. Here to go over. Well, I don't know. We jumped a few tonight, don't you think? We jumped one tonight, last week. They're, they're all right. Uh, rank amateurs. You, you know what you're going to have to do? You know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to knock out one of your teeth so you aren't so good looking. See, that's what I had to do when I come in here. I rip one out. I, I can understand that and I can appreciate it. I, I will yeah. have to do that. You know, they got a show coming up here on July 1st. Like I said before, it's the Bruiser and Carpentier, see? I'll just wait my turn to rip or wait their turn. The Bruiser and Carpentier in the first seat. Uh-huh. And we'll be on the cars, so the people won't. You know, one thing I can't stand is all these big mouths that they got around here. They're, They're disgusting. You got that sickening with the Bruiser, Carpentier, all of them. Yeah, that's, that's what I keep telling. The big mouths always are in here. The big mouths. Well, on July 1st, there'll be plenty of big wrestlers in the ring. There's the champion of the world, the Bruiser himself. Well, my, how elegant we are. I'm still the world's heavyweight champion. Well, you got two weeks' grace, they tell me, before Mr. Carpentier comes to town. The belt's still in there. I'm going to have it after Carpentier and I have our match here two weeks from tonight. I'll still be carrying this. There's one thing. One of my buttons is missing here. Well, a lot of guys lose around here. Because I hit that... That big jerk that's a chicken-livered promoter or matchmaker or whatever he is right in the eye with it last week. Now I've been admonished, I've been chastised, I've been sentenced, I've been flirted, I've been everything by the station, by the commission, and everybody else. I'm not to use this. I can't strike anybody. I've got to act like a church director. I've got to act like I'm leading a choir. Well, I'm, this is all going to be done. In two weeks from tonight... I'm grabbing Carpentier. I'm in training as of this minute until two weeks from the night. I hear Carpentier is personally being trained by that poor old Hungarian waiter, Xander Zabzo. Hungarian waiter? Yeah. I hear he and Zabzo are personally training. While I'm personally training, I'm personally training with every drunk on the Sunset Strip. Well, there and you are. With the melodious tones of the bruises still ringing in our ears, let us take leave of the wild savages along the line. Good night, all. We'll see the Russian, we'll see the Bruiser, we'll see Bob Ellis, we'll see the Boom Boom Mahalik, we'll see the Destroyer, we'll see Ramon Torres, we'll see the Ripper, we'll see Don Duffy, and we'll see Gonzalez Gonzalez, flashy young fellow up from Mexico. We've got a lot of things to see here tonight. Card isn't quite ready in the rings. The unit that's been riding in is back east right now. He's in New York. Uh, he's wrestling in uh, New Jersey this Friday, I think it is, in Madison Square Garden next Monday. So Freddie's on his way to the uh, uh, so to some fine matches in the East. Oh, brother. Oh, some of these I won't read, no. The district attorney or whatever your name is, you bummer. I usually come here dressed like an ordinary, typical Los Angeles drunk. But tonight, after I sat up there and watched this typical Los Angeles nuts and bolts, I got shaved, I put on my best suit, I put my best cigar, I polished my world championship belt, I shined my shoes. I'm a typical gentleman, and why? 
Because I think that sweet thing in those ballerina shoes would try to kiss me if I got too close to him. And I want to smell good for him. Well, the way he'll kiss you next Wednesday night won't be on the lips. You noticed him tonight? He was using Savat. Don't act like everybody else around here. Savat or Sabuli or Murray Chevrolet or Carpen Carpenter or whatever his name is. I'm telling you, bum, I'm going to beat him next next week. And I was sitting there tonight, watch. Get that mediated thing out of here. You're burning up my clothes with all that light. I'm telling you one thing. When he does the flips, the bruiser will do the flips. When he stands on his hands, the bruiser will stand on his hands. When he does drop kicks, I'll kick him right in the groin. You can bet me. Get out of here. I'm going to be back in a minute. After I come back in a minute, I'm getting off this suit. And I've got an important announcement. I'm going to set everybody on their ears. I'll get out of here. Goodbye I, now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the champion of the world. Next Wednesday night meets a very worthy challenge. Remember our telephone number here, Richmond 95171. Here's Sam Benson for our sponsor. Guy is here with an umbrella over his head. Doesn't look like it's raining. That's a straw Stetson and a good one. Well, it looks like a cheap one. He probably paid three dollars for it. Listen, can I say your what, mail is getting to be a, a kind of a pain around here. Your mail is piling up. Well, that, that only. I mean, listen, it's it's natural for me to get a lot of mail. I've told you before. And you can tell that I'm not like these other big mouths like the Bruiser and Ellis and Blassie and Carpentier. They all get in here, they shoot off their mouth, they do a lot of hollering. I don't. They all brag. I don't. I'm good. I know I'm good. I'm the best. And uh, let's face it, no, that's the reason that I get all the mail. I'm good looking. I have one of the most fantastic profiles in or out of the wrestling business. And I think tonight, last week I didn't give these people a break, but tonight I will give them a break if I could get these guys to dolly in. Do you think they will? Do you think well, they're sharp enough? With the boy. Is that pretty Isn't that handsome? One? Isn't that just too much for the world? That's enough. I don't want to give them too much. Angel, they can stand you. Now, that, don't you get smart. You don't see them taking profile shots of you. No, I'm thinking But I'm, I'm, I'm through with this now. I've just said what I've had to. The people here mouth off. I never shoot my mouth off. I don't brag or anything. So it's all yours. You can have it. All right. People can have it. There you are. The Ripper. Incidentally, his mail is terrific here. Look at here, Lane. I just I saw that profile. You, you should never turn sideways. Listen here. You think you found out. I told you I took this tooth out yeah. just a minute so it, didn't look, so it looked like I wasn't as good looking as I am. Now, you just take a good look at this face because you're going to see a lot of it. Get it in there close because you're going to see a lot of it. When this guy here starts moving around some of these towns, and just take a good look. I hope George Drake down there in Catalina is looking. Because, George Drake, I'm looking right at you. And come next Wednesday night, it's going to be your Waterloo. Anybody that comes from California can't be too good. This is the best thing that ever happened to California. They had champions in here last year in these bum Dodgers, but they've fallen by the wayside. The real champion, the real athletes right here. You know, Lane? When I go in the ring, I've scouted every opponent, every opponent. If you go to any of the arenas, I don't care where you go, from Pasadena to San Bernardino to Long Beach, you'll see me in the back scouting every wrestler, you know. Take a look at these shoes. Take a look at the legs first, and then look at the shoes. You know why those shoes are worn there? You know why they're worn there? That's from wrestlers that win. If you see any wrestlers that got heels worn, then you know they've been beat. But when they're worn on the toes, you know they've been beaten. Now, you got you got some smarts, huh? Yeah, I got smarts. Now, 
Next week, you're going to see the Bruiser and Carpentier. All that right here at the Olympics. Tell them they're arrested. You can tell them they're winning and losing, see? You, you got a few smarts that you can tell a wrestler well, from another wrestler. You haven't seen Mr. George Drake in some time, and he'll give you some trouble. Look, anybody from California hasn't got too many brains, see? Like I says, I'm going to watch the Bruiser and Carpentier, but the people will be, see, the intelligent one. The intelligent, sensational destroyer. I got a few other names for you I'll tell you about a little later on. Here again. Oh, Haggerty, I'm certainly glad to be on the scene once again. As you know, it's been about... Oh, five or six years since I've been here, and of course all the fans will remember that I had that program, Beat the Champ, that was where, which emanated from the Hollywood Legion Stadium, and of course that was where, that if anybody would beat me, they would get a thousand silver dollars, and of course nobody got a thousand silver dollars. Well, well Haggerty, you're going to create an excitement. Well, well, Dick the Bruiser, my friend, you know we're old teammates from the Green Bay Packers, he asked me to come back here, and I'll say this, that it won't be too long before the name of hard-boiled Haggerty will once again be on the lips of every wrestling fan in California. Well, there you are, spoken well. Hard-boiled Haggerty, and brother, there's a man in a ring. All over the south. Well, my friends, things are getting a little hot for you. What is it? Well, I want everybody to know it's the same. Get that thing back there. Two weeks from tonight, 
you don't see Carpenter turn out of here in a sausage skin, I'll still be here. I'll still be doing my gymnastics. I'll still be at ringside. All right, Wanda, baby, here I come. Let's get All right, Dad. Take him over, Wanda. He's all yours. He's all yours, Wanda. Oh, man. God. Look out. Glad you signed up for that bout. Well, I see that you and all your cohorts and the athletic commission and everybody in town, the Junior Chamber of Commerce, and everyone's gotten together and they got the short order cut from Archie Moore's restaurant and you're going to run him in against me in three weeks. Is that Ernie, lad, the short order cook? He's the short order cook or he's the doorman out there. I haven't figured out which one. In the first place... Ernie Ladd plays with this neophyte, this beginning football league that you got here in town. Uh -huh. He's a starting uh, grade school tackle with that team. Uh, I played with the big leagues, you know, the uh, National Football League. Uh -huh. and that's where I got my uh, name, the Bruiser. I used to break their legs. Then uh, last year, they uh, thought they had the toughest tackle they ever had uh, that was suspended or taking a few uh, things out of his pockets or betting or something, a guy named Karras, they put him against me. This is the best tackle. This is the best tackle in the National Football League, the league that this league that you're in watches to find out what's happening. I, I played in your league, too, you know. Well, that's right, but that's when that's they... That's before you were that's, born. That's right. That's when they had horse and buggies, and uh, everybody used to jump on the hay wagon to come watch a football game. But we're talking in the last 52 years. Uh, Dick the Bruiser, anyway, annihilated this Karras in, in Detroit. He had one match that was against Lee. Now he's decided that football isn't such a bad thing. He's going to quit gambling, and he's going to go back and play football where he's safe. And he won't have to wrestle me. That's what happened to the best football tackle in the other league. Now yeah, but he was here. not a wrestler. Well, you don't think this kid's a wrestler, do you? When the Bruiser, last night I met a terrific wrestler. He's about six foot nine, weighs 320 pounds, got legs like a neck. steam engine, and got a 22-inch neck, and I beat him to death. So what is it? Do you get a great pleasure out of mutilating a man like what that? What a green kid like this got to do? When I get through with this Ernie lad, he's going to have a spear and... There it is, some really, really cool classic audio from Los Angeles in 1964. Once again, big, big thanks to Lou Kippelman for helping me clean up this audio to make it ready for air. I really appreciate all of Lou's contributions to the show. And from there, it's time for Book of the Week! And in honor, Book of the Week! <laughs> there it is! And in honor of Jim Valley being here on the show, we're going to do for the Book of the Week something I mentioned briefly last week when talking about the Gene Kaniski book. It is Professional Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, A History of 1883 to the Present by Steve Verrier. This is a very interesting book. I say it's in honor of Jim because Jim, of course, has the Portland WrestleCast at WrestlingObserver.com. But this book is really interesting. You know, we talk a little bit, Jim, about Pacific Northwest wrestling in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s. You know, just don't let the Athletic Commission know. But this book, like it says, goes back to 1883. It really traces the roots of wrestling in the Pacific Northwest before Don Owen, before Elton Owen, 
before any of that. So you get a lot of information about what wrestlers were in and out of the Pacific Northwest. How did the promotion rise up? The NWA Portland promotion run by Don Owen. There's a lot of really, really cool information to research in this book. Jim, have you had a chance to check out this book? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. I got it. I think it was last year, the year before, when he was at Cauliflower Alley Club. I talked to him for a while. I was surprised to learn that he wasn't didn't watch Portland wrestling growing up. But what's cool about the book, what I really liked about it, is it kind of filled in some gaps on some other names. Like you mentioned, you know, people talk to me about Portland wrestling. It's always the grappler, Buddy Rose, Billy Jack Haynes, Scotty the Body is Raven, those type of things, you know, the later things, because that's what people grew up with. But this goes back to some bigger names that you probably haven't heard of. Uh, names like Bill Savage, not Dutch Savage, completely different guy, Bill Savage. Uh, talks about another big star that nobody talks about by the name of Kurt von Poppenheim. He talks yeah. about, you know, Matt Bourne's dad and kind of the history of of tough Tony Bourne and Lonnie Main and how they carried the territory. But, yeah, it goes back to, to Herb Owens. And it also talks about, you know, and I mentioned this on my show, you know, initially there wasn't a Pacific Northwest heavyweight championship. It was the Pacific Northwest Junior Heavyweight Championship until like 57 or 59. I forget off the top of my head. So it's just there, there's a lot of things to learn there that he covers and it's you know what is it less than 300 pages or so so i mean there's a lot of information packed into all of those pages it's almost like a textbook but if you want an even broader picture of wrestling in the northwest and even after portland wrestling closes he talks about the independent years so he talks about guys like gorgeous michelle star uh, who's a who's a longtime veteran who's at Cauliflower Alley and and all of the different promotions, all star wrestling and when ECCW, which in the '90s and late 2000s was Extreme Canadian Championship Wrestling, became Elite Canadian Championship Wrestling, and that's a place where Becky Lynch got a lot of experience and where the Singh brothers are from. So there's definitely some things in the book that you will learn and it does very, you know, cover a lot of ground in uh, in a pretty compact number of pages. Our book of the week, Professional Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest: A History of 1883 to the Present by Steve Verrier, and you can get that book at Amazon and if you're going to go to Amazon, use our show link tinyurl.com/superpodamazon. By using that link, you support this show. You keep this show exactly how it is without really, really insulting and obnoxious ads, without sponsors that you want to say, hey, fuck you, without any of that shit. You keep this show the way it is. This show is listener supported. And if you want to do that, the best way to do it is Amazon because you don't pay any more money. You go to the link, tinyurl.com slash superpod, Amazon, and you just add something to your cart. And once you do it after you use that link, we get a little bit of love and support. We get a little bit of credit from those fine people at Amazon. And that's a great way to help out this show. So once again, for all your purchases and for all your family's purchases, use tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. 
Lots of other shows have links they beg you to use. Lots of other shows, well, let's just be honest. Lots of other shows really fucking suck. You need to ask yourself, which show am I going to support? Is it going to be the suck-ass fucking guys? Is it going to be people that don't know how to do interviews? Is it going to be people that for some reason want to host wrestling shows but have no, seemingly no knowledge whatsoever about the past? People don't know how to ask follow-up questions? People who just seem to want to have a show for no good reason? Or should you support the mothership, the best wrestling podcast out there, the granddaddy of them all. You have to make that decision yourself. You have to ask yourself, should I support the suck-ass shows or should I support the super podcast? And I think if you ask yourself that question, the answer will be quite obvious. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to them or us, fuck those guys. Support the super podcast. Support your super podcast. And from there, Jim, let's now go to a conversation I had with Les Thatcher. We talked about various topics, including the Knoxville War, the Georgia War, and of course, the Wrestling Cousins. And I guess we should make a note here. This was recorded shortly before the passing of Roger Kirby, who you will hear talked about in this interview because he was one of the Wrestling Cousins. I did want to make note of that. Of course, our condolences to the friends and family of Roger Kirby, but this interview was conducted before his passing but with that said let's now go to this my conversation with les thatcher i am very happy today to welcome back to the super podcast someone who was very very nice to me when i was a kid bothering him with lots and lots of questions at smoky mountain wrestling and that is your friend and mine les thatcher les welcome back to the show well thank you brian at first i've got to say that uh, a friend of mine listened to you and jimmy on a podcast the other day and said, those guys just ruin your reputation. <laughs> and I said, what did they say? They said you were kind and a gentleman, or classy. And I said, oh, my God. They said, I'll, I'll never get work again in the wrestling business. <laughs> well, let's not say that. But it is a pleasure to have you back on the show, Les. I've been meaning to have you on for a while. And everyone's been talking about Knoxville wrestling again. All these years later, 40 years after the Wrestling War of 1979, there's been different things that have come up, different developments, and people are talking about it again. And I want to get your perspective because when it comes to Knoxville wrestling, your name is the top of the list of people who are there for everything. But before we get there, I did want to ask you about a different part of your career, the wrestling cousins. Because as I said to you off air, this is one of the areas of your career I don't know too much of the details about. I've always read about you being one of the wrestling cousins, that it was something that you guys did that really got over when you did it. But I don't know too much about it. What can you tell me about the Wrestling Cousins? Well, that was uh, Dennis Hall, who's passed away, Roger Kirby, and myself. And we were all uh, relatively, well, actually, Dennis and I started the business actually before Kirby did. But those, both of those guys from Indiana, and I'm an Ohio boy. So when I first came out of Boston in 60, uh, late 61, then I went to work for the Indianapolis office, Barnett, in uh, early 62, I met Dennis and Roger and we just bonded. We were all, you know, relative, well, not the same age, but, you know, in terms of in the business about at the same level, all of us still getting our feet wet, you know, uh, working the, the uh, you know, the plims and, and uh, you know, just earn our stripes, I guess, more than anything else. And so we, you know, in this territory, we traveled together. Hall and I uh, went to Calgary together in in 62 for a while. But in uh, basically how the cousin thing came about, Roger and Dennis were actually cousins by marriage. 
Dennis married a cousin of, of Rogers, and so that's how they actually were cousins. So anyway, I had been in, in 66, I'd been in Phoenix and came back here and uh, back home to Ohio and was, uh, you know, doing some, uh, working some for the Bruiser and Snyder, but, uh, you know, looking for the next adventure. And Kirby and Hall had gone to Atlanta. And so uh, I got a letter from them, and I answered the letter for those young, two young letters or something you write with a pen on a piece of paper, and you put a stamp on it. I'm being facetious now, Brian. Anyway, uh, so they were saying how much yeah, how much they enjoyed it, uh, the Georgia Territory. Leo Garibaldi was the booker at the time, and I had been a big Garibaldi fan as, as a kid, you know, watching he and his dad when they were a tag team uh, coming off the West Coast. Leo was a fiery babyface. Anyway. They said, would you be interested down here? And I said, well, yeah, sure. So anyway, one day my phone rings and uh, it's Kirby. And he says, uh, we're in the Atlanta office and Garibaldi wants to talk to you. So they put Leo on the phone. Leo says, these guys say you can work. Are they lying to me? And I said, well, I hope not. <laughs> anyway, so uh, you know, he said, when would you like to start? So we set up a starting date. And as it were, uh, Hall was going to Tampa for a while. And so... Uh, they had, you know, we mentioned the cousins thing just came up in, in the course of Dennis had come back up Roger. And, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Leo started putting Roger and I together as a team in Atlanta. And, um, so Dennis had come up just for a week. He had some time off and came up and hooked up with the two of us. And, uh, so the whole idea for the cousins thing came up. And so we decided we would go with that. And so I started, you know, doing some publicity stuff. They they left that in my hands. So the first place we actually, uh, Curb and I had gone down to work uh, Dothan. Uh, we were just, at the time, just being loaned out. Rocky McGuire and Lee Fields were run, uh, had the Mobile office and the Louisiana. And at that time, that was way before uh, Watts or, or uh, any, you know, had, had gotten involved with Louisiana. So anyway, we had gone down and worked a couple shots a, sa a Friday, Saturday uh, for Rocky McGuire. And they said they needed a, a good babyface team for the Louisiana end. And so they asked us if we'd be interested. And, and so we went back and talked to Leo, and we made the move. So, And the deal was there for, for Hall to come in behind us. And so we got involved there with six mans with uh, Dalton's, Donnie Fargo, Frank Dalton. And actually, it was supposed to be Bob Dalton, who was Johnny Long. But for whatever reason, he left the territory in the middle of the whole uh, program and so it ended up in the six mans being Bull Ramos and uh, Kirby Hall and I uh, against the Daltons and, and Ramos. But Kirby and I had worked a big, big programs in all the major towns uh, for the uh, NWA U.S. tag titles with the Daltons. And uh, but that's where the thing first started. Then uh, Eddie Graham uh, came into Dothan and said, "Hey, you're going to be the uh, NWA Rookie of the Year." We want you in Tampa to do the presentation to work there for us for a while. And so Curb came in back, came in down there, and we worked uh, a lot of tag team stuff there. Then the three of us went to the Carolinas. And, uh, no, you know, the funny thing is we were basically kind of doing the Freebirds thing before the Freebirds. But, well, actually before they were even in the business. Michael and, and Bill Moody, actually Paul Bear or, or Percy, whatever you want to call him, those guys used to buy tickets to Mobile to watch us work, for God's sakes. But anyway, uh, but nobody was buying, really buying into it. You know, I mean, we switched uh, Louisiana, let us go. We talked to George Becker about doing it in the Carolinas, but George, uh, you know, wasn't, uh, didn't 
take kindly to it or didn't think it was a good idea or whatever. So uh, there, it, it's uh, we still got a chance to work together some, but it, but basically petered out at that point. So we were, you know, we did this thing a few years, and uh, but I mean the, the the big deal of it was was you know we were buddies. I mean we, it was it was family basically, you know. And Kirby had a living girlfriend. Hall and I usually shared an apartment wherever we were going. But uh, it was great times. It was a great time. It really was. Those guys, they are. Those guys are just like family with me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I make a joke out of it, Brian, but uh, Nelson Royal was my tag team partner in Southeastern. And uh, before he became junior heavyweight champion, and Kirby was my partner before he did. So I used to rib and say, I train the junior heavyweight champions before they move up and get the title. <laughs> but that that's, you know, basically the long and the short of it. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Those guys, you know, uh, are really talented guys, and, and they were close friends. And I, I didn't get a chance to see Kirby this year at the at the Tennessee thing. He was having a little health problem. But uh, he and I, you know, Dennis passed away a few years ago. And uh, Kirby's had both knees and both hips replaced. And he tells people that's my fault because he had to take all the bumps. <laughs> You're not that's denying not it, though. You're not, oh, no, well, no, it's okay. not. I, I told you, I said, I took them when they were necessary. You just took them to be taken. them. There's a big difference there. <laughs> you know, you bring up being in the Carolinas. And, of course, you're in the Carolinas when Ron buys Knoxville. And you start coming to those early shows. You're in there with Nelson Royal. And you become a big part of Southeastern Championship Wrestling. Some might say you're right there, right next to Ron. You, Mac McMurray, and Ron are really the three guys who got that territory up and running and turned it into the powerhouse that it became for a time. But you were in Knoxville before that. You had worked for Kazana. You had teamed up at Whitey Caldwell. So you saw Knoxville Wrestling in its earliest form, or at least earlier than Southeastern Championship Wrestling. What was it like before Ron bought Knoxville? Explain what it was like when it was Kazana's territory, or at least Kazana's town. Well, you know, when you talk about uh, old school, uh, the first time I worked Knoxville was when I first come in the, into the Nashville office. And uh, in fact, the first time I worked Knoxville, Hall and I were partners up there, come to think of it. Uh, Dennis and I were partners. Anyway, um, I know it was fair time because we were out at uh, Bill Myers Stadium at the baseball park. And that was my, my first uh, time to ever work the territory. And um, John liked my work. And uh, he had no TV at the time. When you talk about old school, his advertising was strictly, uh, you know, posters, word of mouth. And then he would go down on Friday nights after the house shows and write, like, a you know, results or press release for the, plus a press release for the next week at, at the uh, journal sports desk because he had worked there at one time. And, uh, that was, that was it, you know? And so, um, he, uh, you know, I remember him saying, you, you, you would, you would work good with, uh, we have a local baby face here. That's really over. Well, stop, Brian, back, back in 1968, you were hesitant to get hooked up with local guys because normally they weren't pushed as top guys, you know? And, uh, so, I'm thinking, I don't, you know, I didn't say no, but I didn't say, you know, yeah, that's, I can't wait. But the first time I saw Whitey work, I said, yeah, okay, this guy is, you know, and he was over. So then when John, John got TV in early 69 and Whitey and I were the first baby faces that got over on that TV and Ron and Don Wright were the first heels. And, uh, we just, you know, it, it popped. Uh, we were, 
drawn out, you know, well, the old story is we sold out everywhere. Of course, I don't know. We didn't do, but he was, he was running Newport and Morristown as well, Greenville, Tennessee, occasionally. So it wasn't, it wasn't a steady territory, but, uh, you know, uh, but he ran more than just Knoxville, but we, yeah, in fact, um, the attendance record at Chilhowie Park, the amphitheater, the outdoor place, as far as I know for wrestling, we still hold the attendance record. Obviously, price, you know, money-wise, it's gone up because prices have escalated, but uh, we still, uh, the, the four of us, we drew a hell of a house there one time outdoors in the rain. John, and, and you know, when Ron had it, we were, uh, well, the, the amphitheater is almost spit to uh, the Jacobs building where the indoor place at, at, the, at Chihuahua Park, where John used to run. He, John never ran the Coliseum, or at least not when I was there. And, um, but anyway, if, if it rained, John just canceled. He didn't think of moving 200 yards to the, to the building, right, and, and running the show. So uh, we're, in the, uh, we're in the dressing room at the uh, amphitheater. And it's, it's, it's coming, you know, it's raining, it's, dri- you know, it'll speed up a little bit and then it's just a steady drizzle. And so John comes in and says, God, I hate to think to cancel this. You know, it was so hot on the, the angle was so hot on TV and everything. So Whitey was up on a table. The windows there, there was no air conditioning in these dressing rooms, but the windows were set where you could open them all up and, you know, to get a, a breeze going through there. So Whitey was up on a table peeking out these, these windows and, he said, wait a minute, John, maybe before you decide to do that, you might want to get up here with me. And the point was, there were two lines to the two box offices at the, at, uh, the amphitheater, down the driveway and out of sight, waiting to get tickets. So he said, we're going to run. And this, the, the deal then, as I understand it, uh, as long as your main event was put on and, and in the ring and completed, there was no refunds. So, I mean, obviously the cards back then weren't eight or nine matches to begin with, but they put one preliminary match on, and then they ran us out there. And it was coming down it was coming down hard enough that I couldn't look directly at you, right? It was, I mean, I had to drop my head and, look, and kind of look out of the corner of my eyes so I didn't get blinded by the, and the, the ring lights swinging back and forth. And these people are sitting there, man. I mean, they're sitting there. And uh, we, we got over great. It was, it was, uh, it was a great run. Uh, in there. So yeah, that was my initial beginning with Knoxville. And I, and one of the reasons I think that Ron uh, aside, I mean, obviously because of my television experience as well, but you know, because I had been over there as strong as a baby face that, uh, you know, is one of the reasons that he brought me in to do the TV. And you would reshape not only the wrestling television show Knoxville, but really create a revolutionary wrestling television show whose many elements are still used to this day on various wrestling programs. But what was the TV like when Kazana first launched it? And when did you first meet Big Jim Hess? And what were your first impressions of him? Jim was a good guy. Well, you know, back then, with the exception of Gordon Soley, uh, you know, a few guys like Soley, Cottle, Lance Russell, your your uh, wrestling announcers were local guys like Jim Hess, who had a a talk show on the station, and he, you know he was a good guy. Uh, Big Bill Ward in Charlotte uh, was a you know a talk, a talk show host on on the uh, station there that we were on, but that was that was quite the norm, you know. And, and Jim knew as much about wrestling as I know about brain surgery, but you know <laughs> he, he he was he had a personality and and. He was uh, gregarious and and uh, he, he, a warp your head off. Everything was a warp your head off hole, even whatever that happened to be. It was a catch all for Jim, but he was an you know I socialized with Jim some, and 
one of the crazies talk about angles uh you know like i said i never really was involved in the the nuts and bolts of television just you know hey you guys here's the match you got, jim's going to interview you or or here's the finish and you're working in the ring we had worked a deal where they uh, where they gorded us into putting the titles on the line on tv and then uh to, to beat us for that ron chloroformed whitey now there was he realized back then that Color TV was just in its infancy. So the lights in a studio for color had to be extremely hot. And to work under those lights, even on a high ceiling, you know, the room itself was going to be warm. But I mean, uh, some places the canvas probably had a, was 100 degrees. Uh, but anyway, the finish for this match for them to win the belts was uh, for uh, Ron to chloroform Whitey. And he had real chloroform. And in the studio, I thought we were going to end up gassing everybody, the fans and everybody else, because it's such confined area with the heat the way it was. You know, the air was so heavy. Anyway, so we came back. This was John's idea. We came back as the Avengers. He got his white boots, white long tights, white tops, shirts, uh, white mask. And so it was all a big secret, you know, who are these guys. And, of course, the rights are needed to put their belts on the line against uh, Thatcher and, and Caldwell. Now we're not screwing with them. And this guy, this guy, or these, this new team in the Avengers, eh, we'll, we'll take them. So we went out for the very end of the show with the mask on. And uh, we sat down, and, and uh, Jim is just inter- uh, introducing us and talking about our history and I forget what it was, he, but he finally leaned to, uh, turned to me. It, we're just getting ready to go off the air, and he asked my, uh, me to make it a, a, say something about something. I don't remember what it was, to be honest with you. And he heard my voice, and obviously in, in East Tennessee, my mid, <laughs> Midwestern accent is, uh, stands out. And his mouth just dropped open. He didn't know what to say. He didn't realize it was me. And, of course, if it was me, it was Whitey. And we worked that gimmick. Uh, we worked Dennis Hall into that thing, right, where Ron is where it was. It's, it's Thatcher and Caldwell. And, well, this next week, you know, so the next week maybe we'd get Dennis under the hood with Whitey, and I'd come sit ringside. So that can't be Thatcher because <laughs> Thatcher's sitting out here, right? And, well, that's it's Whitey. And the next week, Whitey, but, you know, it's the whole thing. But uh, so that's, uh, that. you know, that was the introduction to Jim. Nice guy. But, you know, when when Ron bought the thing, Jim stayed and, and co-hosted with me a couple weeks. But it really wasn't because we were trying to sell wrestling, you know. I mean, we had Danny Hodge coming in, John Foley, old English shooter, Dale Lewis, uh you know, guys who were legitimate wrestlers, right? And then we were trying to take some of the craziness out of, out of the product. So Jim just didn't fit. And uh, so that was why we made the transition. And then Phil Rainey, who was actually um, did sports on, on Channel 20, uh, 26 on the ABC affiliate. And he moved over to uh, Channel 10 with us when we went over there in uh, the winter of uh, or the uh, early part of 1975. Was that a selling point for Channel 10 that you would get Phil Rainey? No, I, I, you know what? I can't say for sure. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. He, you know, he was fun to work with because he was a legitimate fan. Now he, you know, in, in this day and age, he'd be the color guy and I was a play by play guy, but he would actually, I mean, he would give opinions, you know, uh, but in a limited way, but he also asked questions that made 
were relevant and made sense, which gave me, you know, fodder to uh, to fill the people in on, on this, that, or the other thing. But Phil was a good guy and, and good to work with. But uh, yeah, the, the beginning of our our uh, run uh, with Ron in, in uh, November of '74 was it was like taking. Uh, wrestling television, as far as Knoxville was concerned, out of the Neanderthal age and bring it into modern technology. Well, I want to ask you about that, because let's take a step back. In early 73, you start doing some color in Georgia with Gordon Soley as the wrestling war in Georgia is up and running and everything's going on. You're in there and you become a commentator. When did you first start thinking about getting involved either as a commentator or on the production side of things when it came to a wrestling television show? Well, you know, uh, I always had a, a suppressed desire to be a disc jockey like Wolfman Jack, right? Or, or somebody, you know, like uh, Dr. Johnny Fever or something, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did truly. And so anyway, I actually got my start in broadcasting in the Maritimes in the East, Eastern Canada in 1970. Uh, a guy who was a dear friend of mine was running that territory, uh, Rudy Kay. And uh, I'd gone up to, to work. The, se- the season ran from April to mid-October. And uh, I got the, I went up to work the second season just as a wrestler, and um, so a few weeks in, the guy who was doing his broadcasting, we we uh, taped in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The guy who was hosting the TV had a death in the family. His family was uh, I think it was Toronto, but anyway, he had to leave for a while. And so uh, this is something Rudy and I had talked once I saw Soli and got to know Gordon and I got to be friends for because of race cars and stuff as well as wrestling. But we just we bonded. And, and I always, you know, I thought, wow, you know, somebody's actually calling a wrestling match like it's a shoot. You know, they're not trying to sell something else. And so that made my interest up as well. And Rudy and I talked about that. He was my next door neighbor in the Carolinas in uh, part of 67 and 68. And so uh, he knew my, you know, that that was something I thought about. So we did Moncton. We lived in Moncton, New Brunswick. We did that on Monday, Halifax, Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, Halifax TV, and then on to St. John's. But anyway, Rudy calls me at uh, my apartment on Monday before we go to Moncton and uh, just start shooting the breeze. And, you know, how are things going? Okay, listen, he said, you remember we used to run down the roads in the Carolinas and you talked about how you, you thought you'd like to to try hosting a TV show or something. I said, yeah, yeah, I remember. He said, well, bring a suit or a sport coat and slacks tomorrow when we, when we go to uh, Halifax. And I said, why? He said, because you're going to host our TV. Now, Rudy, like his brother, Leo Burke, or, or the beast, who, uh, Yvonne, his brother, one of his other brothers who wrestled, uh, they were known as rivers, great rivers. So I'm thinking, yeah, okay, sure. You're going to, you're going to get me all dressed up Wednesday morning, come in TV station and say, surprise, it's all a rib. Right. But he finally convinced me, you know, so Brian, I, other than being interviewed, you know, I'd never hosted a show. In fact, there were no, you know, broadcast teams. It was one guy. He was the man. So that was, I thought, you know, it's the old thing where you throw the kid in the water and sink or swim. Here's a TV, here's a desk. We don't know how, we, we can't tell you how to segue because we don't know either and so forth and so on. So that was my beginning. Some way I managed to get through it. And he said, you know, you did a good job. He said, I'm going to leave the guy stay in Toronto and I want you to, I'll pay you extra to finish out the season as, as my uh, commentator. Okay, cool. 
So I did, and then uh, he actually wanted me back the next season, but he wanted me to forget wrestling and work in the office with him and produce the television and also uh, do a, a weekly program for the towns and that sort of thing. And so uh, I was still, I'd only been bumping then for a little over 10 years, and I thought, no, nah, man, I'm, I still got a few, you know, uh, a few good days left in me, so I wanted to wrestle, so I, I passed. So I came, came back in Nashville for a while, then went to Tampa, and then uh, Carolina was looking for a number two babyface team. So uh, Louis Tillette and Garibaldi recommended Danny Miller and I. So we went into the Carolinas, and I never thought any more about it. You know, I'd done the TV up there, and that was that. So I was in the office one day. It was just uh, Mr. Crockett. That was Jim Sr. And uh, Lord Littlebrook came in, and the three of us are just talking. And Brooks says to Mr. Crockett, why isn't Les on your TV? And Mr. Crockett looked at me and said, what do you mean? He's on my TV. No, no, Mr. Crockett, I mean as, as an announcer. He said he did Rudy's TV back last summer, and it just did a great job and everything. And, and Mr. Crockett looked at me and said, why didn't you tell me? I said, well, I didn't think you'd be interested. I don't know. So anyway, so then it worked, he, they worked me in there, sitting in on the Charlotte TV, the High Point TV, the Raleigh TV, you know. I was basically the guy, in case the announcers aren't smart or they're trying to go in another direction, I knew what the finish or the hot angle was. So my job initially was to be sure that I pulled the viewer's eyes and enhanced what was going on, you know, uh, so that they would buy into it. So that's where I really got, that's how I got my start. And then I was doing the TV for Jimmy and uh, the, the getting, these, this all has nothing to do with Southeastern, but it's, it's a decent story. So shut me up when you're ready. No, Brian. no, keep going. Keep going. So anyway, I was doing, uh, the start doing the Crockett magazine. Well, it was like a four pager to start with, but anyway, it was the, the forerunner of, of the mid Atlantic magazines that, that I initiated there in the mid seventies. Anyway, you know, the war in Atlanta started and uh, Jack Briscoe and Tim Woods had, uh, you know, bought in. And so Jack had called me and said, we, you know, uh, Gordon's, but he, we need a color man. And he said, you, you know, we'd like to have you down here. And, it's, you know, we'll, uh, we'll give you points in the office and this and that and the other thing. So I thought, yeah, and, you know, it's a, uh, a new mountain to climb, and and it was the thought of working with Gordon was great. We'll bring you first. Leo wants to bring you in. You're, you you've been injured as a wrestler. That's why you're doing color, and then work you into the stuff in the ring and and some angles later on. Okay, fine. So the problem was Jimmy Crockett Jr. at the time didn't want me to go for whatever reason, and so Jack said Jimmy doesn't want you to leave. Okay, well, he said, damn it. He said, we, and we want you down here. Let me see what I can do. So I get a phone call one day, and it's Eddie Graham. And Eddie says, uh, you know, they want you in, in, in Atlanta to, to work with Gordon and work in the office. And he said, we want to we make this work out because, you know, he was part of sending talent in during the war as well. And, and I don't know if Eddie had points there or not, but, you know, he was always an intricate part of anything he was involved in. So anyway, he said, here's what you do. He said, you go give Jimmy your notice as a wrestler and tell him you're coming to Tampa to wrestle. So on your way to Tampa, you drop your furniture off in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> then you come down here and wrestle for you know a month or six weeks. And then we send you back to Atlanta and you start working with Gordon. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is, you know. This is like the CIA or something. And I, 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 honestly, Brian, I wasn't really interested in getting involved in that. You know, I mean, 
I, I had a good relationship with the Crockett's. Uh, I mean, when I say the Crockett's, I mean the family. You know, I mean, I worked with Jackie and Francis and Jimmy and David and, and you know, Mr. Crockett and I had a good relationship anyway. So thank goodness before this actually transpired, Jimmy had a change of heart and said, okay, if you want less in Atlanta, then you can go to Atlanta. So that's how I ended up working there with Gordon. But Ron and I had first become friends in Tampa and uh, traveled together there. And uh, then, of course, he was you know, coming in during the war in Atlanta, and, and we would socialize some there too. But then, don't ask me an exact date or time. I remember it was November of 77, or no, 74, excuse me, when I first went to Knoxville to do the TV. But he had called me, said, I'm buying Knoxville. want to turn it, you know, want to turn it around. I know nothing about television. And remind him of that when you talk to him, because I wish I had a recording of it, but my memory's still pretty sharp. I know nothing about television. And I want you to put together a TV show for me. And I will give you carte blanche to create, you know, within reason, obviously, of uh, whatever you can. Before we get there, I want to ask you a couple follow-ups, a couple of things you mentioned earlier. One, when you got to Georgia, what was the relationship like between Bill Watts and Leo Garibaldi at that time? Well, you know what? You had two great, fertile, creative minds, and they would butt heads occasionally. But you know what? I like sitting and, and, and listening to them butt heads because I learned a lot from them, you know? And, you know, that now you talk, we're talking about a war, and I know we're going to talk about another one here in a little bit. But realize both offices were strong initially. Where Gunkel fell off was getting new talent, fresh talent to, to keep that, you know, th that role going. And, and it, it was one of the reasons, I guess, that she finally shut down. But the crazy thing, we were both running in the old Atlanta uh, City Auditorium. They on Tuesday nights, us on Friday nights. They sell out Tuesday, we sell out Friday. They sell out Tuesday, we sell out Friday. Uh, it was, you know, both offices were, were doing really well. And, um, of course, I'll tell you, it's floating around on uh, YouTube somewhere. The first match that I ever called, it actually was kind of a tryout thing. I flew into Atlanta. This would have been the Saturday after Briscoe won the strap from Harley in Houston because Jack came in to, uh, to do the RTV, too. He got a red eye in. Uh, but that first, first time that Gordon and I worked together on television, 1973, I forget, July, June, whatever it was, and uh, the match that's out there is uh, Tim Woods under the mask as Mr. Wrestling and uh, Bill Watts. And that was the first, first time that Gordon and I worked together uh, on the microphones. You mentioned the reluctance that Jim Crockett Jr. had with letting you go to Atlanta, at least initially. You know, when you look at the cards that were made up, especially in the early months of the wrestling war before Watts and Leo really got their footprint in there and started getting their own guys, their own crew, when it was really guys being sent in from various places, whether it was guys from Tennessee, guys from Florida, the Crockett office hadn't really helped that at all. Was there anything to that? Was there any reason why? Well, you know what? I can't really say. I, I, I don't, I, you know, uh, I was in an, I mean, I had a cubicle in the office and, you know, uh, but in, in terms of that, I don't know. I couldn't give you an honest to God answer. I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not. I really don't. Let's now fast forward to Knoxville. You go into Knoxville. You said it before. They didn't really know anything about putting together a TV show when you went in there and you started putting together the format. Talk a little bit about that. What was it like when you first put together that format? And also, <laughs> when did you start coming up with the concepts that you would develop on the TV show? Well, uh, first of all, I'll tell you about the format. Uh, my first day, I was realized from November of 1974 
till November of 1977. I was uh, my my week consisted. I was, so I had an apartment in Charlotte, but I, I was I worked Charlotte either as a well as a wrestler, as an interviewer, as a commentator in uh, you know whatever I was doing in the office Monday through Thursday. Friday morning, I'd get on Piedmont Airlines, which is no longer extinct now. But anyway, I'd get on I'd get on the bird Friday morning, fly to Knoxville. Ron would pick me up. We'd go have lunch. We'd go to his house, put together the TV, house show in Knoxville Friday night, Saturday morning TV, then Sunday, uh, wherever, Middlesboro, Morristown, Newport, wherever. Uh, Sunday morning, back on the bird. And I did this from, like I say, November of 74 through November of 77. So there were times I'd pass myself in the air. Hey, Les, how you do it? There you go. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's the way it started. So anyway, that first day in November, 74, uh, Ron picks me up. We, we go to lunch and uh, we go back to his house and, uh, or check me in the motel. And we went back to his house. And he said, okay, well, let's put the t-. I said, let's put TV together. Yeah, okay. I said, where's your formats? We don't have any formats. What do you mean you don't have any formats? We don't have any formats. Kazana's never used formats. I said, oh, my God. You know, and I, I, I'm personally not the most structured human being in the world, but I understand the value of a television format, right? And so I said, okay, give me a ruler and a pen and uh, some plain sheets of paper. So I, I made a, you know, I made a format, and we went to the Kinkos or Copy Express or whatever, and got a bunch made and come back and we put the TV together, you know. And uh, the crazy thing was uh, the directors at Channel 26. Uh, where he initially started his TV before we moved the next year. In 75, we moved over to Channel 10, WBIR. When we walked in on Saturday morning and uh, Ron's in, here's a direct, okay, here's a format and then sound man. Here's, and they're looking at me like, what's wrong with this guy? What do you mean format? <laughs> it's a wrestling show, right? So that was the first big change that we, that we made there. But the concept, you know, funny, funny thing is a lot of my concepts, uh, whether it's for, television or magazines or, or whatever, sometimes came from something outside that where I saw it work for somebody in, in another genre and think, okay, well, you know, that might work for wrestling. As many things, that, you know, as I've, I have actually touched it as an innovator, uh, it was never to change the product itself, right? But the way it was presented for the most part. But anyway, personality profile. No one did sit down interviews pre-taped. In fact, I I can't tell you how many people said it won't work. You in the middle, you can't do that in the middle of your show. It'll kill the momentum. You, it just. But where I came up with the idea initially, back when uh, you know uh, when football was uh, at Sundays and uh, in the late '60s into the early '70s, watching football on Sundays before they had nine thousand ex football players as analysts, right? That they did the halftime. In the halftime, they did something similar to my personality profiles. Like they've got this. Uh, linebacker who kills people and drools and he's making pottery, right? It's showing the yin and the yang or the, you know, this guy in, a, in another environment. I'm, I was fascinated by it. And I thought, you know, this is, and if you look at it, this is kind of the way NASCAR sell, you know, you're, you follow a particular driver probably because you and he drive the same brand car, you know, I, I like this guy because he races Fords. Okay. But it's an identification thing. So I, I saw the value in that, you know, and, and the other thing I mentioned, Atlanta, the first time I was there talking about the cousins in 66, in, in, uh, 
Leo became a mentor to me as well. And here's a guy, I know you you and Kevin kick it around. Kevin will tell you, one of the greatest bookers of all time, period, end of story. But my first day at TV uh, in Atlanta in 66, Leo said, we don't have you worked in any programs. And, uh, you know, uh, so Ed wants to, you know, interview you about your wrestling background. But he said, this drag racing thing, is that a shoot or is that his work? I said, no, it's a shoot. I was driving on a drag strip, Brian, before I had a driver's license. I was racing the car when I was 15 years old. So anyway, uh, he said, do you know anything about Georgia drag race? I, I yes, because NHRA, National Hot Rod Association, it was a, a paper, a weekly paper. And of course, some of these, you know, some of the drivers through funny cars and drag show stuff from around the Georgia area. So yeah, I said, sure, I do. So anyway, uh, so when Ed, you know, had me on and we he brought up drag racing, I mentioned Yellow River Drag Strip, which at the time, I don't know if it's extinct now or not, but the Platt brothers and Don Nicholson and, and these guys who I knew from, you know, the, who were prominent national drag racers from, from Georgia. So the next Monday we're in Augusta and uh, a, a lady comes up to me and said, uh, are you going to be here just a few minutes outside the dressing room? My my grandson would like to get your autograph and meet you. I said, sure, okay. So the grand, she goes and gets him, and he comes back. The kid's, I don't know, 15, 16 years old. And so I sign his, his autograph, uh, you know, I sign his book, and, and we're chatting. And I said, do you uh, you come to uh, the matches on Monday with your grandma? And she uh, she said, he's never been here before. She said, he comes over and watches with me every Saturday on TV, but he's never been here before. And I said, really? She said, no, but he heard you talking about race cars and hot rods, and he wanted to come. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I realized I had sold a wrestling ticket, not because of my wrestling prowess or anything, actually, except the fact that we had the same hobby. You know, so that kind of stuff and stuff like that. So when we first started doing these things, you know, Brian, give me a little of your school background. What what sports did you participate in? What's your hobbies? Uh, a funny one that we did, Bob Armstrong and I, we were when we traveled together, we used to play this game. We're both big on the, the 50s doo-wop groups, you know, uh, the Penguins and the, you know, the Platter and so forth and so on. And he would name a, a, a song and I'd have to give him uh, the group that recorded then I'd give him a song and he'd, you know, answer back to me. So on one of these profiles toward, we, we try to keep it about five minutes. So at the, the end of this, uh, this profile, I said, Bob, remember that, uh, what we used to do to kill time in the cars. You mean about the, about the, the music? I said, yeah. He said, you mean where I always beat you? I said, no, where I, a lot of times I beat you. Well, it's, so we did one of those impromptu. He gave me a song. I gave him the artist. He, I gave him a song. He gave me the artist. And I signed out of the segment and thought no more about it. So the next Friday at the Coliseum, this lady comes up to me and she said, are you Mr. Thatcher? And yes, ma'am, I am. Um, well, I'm so-and-so secretary to Professor so-and-so who is head of, he was head of, I don't remember, Brian, but he's head of some department at the University of Tennessee. And he watches your show, and he heard you and Mr. Armstrong talking about the doo-wop groups. And he wondered if that was just part of the show or whether you, you guys really were into that. I said, no, ma'am, we both, you know, we are into it. We both own records from, you know, from that era and so forth. And she said, well, he wondered just how good you were. And she pulled out <laughs> two, envel two envelopes, and they had two typewritten pages in each one with questions about music from that era. And she said, they're, they're stamped and self-addressed. And would you mind, you know, answering them and, and mailing them back? So, you know, 
again, that just fortified my feeling about that particular segment, you know, and, and you could still, um, you know, get some points across in terms of, a, of an angle and so forth and so on too. But a lot of guys told me red Bastine and I, I God, I love red. Red's a great, was a, such a great guy. We rode from Charlotte to, uh, Fayetteville one night, just him and I, and back in a, uh, not a real heated discussion, but a discussion about why that personality profile stuff won't work. Les, it just won't work. Funny thing, a couple of years later, uh, Dory Jr. was when he had the strap was was in, and I had him on a segment, and he'd never seen it before either. And so he was out in Frisco, and Red was helping Roy with the TV at that time, and um, so Dory had told them about personality profile. So he called Ronald and said, can you, you have less than uh, Roy or Red, one of those, just a sample? Sure. Okay. So we did. A few weeks later, my phone rings and it's uh, the redhead. And he said, I guess I owe you an apology. I said, who is this? He said, it's Bastine. I said, hey, Red. I said, why do you owe me an apology? It never crossed my mind. He said, well, I saw your damn personality profile. I like it. He said, and from what I understand, it works. I said, it does. He said, would you be, uh, would you be mad if I copied it? I, I said, Red, I'd be honored. You go right ahead. <laughs> Feel free to do that. So, but that's, you know, it it came from football, you know, and, and the deal with the kid and the hot rods, right? I mean, I'm thinking, why can't we basically sell things, you know, in a similar way that NASCAR and, and you know, how many guys are have this hobby as a, as a stamp collector or listen to this music or, hey, I went to the same college that Brian Lask. You know, I like Brian to begin with. I like him even more because we're now both alumni of the same school. It's human nature, right? Were there a lot of guys into drag racing beyond you and Gordon and Ray Stevens, I think, was into drag racing? A lot of other guys that you know of that were into it? Uh, Johnny Weaver, uh, Johnny Walker, Tim Woods, Ricky Steamboat. Uh, Woods had a, a, a Oldsmobile 442, uh, which was a um, tri-power, uh, three, three two-barrel carburetors on a big block Oldsmobile motor. I had a 64 GTO tri-power. Steamer had a uh, I forget if it was a 396 or, or 426 uh, Chevelle with a big block uh, Chevy in it. And uh, Walker drove stock cars. Johnny Weaver drove stock cars. Uh, Mike Graham and I used to, that was one of the things when I was down there, we went to the Gator, NHRA Gator Nationals. We took a day off and went over there together. Uh, Mike had a Corvette shop. And uh, well, the, when I first went down there as a rookie of the year in 67, uh, and he said, he asked me, he said, uh, this drag racing stuff, is that a work or is that a shoot? I said, it's a shoot. Well, my son just uh, built this 55 Chevrolet with, you know, it's got all this fancy stuff on it. He wants to race it. And he said, I don't know if it, he said, would you do me a favor? And he said, kind of, you know, check it out. And, and if it's safe, I said, you mean if I, if it doesn't kill me, you'll let your son drive it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but so Mike, yeah. So there were a lot of guys, you know. That were were in into speed as well as uh, wrestling. Yeah, so those are some that I know right off the top of my head. Guys that I've traveled with or spent time with that were involved. After Ron bought Knoxville in November of '74, how long do you think it took for you guys to get your footing? How long did it take before something really lit up the fans and got you new fans? 
Well, I, I think we start drawing. You know, uh, the crazy thing was that uh, the fan base that was there was loyal, and and they stayed. You know, they were. I, I one of the. I, I know for a fact that with uh, you know Ron's wife was helping with the box office and handling tickets, and one of the big deals uh, with them. You know, people who had had ringside seats or a, a particular seat every week for Lord knows how long. They didn't care who owned the damn thing. I just want my same seat. You know, if I can't get my same seat, I'm not coming. That sort of thing. So the fan base was pretty solid, but it started to build. And then it came along, you know, uh, we got, you know, uh, heat on the right people. And the right, well, Ron, Ron Fuller is a heel and Ron Wright is a baby face, if you can envision that. Uh, that was... That was hot. Nelson and I got hot with uh, Dutch Mantell and, and John Foley uh, for the tag belts. But there was, uh, um, you know, there was uh, good good wrestlers, good cards, good stories, um, good angles, uh, and it, it all came together. You know, we were, uh, you know, and, and we went into the garden on Sunday afternoons in the winter and uh, drew well there. In fact, we set, we broke a record that was set, I don't know what year it was, Brian, but it was the Russian hockey team was uh, traveling across the United States doing exhibitions. And uh, at the time, Knoxville had a minor league hockey team. Uh, and they had, up to that point, had the record draw in the Coliseum. And we broke that record. I forget what year it was. It might have been 76. I don't remember exactly, but it was... Uh, but yeah, we broke that record in the Coliseum. So, you know, uh, we built a good fan base. I mean, it was uh, in the smaller towns as well, you know, things. Uh, and, and at one point, you know, there was talent waiting to come in. I mean, name guys who, because it not only it was, you were home every night. So it wasn't like Oklahoma, you wave goodbye on Monday and, and I'll see you on Saturday sort of thing. Yeah. You know, the longest trip was 150 miles. And uh, so you were home every night. And uh, so it was it, that made it a better deal anyway. But the money was good. And, and uh, the, you know, the territory. I remember Leo called me one time. Garibaldi was uh, booking L.A. at the time. He said, I got a guy out here. He's not the greatest worker in the world, but he's a hell of a talker, hell of a promo. And but I've got to get him out of here for a while less because he's, um, you know, I don't want to burn him out, but I think I've run my string on him, you know, up to this point. So he said, I said, well, Leo, I don't know. I have to get with Ron. And so um, I sat down with Ron. I said, here's what Leo. He said, but, you know, we got so and so and so and so wait on a waiting list. He said, I can't just push those guys aside. I said, I understand. So I had to call Leo back. And he said, well. You know, I hate that we can't send him in. And that somebody was Roddy Piper who went to Charlotte and the rest is history, as they say. Oh, right? wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You had been around Ron in Florida. Were you surprised when he became a heel? Well, uh, no, not really. Uh, you, you, know, you don't know how that wor it worked out well, you know. And he can be a real jackass when he wants to be anyway. You can tell him I said <laughs> No, it wasn't a surprise necessarily. I, I didn't know how it would end up, but once I saw it working, you know, uh, it worked well. Well, you know, he was kind of a heel. We used to, he and I used to laugh, joke about this. Uh, you know, he played basketball at the University of Miami, Florida, right? Yeah. And uh, he got a lot of heat from the opposition because he was always so tanned, right? <laughs> he, play, he played against Dave Cowens. 
uh, Artis Gilmore, you know, guys like that who went on and played big time in the pros. But uh, he always said, you know, he was kind of a he was kind of a heel when he played basketball because he was always tan and 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 so forth, right? So it, it got pissed a lot of people off. But no, I, I never never registered one way or the other. You know, it was kind of let's see, you know, in the you know, and I think Jimmy would tell you the same thing in the wrestling business. Some of the craziest things seem to work, and some of the most sane things don't, right? So often, so you know, uh, so you really don't. You know, it wasn't, uh, oh, you're going to be a heel? Really? Yeah, I'm a heel. Okay. So once I saw, you know, and of course, it was easier with Ron Wright as a baby face. Because, you know, in a lot of places, when, uh, well, even before I got in the business, I saw it happen with, well, like around here, Dick the Bruiser was such a dominant heel that at some point the fans started to like him, you know. And then they started cheer for him. So, and of course, then he was probably a stronger baby face than he ever was as a heel, you know, and that's in a lot of places that's happened. So it, it wasn't a big surprise, but um, like I say, doing it with Ron Wright, uh, it, it wasn't the hardest job in the world either. You know, before we get to 79, I do want to ask you about something I've never asked you about before. And you were right there. I mean, literally right there. What are your memories of everything between Joe LaDuke and the Mongolian Stomper? Are you talking about the concrete block? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, other than, I mean, I don't know that they ever had any disagreement. But, you know, the, the deal with that block, you can't hunker down and pull your neck down in your shoulders because then there's no effect, no movement, right? The idea is to take that shot with that from that block, and I'm saying this like I know, this is just what I've been told, yeah. is to stay straight. And once that compression comes down, that your neck can go down into your shoulders a little bit. And so the first week we did that uh, with Stomper, George, uh, you know, used a sledgehammer and Stomp Archie got right up and shook it off and went on. So, of course, Joe was up for anything. Joe, Joe may, have, may have got the, the greatest shoot look out of me of anybody on personality profile. I'll tell you that in a minute. But uh, so the next week we're going to do Joe. And I, I could see he was nervous. And I know they had told him, now, you know, don't, don't just stiffen up. Don't tighten up. And he did. And I remember when that damn block broke and he sat there and the strangest look on his face and he just fell over to the side. And of course, like everybody else, at first I thought it was a work. Then I realized it's not a work. You know, he had uh, he spent a couple of days in the hospital. In fact, we did an interview, I think, as I recall, from from the hospital. But uh, yeah, it's, it was it was just you know my thought is that if you weren't sure you could do it, don't do it. You know, I mean, it's like taking a bump. You tell me, Les, I need you to take this bump for my finish, and I say, Brian. I don't take that bump. I can't take it well or whatever. But Joe was game for almost anything. And so he took the shot. What about Joe and personality profile? <laughs> well, <laughs> I forget, I forget who he was, who he was working with, but it was a big grudge thing going on. Right. And this, this wouldn't have been the first match. They were probably two or three matches in and he's sitting there with that double bladed ax and just as we're starting, what, I had a back timer in front of us, so the, the guys with me could see the time too. So they, they you know, could kind of uh, wrap it up before we, you know, so we didn't get cut off with anything. So just as we're winding this segment down, 
Joe is saying something about, uh, I guarantee that I will beat so and so, you know, blah, blah, blah. and to prove my sincerity, I will sign my name in blood. And he took that damn axe and cut his, split his, sliced his forearm. And I'm sitting there like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> right? And, uh, when I got off the set, I said, Ron, so why the hell didn't you tell me? He said, where do you see the tape? I wouldn't, <laughs> I would never have got the reaction from you that I got without you seeing it. Now, as I understand it, he'd done that in other places, but I'd never seen him do it and, and wasn't expecting him to do it to me or with me. But, uh, you know, I, I, my mouth dropped him. What the, are you nuts or what? Right. So, <laughs> That's one of the biggest angles, Joe LaDuke and the Stomper in Southeastern history. And of course, Southeastern would become a powerhouse, not just in Knoxville, but Johnson City, Kingsport, all over Eastern Kentucky. I mean, Southeastern became a really big thing. And of course, Ron was able to open up the Southern end of it. And let's go to, I guess, this period of time. It would have been 1978. Do you remember when Bob Roop first came in? Do you remember discussions about bringing him in as the booker? Sure, because I was part of those discussions. Uh, you know, not that my opinion was valid or anything, but uh, there was, you know, several guys, uh, you know, considered being considered. I'll be honest with you, I don't remember everybody, but I remember. But well, I think with Ron and I both, uh, we liked Bob. We uh, had worked with Bob, you know, uh, socialized some with Bob in Florida. And then Bob had been in the Carolinas with me before I, before Ron bought uh, Knoxville. And so, you know, we just kind of, you know, I say we, it was Ron's, Ron's final decision, obviously not mine, but I was in agreement that Bob should, you know, uh, he'd be a good guy to come in as a booker. And, and part, obviously, because of his wrestling background, and he had been educated in our business in Tampa, where if you couldn't wrestle a little bit, don't bother to go there, you know. So, yeah, obviously there had been a situation in San Francisco where, and, and I think Bob readily admits it, he tried to steal the territory from Roy Shire. It didn't work out. He was fired, suspended by the California State Athletic Commission. This is right before he ends up in Knoxville for you guys. Did you guys hear any wind of what had happened in San Francisco? And also, was he the same guy then when you first brought him in as the booker that he had been a couple of years earlier in Tampa? He was the same guy then when he came in. As far as what had happened in Frisco, I can't say that Ron had never heard of it. If he did, I don't remember him mentioning it to me. I know I hadn't. And obviously that would have left a question mark probably. But then, you know, it's uh, the business, especially back then, there were, you know, you could be the devil in one territory and a saint in the next. So, you know, what happened and transpired in one place, you know, one of the things, I never worked for Roy Shire, uh, never worked for him. I met him, uh, bought tickets to watch him as a kid years and years and years and years and years ago. But uh met him at an NWA convention in Vegas, and in, in, I guess that was 77, maybe 78. Talked to him briefly. Other than that, I didn't really know Roy, but I had always heard that he was could be difficult to work for. Almost worked for him um, in, I don't know, it must have been 69 or 70. Bobby Shane came into Nashville for a while. And uh, he and I were talking uh, that, you know, he, he wanted us to go to uh, Frisco as the uh, Shane brothers. And uh, it just didn't pan out basically because 
uh, Roy had all the tag teams he wanted and didn't want anymore or whatever. And I don't remember the exact deal. So I didn't really know Roy that well, but I, I knew he, you know, wasn't going to win Mr. Congeniality in anybody's poll. So I don't know how much difference that might've made in, in the way I looked at it, but um, I, I didn't know anything about that until after the fact. Real quickly, just because you brought up seeing Roy Shire wrestle when you were before you got into the wrestling business, did you get to see him and Stevens as the Shire brothers? I did. Yes. What was that like? What was young Ray Stevens like? He was great. I saw Ray Stevens when he was sixteen years old. In fact, you know, I I don't know. I you know, I was probably ten. 11 at the time, but of course he was a professional wrestler, so he could have been ancient. When Ray and I first met, I couldn't believe he was, you know, only six or seven years older than me. Ah, no, you're lying. Of course, wrestlers lie about their age all the time. Corny probably tells you he's 39, right? (laughs) But but, uh, yeah, so, uh, well, and I'll tell you, you want to see something before their time, and I don't want to stir up the uh, spot monkeys, but when the Shire brothers wrestled the Bastine brothers, Red and Lou, Lou Klein, uh, Red and and Ray would light up that ring, man. I mean, those both those guys such amazing workers to begin with. But yeah, Roy, I, Roy was Professor Roy Shires when I first saw him. I don't know, that must have been. I'm going to guess 51, maybe 52. Uh, he was re- working here for uh, the Al Half promotion based out of Reynoldsburg, Ohio, which is up by Columbus, and. Uh, you know, we saw we virtually half ran a huge territory, covered five states, and from what I understand, kept like as many as seventy-five guys on a roster. He'd run two or three towns a night, so virtually everybody that we saw on uh, from New York, Chicago, L.A., Texas, at one time or another came. You know, they came through here, and uh, so yeah, Roy was Roy was over as as a strong heel. And he and he and Ray were over well as as a heel team too. And Roy was also over as a strong heel behind the scenes. So I mean, yes, <laughs> in yeah. front of the camera and behind the camera. Yes, I, I know a, a dear friend of a guy who I learned a lot from, Frankie Kane, who was one of the uh, Infernos as well as uh, Great Mephisto. Yeah, the Great Mephisto. Frankie, I know, uh, decked Roy Shires one time. To go back to Bob Roop and go back to what was going on in 79 in Knoxville, obviously Ron was spending a lot of time in the southern end in Pensacola, getting that up and running. You're still in Knoxville. What is the layout of the office in Knoxville? I know there's not an actual office, but who's working for the office in Knoxville while Ron's down in Pensacola? And when do you first start getting wind of something nefarious potentially happening with Roop? Well, actually, I, I, to give you a date or timeline, I, I would be hard-pressed, Brian, but I remember Ron wasn't in down on the south end when I first got wind of this because he called me from his townhouse in West Knoxville and said, we got a problem, you need to get over here. And so I went to the house, and someone had told his dad about these guys. Someone had leaked these plans to somebody else, and anyway, so... We were made aware that we weren't sure who all was going to jump, you know, but there was an outline and some of the names, obviously, you know, the important ones uh, were on that list. And uh, but we were not in a position, you know, you couldn't just say, okay, everybody's out, you know, because there was too much going on. So it was just like uh, the idea was to control it as best you can. I mean, you got to give your booker uh, leeway, but then you also have to have some control, you know? So it it was, uh, 
Ron was floating back and forth, and uh, it was it was a you know it, it was kind of hard to work. You know what? The crazy thing too is the guys involved in this. Um, I got along with all of them. You know, Malenko, Ron, uh, Garvin, uh, Roop, Orton Jr. Uh, all those guys. You know, I never had a you know I never had a crossword with any of them, and uh, and knew what was going on and and. You know, it was it was a matter of honestly. Bob, I, I felt in some ways, you know, Bob was trying to turn this into a cartoon, a bigger one than than it should be at that point in time in history. And uh, so it was uh, it was he was held you know held back a little bit on that. But uh, it just it was for us to ride it out and to know that on such such a night they're all planning on taking a hike. So the main thing is that we've got to have talent waiting in the wings to come in and fill those spots. It was kind of kind of the FBI versus the CIA or something like that, I guess. Roop seems to think that he had Knoxville on fire in 79 before everything went down. It had been a little bit hotter in 77 and 78, though, correct? Uh, you know what? i be honest with you, I'm not sure. But yeah, he was, well, he was doing a good, we had good talent, and he was doing a good job. It was just uh, Bob's, I don't know, Bob's sense of... Uh, righteousness or I'm not sure what, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I see Bob occasionally now at, at uh, reunions. Uh, I, I, you know, past is past, Brian. I see he, I haven't, now I, I saw Bobby Orton a few years ago. I haven't seen him since I see Garvin maybe once a year. Uh, and the saw, I saw him and Bob just back in this past September, you know, it's, it, to me, it's, it's water over the dam, right? You know, we can we can go back and grouse about it and say, "Jesus, you cost us all money," and they did. Uh, but what's done is done. You can't go back and redo it again. But it was just, it, it was, you know, it, it just killed the whole town. The uh, fan base wasn't big enough to split it like Atlanta. I mentioned earlier, Atlanta. You know, they sold out on Tuesday. We sold out on on Friday. We still were doing okay. Uh, but Ron just, I think Ron just get out from under it. Uh, the whole idea when you mentioned the South End is when he bought uh, the Mobile, Pensacola territory from Lee Fields, the idea was, you know, to keep the crews. Uh, and as a guy kind of cooled off in Pensacola, you bring him up to Knoxville and maybe get him hot again. But it was, uh, you know, the good thing is that it would keep both territories fertile, uh, you know, if done properly. And uh, we never really got the chance to find out whether that was going to happen or not. Um, and, and, you know, I know there's all the stories about, um, you know, whatever. Uh, and listen, Bob Roof is an intelligent man. He, he not only is he a college graduate, but he, he's an intelligent man. And But the craziest thing is when I hear, well, Ron was was skimming off the top at the, at the box office. Now, I was part of the office, but I never handled a box office, never mind a bunch. I, I couldn't tell you if he was taking five cents or five million dollars or nothing. What I can tell you is during my time in the business there, which at that point was, you know, like 18 or 19 years, that if Ron Fuller wasn't taking some off the top at the, at the, at the box offices, then he was probably the only promoter in the business that wasn't and should have been canonized instead of <laughs> spit on, right? I mean, and it, well, you know, when I say, and, and I'm not sitting here to tell you it's right, it's wrong. It's immoral. It's whatever. I'm not saying. I'm just saying it was it was common practice, and you kind of expected it. You know, the old story was, you know, a guy gets first count on the tickets. Obviously, is is the guy that uh, you know gets the best payoff. 
So it wasn't like Ron, Ron had invented it if he did it. And again, I don't know if he did or he didn't. To be honest, I never asked him. It never mattered to me. Uh, but it was all, all the war did was kill the territory, period. They wasted a lot of time on their television. They, weren't, they got on Channel 26 challenging people they knew wouldn't answer the challenges. Which, you know, I guess it made back back then, you know, there was things like that went on, but it was frivolous to a to a great degree. Uh, and, and just now I was made, you know, I remember I'd been at uh, Channel 10 doing some uh, editing or something. I don't remember. And I don't know how Ron, Ronnie Garvin knew I was there, but I remember coming out of station. It was uh, during a weekday. It wasn't like, you know, Saturday TV or anything. And uh, he was out standing by my car and uh, he made me an offer. And, um, I said, no, I said, I started here. I'm going to end here, you know, and I, I, I'm a loyal idiot, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's to me, to me, money's, you know, I mean, you, you, we all want to make money, but that's to me, it's, if, if I've told you something, if I've committed to something with you, then I've committed to something with you. And, and I'd started this thing with Ron and, and I didn't see the value in what they, and part of it was too about Ron Wright being the promoter in Johnson City. During my time in the business, I can't tell you how many names were tied with promoters in Johnson City, uh, the Tri-Cities in East Tennessee. So was Ron one of a million? Hell, I don't know. Did he own the town? But, you know, that was, and I don't want to speak ill of the dead. You know, I, I, made, I made good money with him, uh, and we, we did good business, and I never had a, you know, a, a serious problem. But I realized that he thought he was the cog to turn the wheels. This is my town, my territory. Uh, and, you know, and to a, I guess to a certain degree, you know, you could say that Whitey's as well, because those two guys still have storied histories in Johnson City, Kingsport, you know, Bristol in that area. And people in Knoxville still talk about them. But uh, again, like I say, when I first went to Tennessee, in 1968 to Nashville office. My, uh, Dennis moved up to Johnson City for a brief period of time, or Kingsport or one of those towns, because Goulas was going to have him promote those towns. Now, there was uh, a couple guys, I'm shy on names here, before that, that names that I, if you brought them out, I'd say, yeah, that's, that's one I remember who had promoted up there. Uh, and then when Jerry Jarrett first came to work in the Nashville office, his then brother-in-law, as I as I recall, was to go up and be the promoter up there, which I don't I don't think that ever transpired, quite frankly. So there was a laundry list of promoters. I guess Whitey could have said the same. If Whitey had lived, could have said the same thing to Ron said. If that's the case, you know, I've been a big part of drawing money here, so I'm uh, this must belong to me. You know, so I guess I can go claim part of Knoxville as mine too. I suppose I don't, you know, if that's the criteria. But you know, it was just it was a war to be fought for no reason, quite frankly. And I, I know that you know Bob felt he was standing up for the boys, but I don't know if that's just being naive or or what. Um, I, I know I know the first year there, one thing that Ron did that I suggested. And, and and to be honest with you, I don't know if he ever did it after that or not, because again, I didn't, I wasn't the money guy. I didn't handle the money, but I had said, I had said to him, you know, all the years I've worked for different promoters and I've, you know, worked my butt off and, and not just me, but I don't care if it's a top guy, bottom guy, middle guy, whoever, when, when there, when you break for Christmas, 
you know, you don't get a card from these promoters saying, you know, thank you for your hard work this past year. You don't get a uh, a turkey. You don't you don't get a you don't get anything, right? Except Merry Christmas. And I said it's just to me it, it it would make sense to give the guys working for you something. And I think that first Christmas, and I could be wrong here. You can ask him. I think he gave 50 bucks to each one of the boys. I don't think I got my 50. So tell that long legged jackass. He owes me 50 <laughs> bucks, but, uh, and he'll say, he still talks to me like that. Doesn't he? I say, yes, I still do. Anyway. Uh, but again, I, I thought that was a good gesture. Now, did he skim that off the top? I don't know where it came from, but you know, to say he's skimming, well, my God, then we will, you know, every wrestler in the business walked out on somebody. If, if that's if that's the criteria, but all it did was, and I'm going to tell you about the challenges, and I'm not going to bring up any names who made the challenges because I don't want to insult anybody. And at age 78 and a half, I'm too old to meet anybody's challenges for doing anything except sleeping, for Christ's sake. But when Mulligan, Flair, and, and Crockett bought it, I was down in, in uh, Pensacola. Uh, working with Ron, I, I, you know, Barnett, I stayed with Barnett. And then, uh, I, when I finished up with Jim, I went down for Ronald and then I got a call from Flair and, uh, Barnett had sold it to Flair Mulligan and, and, uh, Crockett. And, uh, Rick says, we've just bought the Knoxville territory and channel 10 is willing to keep us on to do studio wrestling. But part of the deal is they would like you to be, uh, the guy because I had a good working relationship, and sometimes I was the middleman, right? I'd go in and take the heat for the office if there was heat. I mean, there wasn't often, you know, but it was something we might have done that they weren't happy with, and I'd try to uh, smooth things, you know, try to. T- so that was, a, you know, they made me a good offer, and I said, I'm on my way, you know, so so I, I, I came back. But anyway, there was uh, Kevin, I think, was there. I'm not sure, but he and Mulligan yeah. and I, yeah, he was. and I think, well, I know he was there, but I'm not uh, this particular incident. We were in the dressing room at the matches, and um, Mac was there, Mulligan, uh, Kevin, I think, and myself. Anyway, uh, a guy named Ed Hammond, who was a retired police officer and worked security for Kazana, worked security for Ron, worked security for everybody, and hauled the ring sometimes, owned a car wash in Knoxville. Ed was a nice guy. But the boys knew if they told Ed something, he would tell somebody else, right? So anyway, Ed came in while we were all sitting there and said, uh, so-and-so and so-and-so came by the car wash this week. And Mulligan Jackson, yeah, okay. He said, they said, uh, now we've got new owners. I guess we need to start uh, cha- making challenges again. And Mully said, stop right there. He said, Ed, he said, Everything I own in my life is invested in this territory. So you go tell so-and-so and so-and-so not to bother wasting their valuable television time challenging anybody. Just tell me where to be and when to be there. Wow. He never got that call. Because <laughs> they knew there wasn't, there wasn't going to, there wasn't going to be any, you start on your fours, right? It was, <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. So, yeah, you know, and that's, and that's, I don't care who, you know, you, with most of those challenges over the years, I mean, what, never mind Knoxville, but any place, you don't risk somebody's, you don't send somebody, you don't figure, you know, it's back in the gear to do the job. So, but, uh, yeah, so that, you know, that was, but it, it just ended up killing the whole territory. I think the last big Coliseum show that I remember doing in there was um, Harley against Dick Slater for the title Thanksgiving. And Don Curtis, who was our 
uh, commissioner, you know, who used to do some videos for us and come up occasionally. How I remember it so much is because he and Dottie, his wife, and their two daughters, Don was a pilot, and they, they flew in, and, and Dottie brought a smoked turkey and uh, put it all together in my apartment, and uh, them and their kids and Harley and I had Thanksgiving dinner in my apartment for that show. But, yeah, I think that was the last big – and we did okay, you know. Of course, you know, back then, Christmas and Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving were both – big nights for wrestling in in most major cities but uh yeah it it uh and it didn't come back until jimmy uh started uh, with smokey how much did it hurt when roop and his compatriots immediately revealed that ron was the promoter in the newspaper you know what i uh i, I don't know that it hurt all that bad to be honest with you uh, I, I think by that time, Ron had established himself as as a good guy. And we had here's the other thing. We had done a lot of charitable things when Bob and them were all still with us as well. Um, I, I believe in us. When I was in the office in Atlanta, uh, I thought good PR for wrestling, especially back then, was to align yourself with things outside of wrestling that got good PR. And so we started doing softball, charity softball games at the old Bill Meyer Stadium where the uh, Knox Sox, it was a, uh, the Chicago White Sox AA minor league team. But we, we, we played one game against the Sox pitchers because that league used the uh, designated hitter because they were all American League minor league teams. And so we played, one, we played against the Channel 10 uh, celebrities. I forget who all we – but we played like three or four softball, charity softball games a year. We had a charity basketball game with uh, guys from Channel 10, wrestlers, the former mayor and the current mayor of Knoxville, uh, Big John Tate, who was the WBA uh, World Heavyweight Boxing Champion, Ed Bailey, who had been a catcher for the Reds and, and a resident in the uh, Strawberry Plains, which is right outside of Knoxville. Plus, we had NFL players and NBA players uh, or ABA players who had graduated from the University of Tennessee. So we were doing a lot of charitable things. So, uh, you know, and, and it's hard to, to badmouth somebody that's, that's helped your community, I think. You know, so I don't know that it was – I think maybe a lot of people just looked at it as, wow, this is kind of dumb. But I don't remember anybody stopping me on the street or in a store. And, and you know, in, in that community, we were high profile. And I don't remember anybody stopping me to say, hey – I I hear Ron Fuller is you know is the promoter. I I'm not coming anymore or anything like that. I so you know I'm not saying there wasn't negativity because of it, but I'm just saying I don't know how much. I guess is the best way to put it. I've heard from various guys who work for Ron in Knoxville and Pensacola. They all said that he was one of the better payoff men. That they were very happy with the money they got and they were very happy with the lifestyle they had, especially in Knoxville. Can you speak to that a little bit? Did you hear from guys who worked there that they loved working there? Did guys typically want to stay in Knoxville? Sure, sure. I think, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, like I said, it was because the te territory was compact and it was drawing well. So the money was good. The money was good. There were some guys in there that I know for sure were making 55, 60 grand a year. Now stop and think, this is 1977, 78. You realize what that would amount to today in terms of income? And and they were home every night. And what was the cost of living in Knoxville at that time? 
Well, I had a three-bedroom apartment and, and put an office uh, initially for less than $300 a month. Wow. <laughs> I mean, right there, that's yeah. just the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't get a broom closet for $300 a month now, can you? <laughs> and I, and I got to guess it was probably the, one of the better territories to work in, especially during the oil crisis. Well, you know, talking about cost of things, I had bought – uh, normally I'm a Pontiac guy, Grand Prix or Bonnevilles, but I had bought a, this is a 70, what, 76 was supposed to be the last year of the big car, right? They were going to downsize because of the oil crisis and they you know, make car, all cars smaller, which they did for about 15 minutes. But so I bought a Buick 225 Electra Deluxe. It was a coupe, but I mean, it had all the bells and whistles, right? I mean, power this, power that, power the other thing, land out top, you know, one, blah, blah, blah. And I paid the absorbent price, Brian, of $7,000 for that car. <laughs> you can't buy a front fender of a new car today for seven grand. <laughs> yeah, really? So, yeah. So, you know, there, and there were guys, it was, it was a good territory. Was it perfect? I don't even know what perfect, you know, we talk about perfect. What is perfect? I don't know. But yes, it was a good territory. Ron wasn't, uh, we all have our idiosyncrasies, you know, uh, you've dealt with Jimmy long enough to know what small idiosyncrasies are, don't you? <laughs> maybe a bit, maybe a bit. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, and, and when I say that, whoever, I, I love Jimmy to death. He's, he's one of my favorite people. Um, uh, and, and one of the most brilliant minds still above ground in his business, by the way, but it's perfect. I don't know, you know? I mean, did I ever have a, a negative thing happen in the Carolinas? And I worked, my God, I, a total of probably eight years or more total in that, in that particular territory. And I, you know, but I mean, yeah, there, there you know, you, we can say, well, Ron Wright should have had Johnson City and, and I should have had the Taj Mahal and whatever, you know, but for a whole group of guys to pull out. And, and of course, I realized too, they were promised as I understand this, and I I was not promised anything because I never came to that. But uh, as I understand it, they were promised stock in the company, right? Have you heard that? Here's the way I know it. The story is that they incorporated as all-star wrestling with Ron Wright being the registered agent. And from what I understand, also Ron Wright was left with the bills when Roop, Orton, and Garvin went and became partners in ICW for the Pafos. And I believe... I could be wrong, but I believe Roop and Orton each had 10% and Garvin had 20%. Yeah, I know. They were supposed to get a percentage. And they had good talent. It's just they never got, in terms of drawing big in bigger cities, I don't I don't think it ever got off the ground. I was never there. I saw What I will say, and I, I don't mean this in any malice of forethought or anything, but I saw their TV and it couldn't hold a candle to ours. And not, never mind the commentator, never mind that I was a commentator, that's not the point. But the production values weren't even close, not even close. Uh, so they, they couldn't beat us there, you know. Uh, that was never going to happen. And all they succeeded in doing, well, any, where, where did they, they ended up merging in with Memphis, finally, right? And that was actually at the very end that they were done as a territory. A lot of these guys who had come from Southeastern had already left. You know, Orton and Roop had gone to Mid-South. Ron Garvin eventually got in with Ole in Georgia. And it was yeah. just down to the Pafos. All that was left was the Pafos. And they realized they couldn't exist any longer. And they made the deal to finally 
do the match they had been building up for years. You know, they've been doing that challenge with Lawler the same way they did it in Knoxville, challenging every one of those guys. They did it with Lawler and Jared and Tojo and everyone for years, and they finally got the Savage Lawler match. God knows, you know, we talk about today, there's so many. There's like now tax time, uh, how many guys are going to get their tax returns and become promoters? And in three weeks, they'll be out of business again, right? Yeah. You know, but so, yeah, it, it and, and it's a shame. When I say this, it's, it's a shame because if nothing had have changed, if nothing had have changed, that territory could have carried right on into the mid-80s. And the switching of, you know, uh, okay, we're moving so-and-so down to Pensacola and we're bringing so-and-so up here. And obviously the so-and-so would obviously have to get maybe leave the territory and go someplace else for a while. But the concept was good. The concept was good. And it would have worked, you know. And it wasn't that big a deal to drive from Knoxville to Pensacola. So it's a shame that it didn't work out. And uh, like I say, that's the part. Yes, did it cost me money? Yes. But more importantly, it cost a lot of people money. It cost the territory because it never, they never drew like they thought they were going to. They helped kill the other business. And Barnett never got it really off its off the ground either. And sadly enough, with, you know, uh, Mulligan and Flair, it was just uh, the changeover. I think fans just weren't sure at that point, you know. But then the other guys weren't turning people away from 10,000-seat buildings either. So as strong as the war made both companies for a while in Atlanta, it just weakened both companies in Knoxville. When you look back on 1979 in Knoxville, when you look back on the war and you look back on Bob Roop and everything he tried to do when he was the booker and then, of course, when he broke apart with those other major stars in the territory, how do you summarize it? Are there any words that come to your mind when you think about everything that went down in 79? How would you encapsulate it? As a guy who had friends on both sides of the fence, as it were, I hated it. It was it was a useless thing to do because it killed one it killed a good territory and it did not they didn't had they have taken over and been successful you'd say well at least that worked but it didn't you know i think bob was ill-advised i think all those guys if that's the case were ill-advised you know they thought they were moving up into something and if they just said you know listen i'm greedy and angelo offered me more money that i could you know okay but to say Ron Fuller was skimming off the top, come on, man, you know, it, it, it's, it's senseless. Uh, yes, like I say, if he wasn't, then he de- deserves a humanitarian award for being the only promoter that probably wasn't. And uh, because it was, an ex- I mean, it wasn't like you said, hey, I can't wait to go to this territory so they, the, the promoter can skim. But you kind of, you figured he's getting the first count on the tickets, of course, uh, you know, but that's. That was just the accepted thing. You know, it wasn't like that's great or that's bad. It was just that's what's going to happen. And it was happening. And like I say, if Ron wasn't doing it, then he would have stood out for that for no other reason. But like I say, the reason that the war started was dumb. And it all it did was kill a great territory that was good to work and was making money for everybody. There it is. Les Thatcher back on the show, and I'm sure he'll be back on very, very soon. But as we begin wrapping things up, Jim, you have done a great job in your debut in the co-host chair. I very much appreciate you giving us some time today and being here on the show. 
before we wrap up, anything you'd like to plug, anything you'd like to say to the listeners? Yeah, you know, you can follow me on Twitter at Jim Valley. Um, speaking of things outside of wrestling, we mentioned my travels. Uh, next time I should be on, I should talk about going to the Giant Baba 20th Anniversary Memorial Show, too. Remind oh, me yeah. to do that. Yeah. Because I was there for that at uh, Sumo Palace with Dory Funk and Abdullah the Butcher retiring and the Mascaris brothers and everybody. So we need to we need to talk about that next time for sure. But Yeah, did, who did Marty Funk piss off that day? <laughs> anyway, go go to your plugs. <laughs> If if you do travel, my wife and I do just a little travel podcast just to talk about the stuff we do. Uh, you know, we just went to Tokyo Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea. So you can follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at the best trip ever. And it's just something she and I do for fun. So if you want to give us a follow there, I would really super, super appreciate it. The best trip ever. Again, it's just something we do. Uh, you know, she's an awesome travel agent. You'll hear that. But we just kind of talk about our experiences. We give a lot of information. I think more than a lot of other podcasts do as far as I think functional information from the user standpoint for so the best trip ever follow that on Facebook and Twitter but uh, you can find me on the Observer I do the Portland WrestleCast and Pacific Rim with with Fumi Saito I do the uh, Cauliflower Alley Club radio podcast for Cauliflower Alley Club you mentioned Dick Byer we we talked to Fumi much like you did but we also played have you heard Dick Byer sing Jingle Bells I have not Search for that on YouTube right now. He, he released a Christmas album, and there's a clip of him singing Jingle Bells on YouTube. It's pretty funny. You'll probably want to play that on your show. <laughs> I may have to. Was it? Is it old, or is it something from... Nope. It's old. It's old. It's from when he was in Japan. Okay, well... We It'll will... pop right up. It'll pop right up. But yeah, he sings Jingle Bells, and it's it's everything you want it to be. We will see what we can find out about this Destroyer Christmas album next time here on the show. But as we wrap things up, a few notes here, of course, the Facebook page, facebook.com slash super podcast. You get the vote for the top 10, get show updates, see the exclusive Travis Heckle artwork, the amazing album. I can't believe how big it is now of listeners, especially King Chivas, wearing the 605 shirts with various wrestling personalities and so much more. Facebook.com slash super podcast. Also, Twitter. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can follow the 605 Super Podcast on Twitter at 605Pod. And you can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at SuperPodcasts. If you'd like to support the show by wearing one of our awesome t-shirts, we have the 605 t-shirt in black, in gray. We have the Mothership t-shirts in black, in gray. We have the Mothership baseball shirts. We have polo shirts. We have stickers. We have magnets and so much more. Hey, you have a wrestling fan that really annoys you? Get a sticker and slap it right on their fucking windshield. You can get all that at tinyurl.com slash store. The official online store for the 605 Super Podcast. Once again, tinyurl.com slash superpod store. If you'd like to make a donation to the show, if you appreciate everything that goes into this show, everything that goes into the production, then there's a couple ways you can do so. You can go and make a one-time donation to the show at paypal.me slash superpodcast, or you can go to patreon.com slash super podcast if you want to make an ongoing monthly donation to this show unlike a lot of other podcasts including ron fuller studcast and we do a lot of stuff on patreon there you're guaranteed nothing you're just supporting the super podcast you may get stuff but more than likely you won't i promise you nothing but again if you want to make a ongoing monthly donation to the show you can do so patreon.com slash super podcast 
The top 10 was sponsored by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records, the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling of the music industry. Once again, facebook.com slash Ramsor Records. Like that page and get updates about the various awesome Ramsor artists that you've heard mentioned here on the show, as well as other artists and events that we haven't mentioned here on the show. And once again, April 13th at the Evening Muse in Charlotte, North Carolina, the National Reserve and the Ruin Brothers play together for the first time. Wear a 605 shirt and Dolph Ramsor will buy you a beer. Uh, he is not committed to that. I just committed him for that. But once again, April 13th, if you're in Charlotte, check that out. That really should be a great bill. If I was in the area, I would go to that. Two really good bands who are not just good on record, but really good live. Great sound. Check that out. Of course, if you want to mail something into the show, you can do so. The address, the 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For Jim Valley, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Brian Lasto, Brian Lasto, hails from Long Beach in New York. <laughs> He's the king of Arcadia. I, I, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? I don't even know yet. Lanny Papa, oh, right? don't, don't tell me. Don't tell me. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Let's do you it. couldn't tell it was him. That, that's I bad. Couldn't, I couldn't tell it was him. It was too, The <laughs> voice was deep, but it wasn't Lanny deep. Well, but that's a phrase I really want to take back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>